This is Jocko Podcast number 272 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. So when I worked with SEAL leaders and, and then on top of that interacted with leaders from the Army and from the Marine Corps, sometimes things went great and sometimes they didn't. And if there was a problem between leaders, between leaders, between people, between troops, 99% of the time, when I would pull the thread on that problem, at the end of that thread would be ego. You'd find it all the time. I'd find it all the time. And when I retired from the Navy and I started working with leadership in civilian companies, no shock, I found the same thing. When, when leaders can't get along, when, when they can't find a solution, when they can't even move forward despite having a common goal, when I'm working with companies and I pull the thread on that problem, I find the same thing. I find ego. And egotistical leaders scream and they yell and they get emotional and they would rather lose. They would rather lose than admit that they're wrong. They would actually rather die in some cases than admit that they're wrong. And, and, and if you think that that's an exaggeration, history is full of leaders, military leaders that died clinging to their plan even in the face of their own death. Or worse, the deaths of their troops. All because of their ego. Now look, of course, it's a dichotomy. We know that n- not all ego is bad. You need ego to push you and drive you and make you want to win, and that's great. But overinflated ego is the root of a vast majority of problems that people and leaders face. And as I look at the divisiveness in America right now, the people that are screaming from the extreme ends of the political spectrum, when I listen to what they're saying and why they're saying it, I try and figure out where this is coming from. When I pull the thread on all that screaming and all that anger, yes, once again, I find ego. Because if you if you think you're right about everything, if you think that you're right about everything, then that means everybody else is wrong. And if you think that you know everything, then that means no one else can know anything. And if your ego is so big and you think you're so smart, why would you even have to listen to anybody else? Because you already have it figured out. Why not just scream at them to shut up? And you gotta watch out, especially when, if, if, if someone is saying something that actually makes some kind of sense and it hurts your ego, then just scream louder. 
And when I look around and I see people that are screaming and not listening, that's what I see. I see ego. And sometimes it's driven by insecurity, insecurity that they think they're might be wrong and so then again what do they do they just scream louder don't let anyone else talk shut them up that's what the ego does that being said there are people out there today many of whom are humble people that do listen people that can have an interactive conversational exchange with someone else that might have opposing viewpoints and they're confident enough in themselves to actually listen and discuss and compromise and change their minds and learn and grow and understand and empathize and those types of people Well, they make good neighbors. They make good soldiers. They make good friends. They make good human beings. And they make good leaders. And I'm lucky enough to have one of those people here with us tonight. A soldier. A martial artist. A surfer. A former congresswoman. A Hawaiian and an American. You might have figured it out, Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi, thanks for joining us. Aloha. The last time we were together was on Joe Rogan's podcast. Yes, that was fun. When was that? I think that was sometime in 2019. Were you running yet? I, yeah, you I were. was. Yeah. I was. Crazy. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's been a wild ride. It's been cool. Um, well, it's been cool for me to watch. I know it's not always been cool for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking like, hmm, I don't know if cool is the word I yeah. would use. <laughs> it's always cool for me to look at someone that's like trying to make something happen and coming yeah. up against all kinds of obstacles and still striving forward and pushing forward. So from that perspective, Thank it's been you. cool. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's kind of like... Um, I always like to start from the beginning. It's mm-hmm. kind of what I like to do so I have a better context and understanding of where someone ends up because we know more about where they came from. Yeah. So let's talk about where you came from. How did you end up here today? It started off where? American Samoa? American Samoa is where I was born. Um, I am the Did you just subtly co- correct totally my, my, yeah. my pronunciation Completely. of Samoa? <laughs> yeah. What's correct? It's, no. it's, you gotta, you gotta elongate the A a little bit. Samoa. It's Samoa. Yeah. Mm. It's, I don't, it's just a fact, right? I, f- I feel very comfortable speaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I speak all the time, but words that I don't know how to say, I just do my best and move on. No worries. <laughs> and I, I mean, we'll cover books where I'm, was, I've got French words and German names mm-hmm. and what I just run into total things that I, I just don't know how to say them. And so what I do is I just do my best and move on. And I think I get a certain level of forgiveness from people. Completely. Yeah. I do yes. get tightened up from time to time yes, if I really make something awful. But yeah, I guess you have to forgive me a little bit because I just kind of say what I what it looks like to me phonetically (laughs) and move on (laughs) no no judgment whatsoever I however would get in trouble if I am not yeah 
right, pronouncing my homeland properly. Sl- if you say Samoa, though, like Samoa or Samoan, that, that's more like forgivable, right? Oh, totally. Like, yeah, it's not a big deal. That's like the proper way that's like you use the proper way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, it's kind of like, okay, yeah. the, it's, it's way more forgivable with Samoan. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's not a major violation. Not at no, all. It's, not, okay. it's actually not a violation, yeah. right? No. Like really. It's not. It doesn't but make it's, it correct. It's literally, it's, it's only people from Samoa who say Samoa. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Pretty Is much. it insulting that I would say Samoa? Yeah. That's a good a question. A little bit? No. Okay. So we're good either no. way. Yeah. All yeah right. You're good either way. All right. Well, when I went to Guam, there was people from Samoa there mm-hmm. and we hung out. Most nice. good people. Nice. All right. So how did you end up everywhere. there? So um, my mom was born in Indiana, grew up in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, dad born in, uh, born in Samoa. Um, my grandfather was in the air force and so he was born there, but he spent the first years of his life in Hawaii. My grandfather was stationed at Hickam and then, um, you know, moved around a few other places, but ended up growing up in the panhandle of Florida. So, so wait, so your grandfather was in the, in the air force. Yeah. Both, both of my grandfathers on my mom's side and my dad's side served, uh, served in the military. That must have been around World War II. It was, yeah. Um, so my mom's dad served in, I believe he served in Europe. I don't know exactly where. And then, uh, but but for a shorter stint, he didn't spend a career in the military. Mm-hmm. But my dad's dad did spend his career uh, in the military, and at different times served. I think he was in the army for a little while. Then he was in the Army Air Corps, and then he ended up in the Air Force. And um, so. They both had completely different upbringings. Uh, you know, my mom grew up in East Grand Rapids, Michigan, which was during that time a very kind of well-to-do area um, in her school. There were no there were no non-white people, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you know she grew up. She's a cheerleader. She was this. She kind of had the all-American upbringing. So she's a white person too. She is a white person. Hauli, <laughs> <laughs> as we yeah, say in Hawaii. Yeah, <laughs> which, which, you know, little digression here. People say Hauli is a derogatory word, but it all depends on how you use it. Yeah. Mm. It's, it, yeah. it can go, it can go either way. That's sort of like, <laughs> and that, it can be, it, it, it can be referred to as an attitude. Like, I don't care what your skin color is. Mm-hmm. It can be used yeah. in a derogatory yeah. way. Yeah. Or it can just be like, okay, you happen to be Caucasian and. Howley, but yeah. So yes, my mom is Howley, mm-hmm. um, based on her skin color, and uh, and uh, yeah, my dad Polynesian grew up, grew up essentially in the South, and um, it was so stark their upbringings, and and to hear both of them tell stories about it because, you know, my dad's going to, to elementary school, um, and. He, he, he's told me how like the teacher asked, asked all the kids, okay, where are you from? And he raised his hand. He's like, I'm from Samoa. And she said, what? <laughs> Somalia? <laughs> You're from Africa? And he's like, no, 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 Samoa. It's, it's you know, and that, that was it. Like all the kids started making fun of him. He's the only kid with brown skin, skin in the class. And, uh, you know, would go out, go out in town and, and, and get called, get called the N word, get scolded out of, you know, the men's bathroom and told you got to go use the colored bathroom. Um, you know, there's no water fountain. You got to go use the hose in the back because the water fountain is for whites only. And and so as he was so confused coming from Samoa and then Hawaii, and he's like, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not black. I'm like, he, he was, it was, it was at a young age, this kind of being confronted with racism, obviously, but also just confusion on his part. 
And um, that that kind of was the uh, made a huge a huge impact in his in his formative years uh, in life. And um, so fast forward, he's going to college in California. Mom's going to University of Michigan. They both had summer jobs at Yosemite, and which is how they met. And uh, famously, I what year that was. You know what year that was? That would have been in the sixties. And maybe they know Tilt. <laughs> one of our one of our frequent podcast guests, John Stryker Meyer, who ended up being a Green Beret SOG guy in Vietnam. Mm. Before he went in the army, he he went out to Yosemite and worked there in the summer. Is he the guy who um, has come with some of the Vietnamese? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's yep. cool. That's cool. Those are amazing. Oh my god, I love those. Hearing yeah, from those guys in, out of this world. So they're working. So they meet. They're so they're in working Yosemite. at a cafe in Yosemite. Oh, I can Dad's see where this checking is going. mom out <laughs> and um, asked her out, and she's like, "Okay, like let's go." She's like, "Do you play tennis?" He's like, yeah, he, he didn't play tennis at all. <laughs> She's like, okay, cool, let's go play as their first date. Mm-hmm. So they went out in the tennis court. She beat him, six love, six love. For the non-tennis players, that means zero. Mm-hmm. He got zero points. But I think the keyword was actually love. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I can see where this is going. Love and mm-hmm. what became uh, a very healthy competition he, he then later on went and became a actual tennis pro. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been married now almost, I think, 53 years and still play tennis almost every day together. That's awesome. Um, but that was, how, that was how Mike and Carol Gabbard began. And uh, the first, I think one of the, yeah, I think the first time um, he went to visit my mom in Michigan after they were, they were going out for a little while, um, and my mom, I think, actually, I think they were going out for a little while and my mom had decided like she wanted to marry this guy and told my grandma and my dad happened to be in the garage about to walk in the door and started over here, this conversation inside the house and, um, heard my grandmother's response to my mom saying, Carol, but he's not even white. How can you marry him? And, uh, Dad was a little taken aback and <laughs> turned around and went back and got in the car and went went and took a little bit of time. Um, but it was just a reflection of the complete stark differences and where they were from and, you know, their views of, of the world. And, and uh, you know, obviously they fell in love with my dad. And, and uh, um, it was... Uh, yeah, a, a bringing together of two different people, two different backgrounds, and and ultimately, you know, my dad took her uh, away from the mainland and and to to Samoa, where they both went and as teachers, they both got jobs as teachers there. My mom was doing, um, she was a speech therapist, so helping kids who had different kind of speech issues, and uh, dad became, I think, the assistant dean of the community college there. He was an English major, and so they, the three, there's five kids in our family, and, and the three middle kids. Uh, we're all born there, and then we moved to Hawaii when I was two years old. So Hawaii's been home for me ever since. You get to Hawaii, and I mean, you're 
what, what's what's it like when you get there? What like what are your memories of growing up in Hawaii? What were your formative memories? Yeah. So it was one of my earliest memories. So so I'm four of five. So my little sister was is the baby of the family, and she was she was born in Hawaii, and um, she basically she came a little sooner than expected, and so my dad delivered her at home quickly. And I watched that happen. <laughs> that was that was a big, strong dose of reality. And you know, I'm well, I'm three, three years old at the time. <laughs> God, can you remember it? I have. I, I vaguely remember. Or you just have PTSD. I, I, pretty much. I, I don't remember. I, like I can't visualize it, but I do remember being somewhat traumatized by it. Yeah. Well. <laughs> and the, I, the, the, the story goes that like my babysitter who was there. Also, that that after witnessing that, um, I told her like, I never ever want to do that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, we we moved around. Grew up on the island of Oahu. What was your parents doing for work there? They were teachers. Um, they were teachers there. Um, they had started kind of a small a small private school that we went to, and then. Um, and then they ended up, the school had to close down for, for one reason or another. Um, but then anyway, they, they ended up teaching us. We were homeschooled and they ended up teaching us and a bunch of other kind of kids in the neighborhood at home. And then they, they, they're entrepreneurs at heart. They've always been, even in, back in Samoa, they were teaching, but they had uh, Mike's tennis or Mike's sports shop. They had his little <laughs> sports shop. And so they've always had some kind of side gig happening and always different ideas for new businesses. And, and uh, eventually they opened... Um, uh, kind of family style deli restaurant, healthy healthy eating. Um, so they they've done a lot of different things in their lives, and um, it's always been uh, family family affairs. Everything that's going on, you're, you did you have involvement? Were you making sandwiches down at the deli? I'm the one. <laughs> I get to take credit for coming up with the name of the restaurant. It was called the Natural Deli, uh, and we, I remember us sitting around in the family living room and having a brainstorm session. And we were all we are all quite competitive. Uh, and the the deal was whoever get whoever comes up with the name of the restaurant gets one free dinner at the restaurant. <laughs> wow! <Yeah. laughs> Apparently, you're competitive, but not a great negotiator. <laughs> exactly, completely. I had no idea. I, I felt very victorious in my my of my win. However, had no idea that we would pretty much be eating there every day. <laughs> <laughs> and so, that, how long were you in this homeschool before it was cool scenario? I, um, all the way through high school. Really? Yeah. Yep. And, uh, it was, so there, there's a five year gap between me and my closest brother. The three boys are about two years apart. And then the, there's, there's, there's a story that my dad loves to tell, which is that after the three boys, my mom was like, that's it. I'm done. Um, she got her tubes tied. She was seriously done. It was, she wasn't just saying it. Mm -hmm. And this is in Samoa, like way back when where the hospital today is still probably about, you know, 20 years behind mm -hmm. modern medicine. So, um, so it took my dad a few years, but he finally convinced her to, to, uh, have more kids. <laughs> so she went to the hospital in Samoa. She's like, okay, got to undo what I did here. And it worked. And, uh, so my sister and I came along and, and that, so there's a five year gap between us and, and every birthday for me and my sister, he's like, girls, Better thank me. <laughs> you wouldn't be here without me <laughs> and your mom. Your mom too. But what were you thinking of when you were when you're going to high school? What are you thinking of doing with your life? 
Um, I didn't have, I didn't have a specific profession uh, in mind or career path or, or anything. I did understand and realize from a really young age, even before high school, that um, I think I think two big two big things. Number one was that I was happiest when I was. Um, when I was doing things for other people. So, you know, we'd go out and we'd do like beach cleanups and, and you know, growing up in Hawaii is, I love the ocean. I, I literally, like I learned how to swim at Ala Moana Beach, you know, in, in the in the shore there and and um, just just loved our home and, and from a really young age had a really um, deep appreciation and a kind of a sense of being a protector for our home. And so, you know, we, we'd, we'd go out and... and, and um, you know, do beach cleanups and do other things. And I just, I just felt happiest when I was doing things for others, when I, when I could be of service and, um, understood and realized from a young age that that's what I wanted to do. And, and really in a deeper spiritual way, understanding that, um, I was happiest when being of service to God and, uh, what better way to be of service to God than to, care for and to serve God's children and, and this, this planet. So that was something that I knew in a decision I made very early on, but what exactly that would look like, how, you know, what path that would take. I had I had no, no idea, but I also knew, and I, I, I distinctly remember I was probably 11 or 12 and I felt this reality that I didn't know how much time I would have in this life and that death was something that could come at any time. And I knew that I, I wanted to and needed to make the most of my life and the time that I had and understanding how precious that was. Was there anything that triggered that? Did you lose a family member? Did you see a a fish die on the beach or something like that, or was it just something that came no, from? It, I mean, it came. It came from. Um, th- there was no kind of external trigger. Um, I think it really came from spending time in prayer and meditation. Frankly. Um, because I mean, this this was something. This was something that you know, God has been the center of. I mean, it's the center of my parents' marriage, and and it's not not in a sectarian way at all. Just understanding, hey, real religion is love for God, and however you choose to worship at home or a church or a temple or a mosque or what whatever, however you choose to develop that relationship with God, that that you're happiest. Um, that is where you can find peace and shelter and happiness and. And um, that, that I think is the foundation that allowed me at a young age to realize that truth and not in a way that like, oh my God, I'm so scared. I'm going to die. Like I could die tomorrow. Not, not, not in a fear filled way at all, but rather just a sense of understanding the truth um, that is not only you know, we have no control over when our time will come. And uh, therefore, 
surrender that, surrender to that and surrender to knowing that, hey, my, my life is ultimately in God's hands. And also knowing that the death of this physical body does not mean the death of me, the soul within the body. And um, therefore, understanding that, being free from the fear of death, but understanding also how precious this, this life is and wanting to do my best to make sure that I didn't waste waste it. Well, it's amazing you and I can actually even have a conversation as two human beings because if you're talking about when you were 10 or 11 years old and you're thinking about what you were thinking about when you were 10 or 11 years old, <laughs> first of all, I didn't, I didn't think I could be killed. <laughs> and that lasted until my mid-30s, I think. And, and then on top of that, like um, you're talking about serving people and helping people and I, more than anything, just wanted a machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> Did you so were you, you you mentioned that that religion was part of your life what yeah. what you know what religion did you get obviously that must have come from home because you were homeschooled yeah. so it was your parents what sort of religious view did you all have what was it 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 was it was the i think the deepest um truest meaning of religion itself which is is that real religion is is love cultivating a loving relation personal loving relationship with god and so the the backdrop on that which is um i appreciate so much not having not not understanding kind of what is sectarianism um as as a as as a kid growing up at all my mom grew up in a methodist family my dad grew up in a catholic family um, my dad went to seminary for a while. He thought he wanted to become a priest and, and both in their own ways, um, ended up coming to a point separately and then later together in, um, wanting more than they were getting from the, the religious or spiritual practice that they had, that they had grown up with. And like for my dad, he, he's told me how, um, in the seminary when he went, you know, as a kid, he had grown up memorizing a verse, I think, or, or, a, or a prayer that said uh, something like, in order to be happy, one must know, love, and serve God. And so as a kid, he's thinking, okay, know, love, and serve God. In order to love, like the first step of that is you have to know God. How can I know God? so that I can love and serve him. And he asked one of the, the priests at the seminary that question, like, where can I, where and how can I know more about God? And um, the priest kind of patted him on the head and he said, you know, this is a mystery, my, my child, this is a mystery. And so for my dad, it was like, well, I don't, like, that doesn't compute. How do you, how do you love someone if you can't know who they are? And so he, like, even as, I don't know, he was a teenager, I think, at the time, and that, that kind of planted the seed of that hunger for more knowledge and that more, uh, you know, having the depth of that personal um, relationship with God. And, and ultimately, um, they both found their ways, again, through different paths to 
um, looking at you know Eastern spiritual practices and meditation and and found um, scriptures and teachings um, based in uh, the the Vedic scriptures which come out of India and, and Hinduism, but that are also not sectarian. Like you don't convert into Hinduism or you don't convert out of it. They're uh, timeless kind of universal spiritual teachings of bhakti yoga, something called bhakti yoga and karma yoga, bhakti yoga being um, a spiritual practice in, in seeking to live your life in in loving service to God and karma yoga. If people are familiar with the word karma, um, which really means action and karma yoga meaning um, doing your best to take actions that have a positive impact to be of service to others. And so those those are the spiritual practices that, that I have in my life um, and that I was introduced to from, from a really young age. So it's not, it, 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 to answer, this is a very long answer to your question, but it's not about, like it wasn't, like we at, at you know, when we went to bed, my mom would say the Lord's Prayer and read stories about, you know, Krishna from the Bhagavad Gita. And, you know, we'd watch Jesus of Nazareth like 1,600 times because that was one of the few movies we were allowed to watch as kids growing up. <laughs> and, um, you know, celebrate, celebrate, um, uh, celebrations like John Mastami, which is which is the the celebration of the appearance of Krishna in this world over five thousand years ago, and celebrate Christmas and set up the nativity scene and sing Christmas carols. And there was never ever any any sense of uh, contradiction or having to choose one or the other. You know, we go to mass with my grandmother when she came to town. We go to and and there was no contradiction because frankly, when you get right to the heart of it. Once you get past all the all of the unfortunate um, like bureaucracy and divisiveness that that exists too often that create conflict amongst people of different spiritual practices, you just get to the heart of it. What is it? It is about loving God. And whether you call God Krishna or Allah or Jehovah, God has many names. There's one God. He has many names. And uh, it doesn't matter. None of that. None of none of the the superficial matters if in your heart, um, you're doing your best to love God and to serve him. And so that's, that, that I'm grateful to have been able to realize myself from a, from a, a, a relatively young age and knew that that is how I wanted to live my life. So how did you end up with, so, so you have this really kind of heavy spiritual background. Mm-hmm. What, what, where where were you grounded to like interacting with other kids mm-hmm. who were jerks yeah. and you, you know <laughs> it seems like you could be sort of a a, a little bit sheltered in this world I, I could be totally wrong but it seems like if that's the way you're raised and all of a sudden you know you go down to the market and someone says you know get out of my way you you know you little brat or whatever mm-hmm. how do you what was the what was how did the rest of the, how did you interact with the rest of the world when you were in this stage of yeah, your life yeah you know we weren't i, I we weren't we weren't sheltered or kind of closed off. Um, we had a lot of you know there's a lot of kids in the neighborhood and um, we we you know oftentimes like my mom was the head cook at the restaurant and so she'd go in at like two in the morning to start cooking and we'd go in with my my sister and I'd go in with my dad a little later on we'd do school in the office with him and then spend the rest of the day like either wiping tables or hanging out with customers and just talking story and 
And um, like that, that was a little bit of a second home for us. You know, did gymnastics, did martial arts, did did all the things. And um, you know, there was no, there was no, um, I don't know, separation so or, or or anything like that. Yeah, no. So it sounds like there was balance, and, and oh yeah, wor- you know, working at a restaurant—that's what I should have put that together. Because when you're working at a restaurant, you got customers, you got people, yeah. people that are happy, people that are sad, people yeah. that are mad, people that are going to tell you to you know go screw yourself, and that your sandwich sucked, and people that are like, oh, this is wonderful, and you get all those people. Yeah. So you learn a lot about the world, and so that's a good—that's a good balance. Very much so. Very much so. So sports, you just mentioned, kind of like no big deal. Martial arts, gymnastics. How into you were? How into you were all? How into all of that were you? Very much so. Um, I loved, I loved gymnastics until I started to suck because I got really like too big. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. <laughs> I started to grow, <laughs> um, and then I I transitioned. I was I was definitely more of a, I you know tried ballet as a little girl too, and me and ballet didn't jive so well. <laughs> so uh, my sister was definitely more of like. The, the 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 ballerina type and I don't know I, I just it was not not so much my my flavor so um, I I definitely gravitated towards martial arts and earliest did um, taekwondo and started learning tai chi and um, uh, Wing Chun and um, Filipino stick fighting Arnis and so got got introduced to a lot of different types of martial arts and I was that kid that was told like, okay, if you wanna like toughen yourself up, you need to go across the street to the park and kick a tree trunk mm-hmm. over and over. It's like, sweet, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I was the kid that, and maybe Echo can relate, I'd never liked wearing shoes and would purposely, like we'd go hiking up a mountain and I'd be like, shoes, shoes are for weak people. I need to make my feet tough because I don't want howly feet. <laughs> so that was that was kind of me <laughs> growing up, and um, and maybe you know having three older brothers who who had a lot of fun um, making me and my sister do really stupid. Uh, Torture is a strong word, but you know we'll call them challenges. Yeah, let's call them challenges. Challenges that really had no good outcome one way or the other for for us. Other than being tough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> other than being tough. Yeah, uh, have you been to Yosemite? I have not. Uh, I forget which hike it was, but you know my son was the same way. Like no shoes ever. Mm-hmm. And we hiked one of the legit hikes at Yosemite. Just a day hike, but yeah. you know many thousands of feet of altitude and many miles of walking. And he did it bare feet, barefoot, <laughs> and people were walking by him, <laughs> and they're just disturbed. They're looking at me like I'm the worst you're dad abusing ever. Your child. He, it, it was literally no factor for him. Yeah. I mean, zero factor because the kid would never wear shoes ever. So that and you know the kid's got tough feet. He can sprint on just gravel. Yeah. You know, That's are your feet funny. still tough? Probably not as tough, just because you know, You've like been, I have to wear like a suit and ugh. heels and all those things Brutal. for work. <laughs> that was an adjustment. <laughs> now your feet are weak. I know. I have work to do. <laughs> <laughs> Where was this, by the way? Where, what part of Oahu did you grow up on? So my sister was born in Wahiwa. And um, that's where we lived then. But most of my childhood was um, in Kalihi Valley, mm-hmm. and and then later later was like uh, downtown Honolulu. 
Mm-hmm. So little little diverse little yeah. little slice of each each of the different kind of cultures and communities on Oahu. Yeah. <laughs> what what year did you graduate then from high school, or graduate mm-hmm. from homeschool? That would have been like ninety seven, I think. Okay. So you get done with high school, then what? What are you doing? Um. So I had started an environmental Cause, nonprofit. Because spirituality doesn't pay the rent, <laughs> unfortunately. So yeah, how'd you work that no, out? I had, um, so I had started, uh, co-founded an environmental nonprofit uh, called Healthy Hawaii Coalition. Um, maybe I was 16 or, or 17, and I was thinking about, I figured out like, okay, you know, we're going and doing beach cleanups on the weekends and every weekend we come back and there's more trash on the beach. Like how do we start to try to solve the deeper problem and, and came up with an idea of, of going and talking to elementary school kids about like, hey guys, here's why you shouldn't like throw your soda can and your chip bag um, on the beach because this is our home, this is our playground and, and here's what happens when you when you do that. And, and I came up with like a... Uh, like a fun little skit called The Adventures of Water Woman. And a friend of mine who's an artist came up with like a workbook and a coloring book for for kids. And I thought elementary because, you know, obviously kids are starting to figure things out. And um, yeah, so we we, we had this, this two-day program. One day was the skit and the workbook. And then the next day we actually took kids out to, to like a field trip and like testing water and understanding like, okay, here's like clean water versus dirty water and why and how it gets contaminated, but in a very simple, practical way that they could really relate to uh, in their lives. And so I was the original water woman, had like the blue board shorts and the cape with the big water drop on the back. And it was so I much want fun. Pictures. <laughs> they exist. There, there may even be a video somewhere. I don't know. but <laughs> So it was water woman and her nemesis was oily Al. And uh, the skit was really a day in the life of Oily Al. And, you know, he'd be out there, like, you know, throwing his trash out on the street or changing the oil in his car and then dumping the dirty oil down a storm drain, you know, dumping a bunch of pesticides in his garden. And and every step of the way, um, you know, Water Woman comes in just in the nick of time and saves the day and tells Oily (laughs) Al, like, if you dump your dirty car oil down the storm drain, it's going to kill all the fish in the water and you know went telling the kids when you go surfing the water's going to be really gross and it was just the coolest thing to like see all these kids sitting cross-legged on the ground like you know first second third graders and seeing kind of like the light bulb go off in their eyes um, because these were examples that they could understand and and relate to and that was my hope in doing this was that you know it would at least plant a seed for them to understand and appreciate their consequences to your actions. And um, we care very much about our home. And so stop and think for a minute before you do something. Or if you see uncle or auntie like, hey, auntie, don't throw your trash out the car window. <laughs> <laughs> and and be able to start to make more of a, you know, I don't know behavioral kind of change and impact um, to protect our home. Did you get these? Now, was your dad? Your dad was in politics at some level in Hawaii, wasn't he? He, he, um, he, and I. My, the, so the first person in our family who ran actually ran for office was my mom. She ran for board of education. Um, I think it was in yeah, it was in two thousand. 
Oh, okay. So, and so the Water Woman, that was just pre predated that. Yeah, that's just. But that's what inspired me. Eventually, like it got to a point where, and 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 uh, Healthy Hawaii Coalition still exists today. There are other Water Womans have have who've come after me, um, <laughs> <laughs> but she's still out there. <laughs> But it got to a point where I, I, so I started going to community college and um, with the aim of working in the TV and film industry, um, Leeward Community College, and uh, started in the TV and film production course out there and then was gonna transfer to a mainland school um, to be able to continue, continue that kind of education. Um, but a couple of things happened. Uh, my financial aid package fell through and I couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm to come to the mainland and so and then the other thing was just um uh, there there was a an open uh seat in the state legislature where i lived and i i i you know i i started to think about okay um i have an opportunity here to stand on the outside and there were other things you know we we they wanted to build a, a huge landfill over one of our biggest water aquifers in hawaii all of our, our water comes from groundwater so you know, I and a whole bunch of other people, we went out and got petitions and we organized and, and ultimately, thankfully, we were able to get that that project canceled. But it it got as far as it did because of a politician who was kind of in the pocket of the landfill company. And so I started to think, you know, I can I can stand on the outside and hold a sign or circulate a petition or I can try to put myself in a position of influence and decision making to um, directly impact a lot of these environmental issues that I really cared a lot about. And that's what led me to uh, run for state house in 2002. Uh, my How dad, old were you? I was 21. And my dad, that was the first that my dad ran for city council that same year. So it was kind of, it was kind of fun for us to share. So he ran for city council out in Waianae. Mm-hmm. And I was running for state house in Eva Beach. And so our districts, like, they, they didn't overlap really, but they were adjacent to each other. But Every morning it was like, okay, my mom would pack a lunch and um, uh, send him out. And, and I went out and we were sign waving every day and knocking on doors every day for, for months. Um, but that was, that was both of our introduction into running for office uh, at, at the same time. And it was, for me, it was a totally, it was a totally foreign experience because I had no you know, formal education in it. I was not a part of a debate team, had not been trained to public speak in any way at all. Um, and on top of all of that, total 100% introvert. Like, you know, I had my circle of friends growing up, but I was, I was so shy and I was fine with it because I just hung out with who I wanted to hang out with. But anybody outside of that, I would not, um, it, it, I wouldn't talk to people. I'd make my sister go out and talk to people and uh, I'd read books and do my martial arts and, and yoga and just do, do my thing. And so to then put, choose to put myself in a position where I'd have to learn how to give speeches, I'd have to figure out how to pick up the phone and call total strangers, which was anxiety inducing in and of itself, but not only do that, but ask them like, hey, would you like to donate to my campaign <laughs> for state house? To then go like, I, I never forget the first day I went to go knock on doors. Like I knew enough about, 
I'd, I'd done enough research to know, okay, if I'm going to run for this seat, I'm going to run to win. And in order to do that, I have to convince this many people to vote for me in order to win this race. And so I had, I had the math figured out and I had the voting list, people's addresses and names. And, um, literally got on the computer, made like this black and white kind of janky brochure <laughs> saying this is who I am. And so I had, you know, copies of that that I went and made at the copy shop. And and I sat in my car. It's like a aqua colored Geo Metro, two-door Geo Metro um, on old Eva Beach Road in, in Waipahu. And um, it took me about 30 minutes in the car to summon up the courage to go knock on that first door. And I was terrified, absolutely terrified, just thinking of every scenario that could possibly go wrong, <laughs> but also like, what are the first words that need to come out of my mouth? <laughs> and then what if they ask me this question? What if I don't know the answer? Just all of these different things. And and you know, like one knocked on the first door and like this wonderful old Filipino lady answered the door and she's like, hey, how are you? wonderfully kind and offered me a glass of water and like the whole thing's like oh my god okay then went through the whole scenario all over again for the next door mm -hmm. whole scenario like every single door was was a major obstacle uh for me and and ultimately like why put myself through this and and how did i get through it it, it really just it, it that groundedness and and the ability to step way outside of anything I was comfortable with came from um, that that desire to serve and knowing that ultimately keeping reminding myself ultimately like why do you care so much about yourself this is not about you if you wanted to do something for yourself you would certainly not be doing this you'd be out surfing right now and um, and that was that was my introduction into uh, into elected politics so you won. Did your dad win? I won, and he won. Yep. And my mom, my mom was serving. She served one four-year term in the Board of Education. So for two years, from 2002 to four, um, the three of us were all like in serving in different buildings, all in the same kind of you know quarter, quarter mile, quarter square mile area in, in Honolulu. It was, it was fun. And and obviously. You liked it at some level. You liked the impact that you were able to have because you, you carried on with this sort of yeah it, it, life. I never once thought, you know, when I won that election, it was a five-way Democratic primary first that I had to get through and then a general election that I got through. Um, I, I, yes, I liked the impact, but I never once thought that I want to have a career, quote unquote career in politics. I was absolutely not attached to that. I thought, okay, hey, this is something I can do now and I'll make the most of it. And then, you know, we'll see, we'll see where it goes. Um, and I ended up serving just one term um, there because of um, Iraq. So when did you, when did September 11th happen? Or where, so I was, where were you at yeah, the time? So I was, I was um, just starting my, my campaign uh, to run for the state house when that happened. And at what point did you decide you wanted to enlist in the, the, the National Guard in Hawaii? I, I 
knew in some way um, when 9-11 happened, and obviously we're in Hawaii, you know, we're six hours behind New York on that day. So we woke up to turning on the news and it had already happened. Um, and, you know, I think like, like everybody in our country, it was, it, it, um, it deep, it, it's, it deeply impacted me in a way that I felt almost right away that I wanted to do something to, to, to go after and defeat the terrorists that attacked us then. Um, I just didn't quite know exactly how to do that because I was, I had already made a decision to pursue this particular path of, of being able to serve Hawaii. And, um, so eventually, eventually I felt that, that I had learned about the national guard and what it's about and, you know, serve your state in its time of need, but also be ready to stand up and serve your country. And, and, uh, decided to enlist in early 2003 because I felt that would be a way that I could accomplish both objectives, essentially. Did you have familiarization with the military because of your grandfather that had spent his whole career in the Army and in the Air Force? Or were Not you... really. Uh, just, just through stories. Um, he passed away while I was still relatively young, and, and because they, he and my grandmother lived in Samoa, we didn't get a ton of time together. Um, my dad had, had, and his high school best friend had tried to enlist to serve in Vietnam. They had both gone to, um, I I guess it would have been MEPS or some Mm -hmm. sort of version of it. And they both walked in together and went into different rooms to go through all the medical exams and stuff. He wanted to be a medic. And, uh, when they came out, my dad had been rejected, um, for medical reasons it may have been flat feet or something like that. And he was, he was totally heartbroken, but his best friend came out and was enlisted. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up going and, and, and serving uh, in Vietnam. But it was something that my dad always wished that he had um, been able to do just to, to be able to serve. And so um, that, was pro- that was pretty much the most of my personal no, no one else in my family. My, my, some of my uncles had served, but again, we're in Hawaii, so like we don't, you know, they, mm. we don't get to see them or hang out with them that much. So, so you show up to boot. You go to boot camp. Yeah, Where so was boot I, camp? I had, I was in the state legislature at the time, and so I had to, I, the, I, you know, took the ASVAB and everything. The recruiters like, yeah, you can, you can have whatever job you want. Just tell me what you want to do, and literally made the decision as like, look, my session is done on this date, and then I got to be back by this date. So find me a basic training and an AIT that can fit within these, like this five month period. I got to knock it all out Mm -hmm. at once. And so I ended up uh, in a um, like medical, uh, I don't know, operations or something Mm -hmm. like that because the AIT was only seven weeks long. I was like, oh, I want to do like, uh, was it combat journalism or something like that? But you got to go to school for six months or whatever. But so I shipped out right after the legislative session was done. I enlisted on the uh, actually on the, the floor of the state house, and um, went to Fort Jackson in the summer of 2003. Um, managed to um, not get noticed 
by the drill sergeants for my political job until like week seven of nine, which I was pretty happy about. <laughs> and only got found out because um, uh, me and my my assigned battle buddy, um, we were pulling duty at like the battalion headquarters one afternoon, uh, like watching the door, or whatever it was. And the battalion sergeant major walked in and did what sergeant majors do. Uh, like, hey privates, how are you? And where do you come from? And what'd you do before you joined the army? And you know, that whole conversation. And so he talked to my battle buddy first and she told him, she, I think she was from the Midwest. And she's like, yeah, so you know, I was working at McDonald's and decided to join the military and this is what I wanna do. And he's like, oh, you know, that's great. It's great. Yeah. And what about you? It's <laughs> like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm from Hawaii. and. Um, I'm a state representative there and you know, this is what I want to do. And, and he just looked at me. He's like, you wait, you, you said what <laughs> you, you do what? He's like, how come I don't know about this? He asked me that. How come I don't know about this? It's like, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, you know, the in processing paperwork that says, what is your civilian occupation? I, I wrote it down and, and turned it in, but you know. Who's your drill sergeant? <laughs> and I knew it was trouble. all downhill. <laughs> you definitely all downhill for there. me from there. <laughs> going from Hawaii, going from like the kind of cruising mode of Hawaii. Yeah. Which I know it sounds like there's there's a little bit of well, there's there's also like this whole competitive thing with your family and you're obviously were driven because you're out creating these things and running for offs and all this. But I mean, all of a sudden you're in boot camp. Mm -hmm. Was it a shock? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. I, I'd be worried if if it wasn't a shock. Mm. Um, but I, I'm really, you know, I, I'm happy that I went in with the perspective of at least just understanding that whatever the madness is, there's a purpose to it, and don't get. I, I, I just. I've never. I've always been a pretty chill person, mm -hmm. and I don't get freaked out by that much. And um, yeah, so I, I actually, in a very weird and twisted way, really loved it. Mm -hmm. It was, it was it, the the camaraderie and the kind of bond that that is built in a very short period of time with a whole bunch of strangers from all over the country, knowing that and appreciating that, like all of us are there for the same reason. All of us are there for the same purpose. Whatever the motivating decision was to enlist, really didn't matter. That. Um, you know, we, we all wore the same uniform and, and all, all on the same team. It was, it was, I loved it. How long after you got back from boot camp and AIT was it that you went on your first deployment? Came back home at the end of 2003 from training and then the 29th Brigade Combat Team from the Hawaii National Guard was activated. I wanna say um, the notification came out in the summer of 2004. I was campaigning for my reelection mm -hmm. at that point in time. And um, remember going in and, and uh, it, it, taking a break from knocking on doors, knocking on doors again. And uh, I got an email at home, checked my email at home and, and uh, got the notification of the deployment. But uh, I, was not on the, I was not on the deployment roster because they, they already had somebody who filled you know, that job in the medical, um, in the field medical company. And so I immediately called my commander and just said, Hey, like what's, what's the deal here? I don't see my name on the roster. 
And he said, Tulsi, congratulations. Like, you get to stay home. You don't have to go. And um, that bothered me a lot. And I, I just said, no. Um, I, I, I just, you know, I, I knew that there was no way I could stay back. And that to, you know, sit in my office in the state capitol and watch everybody leave was not an option for me. And so I, I continued the conversation with my, my, my commander and I just said, sir, um, I'm going. Tell me what job I need to get trained in that you need filled so that I can go. And that's, that's, that's what happened. So I, I, I kind of, I, I publicly withdrew from my reelection campaign. It was too late to take my name off the ballot, but told everybody like, I'm not, I'm not running for reelection, um, volunteered uh, to fill this position. And we left, restarted our active duty train up. Uh, I think it was in August of, of that year of 2004. And then we were in country in j- early January, 2005. What job did you get trained for? What job, what billet did you fill? Um, uh, it was medical logistics, um, so supply, mm-hmm. um, which, as and you know. And you're a specialist at this point? Yeah, I was an E4. That's <laughs> kind of a fresh E4. <laughs> 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 um, and uh, as, as you know, like, okay, yeah, I, filled, I filled the position, but once we actually got there, I ended up becoming, um, I ended up filling uh a position that was previously held by an E7 um, as the brigade surgeon operations mm-hmm. person. And so kind of was working, you know, like line of duty paperwork and injuries and um, tracking supplies for all of our medics and docs and PAs who were uh, attached to all of like the infantry units and 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 also uh, every day just tracking, um, going through going through the the report every day for our uh, our, our brigade commander of of looking f- name by name down this list of of casualties that had occurred in the previous twenty four hours, to f- see if there was anyone there from our nearly three thousand person um, brigade and make sure that they were getting taken care of, whether in country to stay in country or getting them evacuated and then, and staying with them and tracking their care every step of the way until eventually um, they made their way home. Where were you actually stationed in Iraq? We were in uh, Balad in LSA Anaconda. Uh, most of us were there. That was kind of the base. And then we had units in Camp Victory in Baghdad and in a couple other kind of smaller fobs out um, in different areas, and, and so I moved around. I, I moved around a little bit, kind of going out and visiting some of our, our units and checking in on them um, where they, you know, where they were. But that was that was primarily where I spent most of the time. And how did you? What was that deployment like from you know your perspective now, looking back? What kind of lessons did you bring back? What did you learn from that from that deployment to Iraq? A lot, yeah. I I came back, um, and and my family told me this after. I, I don't think I fully realized how much I had changed, um, but it was something that they immediately noticed in um, in in coming back. Just more sober and more focused. Uh, and that, that really came from, you know, I, I talked a little bit about how 
realizing from a young age, like death can come at any moment. Well, that's, that's a philosophical realization and being there that became very real, very quickly. Um, and you know, there, there was, have you been there? Did you ever pass through there? When I went to Balad, I'd be there for like 20 minutes yeah. and go to a meeting and leave. So yeah. I barely remember anything and about Balad. Did you come in on like vehicle or Helicopter. bird? Yeah. Yeah. So there was, there was within the first couple of days of, of us arriving there, it's a big camp, yeah. massive. And so, you know, I kind of was going out and like, okay, orienting myself, where's everything at? And I noticed right away at, at the north gate of that camp, at least at that time, I don't know if it's still there, but there was a big, there was a big, huge sign that someone had put up on, you know, that you would see every time you leave camp out through the north gate, which is where most of our patrols um, use that gate that the sign read is today the day. And I just remember being stopped in my tracks and just taking a minute to, to, to take that in and the meaning of it so that none of us would ever forget that today could be the day. And um, that, that was the welcome message. And it really... It, it hit home so much um, in in that daily task that I had of of actually seeing names of people who I never knew, people in different parts of, of who were serving different parts of the country, but also people who I did know, whose names would pop up on that list every single day that I went through, and recognizing again how precious life is, and any 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 day, any moment. Um, you know, that, that could be your last. And then of course we, we had, uh, unfortunately, you know, we lost, we lost a lot of people during that deployment. And, um, to me, it, it, it really, it, it changed everything for me because ultimately coming home, I knew there was absolutely no way that I could just go back to the life that I had left behind as though I didn't just experience it. Like the people are like, oh, you're going to go back and run for your seat in the state legislature. You're going to pick this up and kind of like hit the play button on my life that had been paused. And it was impossible. I didn't even think about it because I knew that somehow this experience that I had had, I wanted, I wanted to do something um, positive with it uh, in, in being able to impact the kinds of decisions that took us all to that war uh, in the first place. So then, so then, what was the next move when you get home? It's two. Is it now two thousand six? Two thousand six. Yeah. When so you we get were home. in country for a year, and, uh, and then you know had the demobilization when we came back, and uh, so it was two thousand six. And I was trying to figure out, okay, what what am I going to do? There was no obvious answer to the question that I was asking, which was, how can I, you know. How can I take this and turn it into something positive? Um, ultimately, I ended up volunteering. Our, our One of our U.S. senators from Hawaii at that time, um, Senator Akaka, was being challenged in a primary election, which kind of unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the power of incumbency is, is very real. Plus, he's like the kindest, most aloha guy you will <laughs> ever, ever meet in your entire life. No one has a bad thing to say about him, but he got this challenge that came out of nowhere, and 
I didn't know him at all personally. I had no personal relationship whatsoever. Um, the guy challenging him, um, I did have some some interaction with um, that was not positive, and so I was I was like, okay, I'm going to go volunteer full time for Senator Kaka, <laughs> make sure that that um, that he wins his reelection. Uh, and he did, and he, I don't know if he was already, or I think he was, after the reelection, he became the chairman of the U.S. Senate uh, Committee for Veterans Affairs. And so um, after volunteering on the campaign, his chief of staff said, hey, do you want to come and work in Washington and um, as a legislative aide and, and help him with that work on the committee and, and, you know, environment and energy, natural resource, a few other areas. And so that's what I did. Um, I ended up going and, and working with him in Washington for a couple of years. Um, went through OCS while I was there, and um, how did you get an OCS billet? Did you graduate college somewhere along the way? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that part. <laughs> I was working. Uh, I was. I was um, while in Iraq working on my degree. Got it. Going in the education center tent and you know, like, okay, sometimes you got mortars coming in and the alarm sounds, you gotta go in the bunker and come back out and so yeah, I was I was continuing my education while I was there. Um and I had gotten just enough credits. You needed sixty credits to go to OCS and I had just enough credits <laughs> to go. And I was still working on my degree when I was in DC and I was, you know, working there and so I was kinda working full time and doing school at night. Um but yeah, slid in, slid in, uh, and then got, I think you needed 90 credits to get your commission <laughs> or uh, something like oh, that. Oh, so you still had to keep squeaking them yeah, out. So, yeah, so I, I just, uh, I barely squeaked by. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, so you go to OCS, is it anything anything shocking about OCS, anything that was? I loved, I, I, I knew obviously OCS is to train leaders, but I didn't know going in, um, the depth of that. I mean, that was why I, that was why I wanted to go through OCS. When I graduated from basic training, I was like, I want to be the sergeant major of the army one day. All about it. And then, you know, I got a deployment under my belt and got to witness some some examples of of great leadership. Also, some examples of leaders that were lacking in in a lot of areas, and, and especially in a deployed deployed setting in a dangerous way. And um, that was that that made a major impact for me coming back to say, okay. You know, I same thing. Like, I can complain about having shitty leaders, or I can actually go and try to be, be a, a good leader of soldiers. And and I love, and I tell kids who come and ask me, like, hey, I think I want to join the military, become an officer. Very biased. Yes, you can go do the West Point thing, and that's great. Highly, highly, highly recommend OCS because it is it is intense. It is relatively short. And it is just like it is. It is the essentials of provide. It provides you with the essential tools to to begin your leadership uh, path. And I just I loved it so much that I ended up going back as a TAC officer after I had gotten a deployment as a platoon leader under my belt. And then I loved it even more. <laughs> <laughs> how long is OC, how long is Army OCS? So there's the active duty army OCS at Fort Benning, which is I think three, maybe between three and four months. Um, uh, I went through an accelerated National Guard uh, OCS in Alabama. 
uh, at Fort McClellan that uses the same program of instruction as the, as the Fort Benning program, but just condenses it down to, I think it was maybe 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. And the, like, you know, the difference is like they, they get weekends off at Fort Benning. Mm-hmm. Like they get to use computers and phones and shit like that. And mm-hmm. we got none of that. It was, it was seven days a week, you know, 4 a.m. to midnight. Um, all op orders, like no access to technology whatsoever. So everything you were doing, it was like you're writing it, you're writing it, your your six page op order yourself, and um, you know it sucked as you're going through it, of course. But you know I, I'm old enough now. I'm approaching 18 years now in in the Army Reserves, and uh, so I'm like one of those old people who's like, man, you guys got it so good now. <laughs> Back in the day. <laughs> Back in the day. (laughs) Um, You uh, so then you go on another deployment, and this time you go to Kuwait. Yeah, you're in Kuwait that time. Yeah, yeah. We were. um, It was a different. It was a different mission for the brigade, and kind of each of the battalions were tasked out in in a lot of different areas. A lot of our our infantry battalions or cav battalions were doing convoy security from within Kuwait in and out of Iraq. my platoon was attached to a field artillery battalion and we were we i and I, i'm so grateful for this but we were we were physically located very very far away from the flagpole um and and the big bases that that exist in kuwait so we were within a uh, an active kuwaiti naval base hmm. and right on the water which you know it's my gig <laughs> i gotta be close to the water if i can um but our our main mission um the artillery battalion had a kind of a force protection mission, but my platoon, uh, we had had two things. One was kind of security, um, like like high level security. If we had VIPs coming into Kuwait, or and we worked with the embassy a lot, we did a lot of stuff in and around the embassy. So like PSD, like mm-hmm. personal security. Um, you know, we did security for a lot of the the ammunition movements from the ports to where they had to go. Uh, and then also um, we did, I had a training mission, which was the, which was the, the fun one for me. It was being able to go and train the, the Kuwaiti army on, you know, marksmanship, hmm. um, basic, you know, how to clear a building. Uh, what do you do if you're dealing with uh, like a civil disturbance or a riot? Tactical like riot Tulsi. <laughs> I like it. Tactical <laughs> Tulsi teaching the room clearances. Hell yeah. It was, it was, it was interesting for me, though, because, um, you know, I, I, platoon leader for an, a military police platoon in Kuwait, mm-hmm. where I didn't realize until we got there, they don't allow women on their bases at all. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you're the general's wife or you're a janitor. There are no women. What if you're Tulsi Gabbard? Tulsi Gabbard showed up <laughs> and I really didn't know when we rolled up like that first day to go in and, and meet the unit and meet the unit commander um, obviously I'm in uniform and my hair is up I got you know big ball of hair on the back of my head and I didn't know what they were gonna do at the gate did you have other females in your platoon I had I had um, two two females in my platoon there were, um, one was an e3 and one was an e4 the rest were, you know, these are guys who are working state, local, or federal law enforcement, mostly mm-hmm. at home in their civilian jobs, and just about all of them had uh, at least one or two deployments under their belt, and so they're they're seasoned, experienced guys. Um, but yeah, so I, I showed up, I showed up on day one, and you know, kind of showed my ID card at the gate, and the gate guard was 
didn't really know what to do, but (laughs) he saw, you know, he saw the American flag and he was like, well, okay, (laughs) go ahead. And, and so, uh, my, I was, my partner in this was a a master sergeant at E8 and, um, super, super cool, easygoing guy. And, and so we went and we started to, uh, we got introduced to the, the guys that we'd be training. We ended up doing a number of iterations of different groups of guys, but, um, you know, kind of went down the line, shaking hands and saying hello. And uh, there was probably half of the Kuwaiti guys who I was invisible. Mm-hmm. There certainly was no shaking of hands, certainly no eye contact or even acknowledgement that I was standing there. And, you know, okay, got it. <laughs> Challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you go from like, I don't exist in your universe to actually being able to help provide you with some instruction and, and develop the rapport necessary to be able to do that. And, um, you know, so I, I kind of drawing from maybe the Aloha in Hawaii of just recognizing, Hey, you know, we're, we're different people, different backgrounds, different language, different culture, different everything. But I respect, like, I respect you. And, um, I'm going to treat you with that aloha, that respect. And um, gradually I started to see the ice kind of started to thaw. And ultimately, you know, when we're out on the range and I'm walking up and I'm telling them like, hey, like, okay, here's this like basic safety things. And <laughs> and then like, okay, I'm going to show you how to do it. And oh, then, dang. you know, um, gradually it got to the point and I knew I, knew I had made progress. We sat down for lunch and they started to share their lunch with me. <laughs> is <laughs> all like food food is food is the ultimate you know bridge builder and i knew once you we were like hey like yeah here try my food like oh yeah oh awesome like cool yeah that's really good and it, it got to the point where um on on their graduation day of that first group their commander had everybody in the room everybody was seated there you get in there getting all the graduation certificates and everything and um, their commander asked me to come forward and presented me with this uh, plaque of appreciation and thanks. And uh, some of the, there were some American civilians who were also working that um, that mission, and and they had been there longer than we had. And they said Tulsi afterward, they're like Tulsi, I hope you understand what a big deal that was for this Kuwaiti military officer. Um, you know, the traditional bearded Muslim man to recognize the accomplishments of a woman and uh, i i was very grateful um to have been able to experience experience that and recognizing the bigger significance that you know not so much about like well this is about women's rights or empowerment but more so about how to overcome seemingly um, impossible barriers to get to a place where you have mutual professional respect and understanding uh, and and the power of that alone. And there are obvious parallels that we could point to in today's oh, yeah. world here yeah. in America, but. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, that's, that's, a, that's an awesome story. And lately I've been talking a lot about the fact that if you want respect, you gotta give respect. Mm-hmm. If you want people to listen to you, you gotta listen to them. If you want to have influence over people, you've got to allow them to influence you. And if you want to build trust with people, you've got to trust them. Yes. And it's interesting, um, you know, you kind of captured, well, at least for sure, the respect part is 
aloha, right? Mm -hmm. It's the aloha spirit of, hey, you know what? You're a little bit different than me, but it's all good. We'll figure it out. And that way of building relationships is so much better than you saying, hey, look, I might be a woman. You might not think I'm here, but I am a second lieutenant in the United States Army, and you will. Like, okay, good luck with that. You never would have made any progress at all. None. And and so uh, taking a little... A little bit of aloha, apparently with a little lunch as well, mm-hmm. goes a long way over time. Yeah. And, and and people want to be confrontational because it seems like, well, it's the least offensive thing to your ego, right? When when someone looks at you or doesn't look at you, treats you like you're not there, that's, that can be a blow to your ego that your ego can't, can't repress it. Mm-hmm. It just has to come out. Your ego has to say, you will look at me, damn it. You know, I am Tulsi. Listen to me. You have to listen, and and all those things. Even though it seems like it would be, you know, this direct. I just need to be direct with them and tell them that I. And it's like, okay, I'm telling you that 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 attitude doesn't work. And look, we're talking about a pretty serious cultural divide. Yeah. But it happens with everything. It happens if you and I are trying to figure out how to execute a mission, and you think we should do it one way, and I think we should do it a different way. And I tell you, well, Tulsi, that's because you don't, you haven't done this kind of operation before, or because you you haven't been in as long as me, or because you don't, you you went to OCS and I went to West Point, so therefore I know. But all those things are wrong. All those things are going to make it harder for us to come to a good, an actual good, the best possible decision, which yeah. is what we want. So, putting your ego in check, add a little aloha to that, mm-hmm. and and we can actually make some progress. And and unfortunately, you know, it's kind of like what I started off talking about. You know, if you have an idea about something, I have an idea about something. And my my default mode is to say you're freaking wrong. Mm-hmm. How are we gonna have? How are we gonna talk about it? Right. How are we gonna actually figure out what to do? No, you stay on your side, and I'll stay on my side, and we won't do anything, mm-hmm. which is a freaking nightmare. Yeah, and that's where that's where I see um, the parallel in that experience with the aloha that that I strived to bring every day to my work in Washington is you start with, you know, finding that common ground, even with such incredible stark differences that that are real, you start with, okay, what what is what is the common ground that we can stand on comfortably together, coupled with what is our shared objective? What is the thing that we are trying to accomplish and recognizing that whatever your personal feelings may be, however strong they may may be, what your views are. Ultimately, if you can find some commonality in both of those places, then you recognize that it's not about you. It's about this shared goal and purpose that you have. And then, like, you'll find a way. You'll figure it out. Again, this is another thing I've been talking a lot about lately is if you and I can get aligned, Mm -hmm. we, we can come to a solution. But we sometimes have to go pretty high up the ladder of alignment to get to a point where it actually meets. So we have a mission and you want to attack the target from the left and I want to attack the target from the right. Well, that's that's okay. As long as we both know that we want to secure that target. That's what we want to yeah. do. And then all one of us has to do is put our ego in check for 15 seconds and say, you know what, Tulsi, attacking from the right sounds good. Let's do it your way. Right. Because I, I just want to get to I just want to get the target secured. That's what I want to do. That's that's okay. Where we also get into a problem is agendas. Now you have an agenda where you want your platoon to do it and I want my platoon to do it. Mm-hmm. So then we have to rise above those agendas. Now it's possible 
that our agendas, that your agenda is still aligned with the goal. You want to get the target secure? Great. You want your platoon to do it? You know what? If I can put my ego in check for 15 seconds and say, you know what? Sounds good, Tulsi. Why don't you take your, your platoon can take lead and I'll support you. Right. Sounds good. All I want to do is get the mission done. Exactly. And people run around in circles and attack each other. And worst part, they never make progress. They never make it to the target because they can't even, they can't even come to any kind of agreement. Yeah. That, that's, that, that sounds exactly like one of the first things I was introduced to as a new member of Congress, where I, the, the message was delivered very clearly from the leadership um, within, the, within the Democratic Party, and, and some of my Republicans went through some of the same stuff on their side, so this isn't about one party or another, but the message being like, hey, look, this is about winning the election. And if we're in power, it's about keeping power. If, if we are not in power, it's about how, how do we get it back? And so if there's a bill, for example, that deals with whatever, Let, let's say it deals with transportation, something about as universally agreed upon as you can get, like we need to move from A to B, all of us do. So if there's a bill on transportation infrastructure and it's introduced by a Republican, you're, you're, you don't support that bill. You, you should support one that could be virtually identical as long as there's a Democrat name at the top that's leading that effort because that will allow the Democrat person and the Democratic Party the, to then take credit for it, which will then be put on a brochure or a TV ad that you can use in the next campaign, which will get us closer to getting power or, or uh, maintaining power. And this is where we want run into problems in the world, Yeah, is when ultimately we're not aligned. That, that's where the actual problem comes in, is if you, where you want to go, the target that you want to hit is not the same as the target that I want to hit. Mm-hmm. And then we can't, we can't overcome these problems because we are not going to the same place. They yeah. don't, they don't, they're not the same place. So how are we going to go? We can't be at two places at once. Mm-hmm. We're either going to your place or my place. And that's where we run into a problem when people are saying, well, the main point of us doing this is to get power, not to help American people, not to move transportation in a good direction, but just so we get reelected. And if that's what the goal is, we can't get aligned and it's a problem. And that is exactly where the lack of alignment exists because you have a, a political infrastructure where both political parties are ultimately, and this is not every single person, right. but if you look at the goals of the leadership of both parties, it is about power. So, right, you know, I, I served in Congress for eight years. Um, for the first uh, like half of my time, there Republicans were in charge, Democrats were in the minority, and then Democrats won and took over the House. Democrats are in charge, Republicans in minority, and you just see it play out where whoever's in power is trying to keep power, whoever's not is trying to is trying to take it, and there's no alignment because they're looking out for their own interests for the parties. And they are not ultimately making decisions about what legislation comes to the House floor or what issues are being tackled based on what's in the best interest of the country, which is where that alignment must be. And and it's how our system of governance was set up, that not that you have everybody as part of one party or marching in lockstep or, or having all of the same views, but instead that you bring the diversity of different views, experiences, and backgrounds and ideas by having in the House of Representatives 435 people from all across the country, all elected by constituents in their districts 
who can then bring their ideas where you have debate and conversation. You have bills that, that theoretically go through committee where you can offer amendments and try to strengthen whatever the proposal might be or kill it if it's a bad idea. And then you've got to vote on the floor. Like this is civics 101 that we learn about in school. It, it does not exist in reality though today because instead of figuring out, hey, how do we work out our differences and come to that same goal of like, how do we fix all of the potholes in our roads in Hawaii and all over the country? Okay, we need to invest in some infrastructure. How do we do that? How much money? How is this best going to be executed? Instead, and, and we saw this play out over, you know, when Trump first got elected, I, reporters asked me, what, what do you think, Tulsi, is the one thing, like what's the low-hanging fruit where there were bipartisan um, agreement and work is possible. I and most other people said infrastructure. Every community needs it. Every, um, this is a, a domestic job creator that actually solves real problems that need to be solved. It never happened. There was no infrastructure bill that even really came before Congress for any serious consideration. And why is that? Like the most low hanging fruit that everybody agrees on that objective didn't happen because of partisan differences and an unwillingness to say, okay, yeah, Democrats had a certain idea and a certain dollar amount. Republicans had a different idea and a different dollar amount, but there was never any real good faith, serious effort to say, okay, where can we meet in the middle? What am I willing to give up? What are you willing to give up so that we can actually start to deliver on uh, fulfilling the needs, the very real needs that exist within our communities? So I know you said not everyone mm -hmm. is so entrenched, but what percentage of people are entrenched on the left and the right? I would say most. I would say most, and, and not because they're bad people necessarily, but if you look at the system that exists, the power that the political parties have is massive. And uh, unfortunately, there are too few people who go to Washington willing to uh, buck that power and deal with the consequences of that. And the consequences being, hey, if you don't, if you don't tow the party line, then if you've got a tough challenge in your reelection campaign, we're not gonna help fund TV ads mm -hmm. for you, for example, or we're not gonna deploy resources to support you, or we'll pull you off the committee that, that you're on that you, you really like or maybe we're not gonna consider your bill. Uh, on, uh, we won't allow your bill to come to the floor for a vote. And sometimes these are very direct statements that are made and sometimes they're, they're signals that are sent in an indirect way. And um, so the result of having too few people who are willing to kind of stand up and, and make decisions based on, purely based on, on merit versus the political pressures is you end up having a lot of people who either enjoy and get right into playing the political games um, and are all about it. And then you have other people who maybe unwillingly or, or are even as they are disheartened, but feel like they have no other option than to play the game. And so it, you know, uh, and, and frankly, it's because they see, they see people like me, uh, you know, President Obama was president during, you know, what, two, I came, I was sworn into Congress in 2013, so his first four years, and then I had President Trump as president for the last four years that I was in Congress. And in both cases, you know, if, if there was an issue that I agreed on, whether it was Obama or Trump, I spoke out and said it. 
if there was an issue I disagreed on, Obama or Trump, I spoke out and said it, which is which is 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 kind of heresy in Washington because the expectation is even if it's the same exact scenario, the same exact situation, if it's your person in the White House and you don't like it, you don't say anything. Mm-hmm. But if it's the other party, then I mean, the world is going to end. Look at how this terrible thing. And it's such a blatant double standard and so hypocritical. I think this is one of the reasons why voters are just like, come on. Like, we can see what you're doing. So ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. But, the, you know, they exist within this bubble where the, the it's, I mean, it is. It's, I, I've talked about this before. It's kind of like high school. There is a popularity contest. And it's both... People, it, it, it's this ecosystem where people really care a whole lot about what parties they're invited to or who answers answers their phone calls. Um, as far you're as not, politicians, you're not, I'm just going to point this out because I've heard you talk about this before. You're not saying like, oh, it's like high school where people care about what parties they're invited to. You're saying. People actually yeah. are thinking, well, Tulsi didn't invite me to that party, so yeah. we're going to step on her bill that she put forth. I'll, I'll give you an example. Very, it, it, is, it is literal. It's not like, you know, <laughs> it's not an analogy. <laughs> it's, it's literal. There, there was, you know, in the, in the pre-COVID world and, and maybe even in the pre-Trump world, um, the White House Correspondents Dinner is like the big event of the year. And it is hosted by the media for the media and you only get invited as a politician if someone in the media invites you to go as as your guest. It's kind of like Washington DC's um, Oscars mm. kind of gala type situation. So, you know, it's all of the fancies, everything and Hollywood celebrities fly in for it. And it's, it's like a, it's a really big thing. And um, I, I remember, you know, I, I, I happened to get an invitation to go the first year I was there without knowing anything about what it was. And I was talking to some of my colleagues are like, Tulsi, you got an, in-. like, I've like this guy, my friend, he's like, I've been here seven years and I've never been invited to that. Like hook a brother up <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> and it was so, I mean, it was so surreal to me, especially because having gone from that where I was invited to go to that or, or other things, you know, like the first few years I was there, and then, um, you know, uh, I stopped getting those invitations because like, hold on a second. She's actually like challenging whatever the narrative is or challenging decisions made within her own party or, or saying or doing things that didn't fall within the mainstream of popularity in Washington, D.C. And uh, so I've, I've experienced the arc of mm-hmm. like, okay, you're cool. You seem kind of cool. And like, you know, you're a surfer, you're a veteran, you're this, you're that. And then all of a sudden like, oh wait, hold on. You actually have something to say. (laughs) That's not just whatever literally the emailed talking points are of the day. Then, you know, it turns into something else. Let's, uh, let's, let's rewind it a little bit to when you actually ran. So you get home from in, in what, 2009 you get home? 2009. Um, I, I came back from my second deployment in 2009 and kind of faced a similar um, pivotal decision point on on what to do next. And just like the first deployment, I came back with this same kind of sense of purpose and mission of wanting to find a way to be in a position where I could um, I could help influence decisions or make decisions about our country's foreign policy and about our military and 
um, but didn't know exactly what or how I would do that. I didn't There was no obvious choice. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, I had applied for something called the White House Fellows Program, uh, which I thought would have been a great opportunity where basically it's it's a highly competitive. Have you heard of it before? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's this highly competitive program that ultimately, if selected, you serve for a year as a senior special assistant to a cabinet member or to the president or the vice president. Um, so you kind of, you know, jump in your way up to directly being able to help influence and impact uh, issues. So um, I had applied for that, got through to the regional finals, and then got through to the final final interviews, which was, I think, three days of um, assessment, essentially, uh, which consisted of, you know, we were told, okay, as soon, literally as soon as you arrive there, you're being assessed by the judges. I think there were 12 judges, and ultimately they would choose probably 12 people out of maybe, I think maybe there are 20 of us there. And so whether it was the the welcoming reception uh, or these actual boards, essentially, that, that you would go individually and sit before there's, you know, I think four different um, boards of three judges and, you know, do a and a kind of thing. And, and then there was something that... Um, they gave us an exercise where, where all of us who were there, we had to pull names or positions out of a hat. And so I think the position I got was White House Chief of Staff. Someone else was the president. Someone else was the vice president. And then they say, okay, here's the scenario. I don't remember exactly. It's not like country X has just launched an attack on us. And um, you have, you, you've convened a meeting in the situation room. Uh, execute, like you've got 15 minutes. To prepare and then you go and execute and so role-playing scenario kind of wargaming thing and um and the judges are just standing there watching and just trying to figure out okay what are the dynamics and you know who are the alphas and who's taking charge and who's just like the wallflower sitting on the edge and how do you make decisions thought process that kind of stuff it was it was a really cool experience long story short i didn't get picked <laughs> <laughs> why don't you think you got picked um I don't know. I really don't know. I, I sought out a couple of the judges that I had um, developed a little bit of a rapport with to kind of get some feedback. And and this was part of the thing, like every step of the way, people who were former White House fellows who had given me some mentorship on how to approach the process in advance. And, and some of the judges, like, uh, they were like, oh, you're a shoo-in. You, like, you are exactly the kind of person that this program was built for. And, um, and so I... Um, stupidly had started to believe all of that mm. and, uh, you know, went through it and was careful and did my preparation and went into it. But, you know, in my mind, I had already told myself, like, you got this, like you're in. And then uh, so when I was I was riding the metro in D.C. and I remember getting off at, at Union Station and coming up the escalator and then my phone buzzed with a voicemail. Of course, I was waiting for the call. And uh, the voicemail said, hi, Tulsi, we regret to inform you. (laughs) (laughs) And so for that moment, I was just like, I was was incredibly disappointed, obviously, Um, but then had to reset and be like, okay, so like that's off the table. Um, And so I ended up, I ended up, uh, uh, you know, I I knew that I I was continuing to see what what, what can I do. And I ended up running for uh, and getting elected to the Honolulu City Council and focusing on those potholes and um, you know trash and sewers and parks and, and law enforcement, 
um, for two years until my former boss, Senator Akaka, retired from the U.S. Senator, announced he was retiring, and the uh, one of the members of Congress said that she was going to run for his seat, which left a, a vacancy in the House, and um, ultimately that's, that's where I made the decision. Um, I made the decision to run knowing that specifically in the United States Congress, I would be exactly where I needed to be to try to uh, influence and impact those decisions. Was it a tough campaign? I mean, it seems incredibly like incredibly tough. Who are, you, who are you going against? There were six people who ran. You know, it, it's strong Democratic state, so the the real election is the primary election, and there were six people who were running in that Democratic primary. But the main person who was kind of the assumed. Um, winner of the election even you know nine months out from the election was a guy who had just run for and lost a, a race for governor but who was also the former mayor of of oahu the city and county of honolulu Oof. and so you know just for some perspective our state has about 1.4 million population around nine hundred eighty thousand of which live on oahu <laughs> And the district that, that we were running for, um, there's there's two members of Congress from Hawaii. One is kind of the urban representative that that has almost the whole south shore of Oahu, the urban, the kind of densely urban populated area. And then the other member of Congress, which was the seat that I was running for, has um, the west side, north shore, and east side of Oahu and all of the neighbor islands. And so I came into this uh, with... I think it was about 2% known name recognition in that district because my city council district was actually in the other, um, it was in the urban part of Oahu. So there was, again, no overlap in those districts. And the guy, you know, the front runner in the race, he had uh, everybody in the state knew who he was. He also had a little bit of baggage Mm. um, that came with having just been the mayor and uh, that's, a, that's a whole other whole other conversation, but uh, so so the the challenge was was pretty great to go from like three like three percent against one hundred percent, and somehow I had to try to cover that gap. Um, and I just you know I remember meeting with with some some of the the political um, you know elders mm-hmm. for lack of a better word in Hawaii and letting them know that and people I had decent relationships with, letting them know that I was going to run and and why and um, getting a lot of patronizing responses mm-hmm. back saying, you know, Tulsi, you're, I think I was 30 at the time, 31. You're young. You have no chance <laughs> against this guy. So just, you know, don't waste your time and come back and try again in like 20 years. You'll be great in 20 years. And uh, <laughs> I was like, I don't operate on that timeline. <laughs> so you were like, hold my beer. <laughs> Pretty this. much. Pretty much. Well, did you just go super aggressive? How did? You, how the hell did you make up that kind of distance? Well, so first I, I had to um, fundraising is a huge thing because I needed to be able to have the resources to let people know I existed and who I am. First of all, just my name, period, and then to let them know, you know, my experience and my background and, and why why I was wanting to serve them in Congress. And so, you know, we started out. We started out just like putting signs up around the district and uh, hoping that that would cause for people to say, who's Tulsi Gabbard? Like, wh- what is this about? And, um, and, and it was, it was a lot of time. 
going and doing what, what I called the most extensive job interview ever, where I went and traveled to each island and spent a lot of time in communities with individuals, with groups, small groups, large groups, introducing myself to them uh, and answering their questions and letting them know why I wanted to serve them uh, in Congress, what kind of leadership I would bring, where I stood on on different issues that they cared about. And um, ultimately what happened was well, five months before Election Day, my I, I was pulling at 20% to the front runners, 65, and then the rest was split between the other people. And I was like, awesome, progress. <laughs> so you're 20%. saying there's a chance. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I just, I, I just continued, you know, I, I was, I was on the phone and I was asking people for support and raising money. And then also out on the road, just, you know, seven days a week, all day. And, uh, it was, it was, it was an incredible, incredible experience. Election day comes around, uh, in August of 2012 and all the way up until about two weeks before the election, the local media and even some of the national coverage was just like this guy's, this guy's got it. I had heard from other people. He was already interviewing staff a few months before the election that he planned to hire once he won. Um, our debate, we had one big televised debate. We had a few others, but there was one big televised debate. I, I passed him in the hall um, right before the debate, and he was singing that song, um, Black Eyed Peas, I think. Tonight's gonna be a good night. <laughs> As he looked back at me, and and I will I will um, I have been told I killed it in the debate, and that was where a lot of people first started to take notice. Like, who is she? And um, I think it, I think it may may have caught him by surprise mm -hmm. a, just a little bit, but still, like all the way up until about two weeks before, it was like he's got it. And then some of the polls started to shift. And some of the local news, they were like, Hold, wait, I, this can't be right. These polls can't be right because you can't see a big turnaround. I ended up winning the primary election, going from that 20% five months before to actually beating him by a 22% margin Dang. on election day. And it was... It was uh, people. Tonight's people in DC. Be a good night yeah, for <laughs> <laughs> people in DC. Like the next day, they're like, "Okay, like what scandal caused him to to allowed you to win? Essentially, or what was the thing that you know that happened?" And it was, it was there was none. It was literally, um, I think, the difference between someone who felt they were entitled to the position because of a number of reasons and and me recognizing what the position really is. It's a position of trust and responsibility that is is granted to you by the voters in the state and they are the ones who I'm accountable to and who I work for. And um, it was just, it was, it was a, it was a, the, our local kind of Walter Cronkite anchor of our news station who's been doing it forever, longer than I've, uh, probably for about 30 or 40 years, he's still on, on TV now. He's a Vietnam veteran. And uh, that election night, he was reporting the results and he actually started to get choked up and, and got a little got a little tearful um, because he understood w 
why I was running, bringing that experience of service and, and having been deployed and uh, the significance of that I was going to Congress not for myself, but that I was bringing my brothers and sisters in uniform with me. Uh, and and um, it was... It was it was a heavy night. I mean, it was you know there were parties and things going on, but um, I remember leaving the the hall that night on election night, and my sister was walking out with me, and she's like, "Tulsi, you know, you're, you're allowed to celebrate. You know, you're, you're allowed to be happy about this." <laughs> but I was just I was immediately like, "Okay, all right, these are the results. What are we waking up and doing tomorrow? What what's the next task? What do we have to do now in order to make sure that we we hit our next mark?" And, and that's um, and and that's kind of the the focus that I that I carried with me throughout is you know I'm not entitled to anything and I am here only because the people in in my community in my home state have trusted me to to work for them and to to be their voice and and um, to represent them to the best of my ability. So the the hype of you winning that and come being the being the underdog champ mm-hmm. rolling into D, did that that kind of came to you to DC right yeah. I mean that that hype there's some hype train yeah for some sure. Tulsi hype train mm-hmm. I like saying that <laughs> <laughs> so the Tulsi hype train shows up and you're sort of um, you're viewed. I think it's actually Nancy Pelosi called you like rising star, which yeah. is you seem to hear that. It's not like it doesn't get thrown around. That term doesn't get thrown around about political people. But you were a, like a quote rising star mm-hmm. in the Democratic Party, so you came with some hype. Yeah, I didn't. I I didn't fully understand why, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was there. I, I mean, I had you know she. Uh, I was actually making up drill time with the National Guard after that primary election. Um, I remember being at my unit, and she called my my cell phone. I hadn't I hadn't talked to her before, and she called my cell phone and left a message and um, introduced herself and just said, "Hey, you know, we have a Democratic convention coming up in a few weeks." Um, I would love to have you come and be one of the featured speakers during primetime um, uh, and speak about veterans. Um, let me know if you're interested. And so, uh, again, like that's not an opportunity that one gets when you've just been elected to Congress to go and speak to, I don't know, 50,000 people in an arena in the whole country. Yeah, it's the whole, it's everybody. Yeah, and, uh, and so, you know, I mean, I, I was grateful for the opportunity and and went and um it kind of yeah it, and then you know shortly after getting sworn in as a member of congress i was asked hey will you be vice chair of the dnc and I was like what what does a vice chair do mm-hmm. um what is what is actually that that you're asking me to do and and what what can I do in that Sell situation? your soul. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they're asking you to do. It's freaking weird, right? This is yeah. all they it, they kind of saw you. They saw yeah. a, a a good horse to put money into and invest story, into too. a great story, yeah. and they they wanted to get some control over that hype train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think use you know, be able to say, hey, you know, we, there, there are, I mean, there there are biographical boxes that I checked a lot of boxes for, you know, the, the diversity mm. uh, pick, <laughs> the diversity hire. And, and you know, for me, I'm, I'm you know, just coming into each of these experiences com- 
completely clear eyed and not getting googly eyed at all. Like, oh my God, they love me so much. But just recognizing, okay, like, what do you what are you trying to use me for even? Uh, what what do you get out of this? Mm-hmm. And then for me, thinking, okay, like weighing pros and cons and saying, is this an opportunity that I can use to try to get some some good done? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it is, then okay, that makes sense. Like maybe there's a mutually beneficial thing here. And if there's not, then you know, no thanks. Um, but yeah, that's 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 where that's where things started. So they started off like really awesome. Yeah. Hey, you've got all this hype. You've got opportunities. They're looking at you as a, as a potential kind of horse to put money into Mm -hmm. and invest into as long as we can control you on the track. Right. That that's the fine print. (laughs) (laughs) At what point did you did? When was the first sort of uh, time that you kind of bucked a little bit? Do you remember what it was? Yeah, absolutely. It was my first year in Congress in twenty summer of twenty thirteen. Um, every year in Congress, and I I don't know. I I think this may date back to pre air conditioning days, but every year in August, Congress goes into recess. It's the hottest year of the month. It's you know, DC is a literal, actual, like geographical swamp. Mm-hmm. And um, so you go, you go Check. back to your. <laughs> 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 you, you, so you go back to your district, everybody in the House and the Senate. You, you, there's a recess in August. You go back to your district and you get like four or five weeks at home or to go and do a congressional delegation trip to another country or whatever. It's that, that space and time to do that. And so I, I remember uh, being home. And getting word that President Obama wanted to go and launch uh, airstrikes and a military attack in Syria, and um, I was filling up gas in my car. One, I, I so I started to get a lot of calls from constituents, from people about this, and this is where this is very quickly developing. I don't have all the facts or information or intelligence or anything at that point. But um, people were concerned, and I was filling up. I was filling up gas one day um, in Kapolei, and and a woman who pulled up her car next to me. She saw me there, and she came and walked over, and she grabbed my arm. She's like, "Tulsi, you know my kids in the military. Please don't do this because I don't understand what it's for." And and there was a number of other kinds of messages coming from people just either expressing total opposition or concern and just coming out of like you know Iraq and just every everything that had led to that kind of cynicism and, and fatigue or okay we, you want to go start another war in another country like what what did they do to us and so the recess time was cut short I was on the foreign affairs committee at that time and I was throughout most of the time I was in Congress. Uh, and so we got called back to DC early so that we could go through and get the intelligence briefings and actually get gather the information. And, and that was when I first started to take kind of a deep dive into what was happening in Syria and why he was proposing this. And um, ultimately after going into the issue and the question, and, and really he was not going to come to Congress at first, but then uh, enough members of Congress said you can't like the Constitution does not allow you to unilaterally just start a war. You have to come and get congressional approval for that. 
Um, and so that's what we went back and started to prepare for that, that vote that would happen. And I just, I came to the conclusion after studying the facts that it would be a counterproductive military action. And much of it came from, and we had hearings with Secretary, then Secretary of State Kerry and others at the time who were trying to tell Congress like, well, you know, this is not going to be a pinprick strike, but it's not going to be a decapitation. It's going to be a punch in the gut. And, you know, some of my follow-up questions were like, okay, so you're going to go and deliver a punch in the gut attack. How will they respond? Oh, you know, we, we don't really know, but we don't think it'll be a big deal. Okay. <clears throat> Who are their friends? Who are they going to call for help? And how may they respond? How could this potentially escalate into something that is no longer a punch in the gut, but something that first, second, third, fourth order of effects, their response will require response from us, which require response. And all of, you know, the, the, the tit for tat that then begins once you go over and say, I'm not going to cut your head off. I'm just going to punch you in the gut and think that you're not going to do anything in response. And I just saw so many of the similarities of, of a lack of foresight and strategic planning. And for me, again, as military officer, basic level, like military decision-making process and actually thinking through these things. And I saw a similarity, like this could very easily become another kind of Iraq kind of situation where you start making these decisions and then they're on the fly and then you're not realizing or thinking through what do we do tomorrow and then the next day and and where do we go from here and so I uh, I wrote I wrote like a an opinion piece expressing my opposition to the president President Obama's proposal um, published it and um, was the first Democrat to do so, to express opposition to his proposal, and um, very quickly got a call from the White House, basically saying, how dare you? <laughs> Who in the White House? It was the, um, the first lady's chief of staff. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I still, to this day, scratch my head about why they asked her. I, I knew her, and maybe that was just simply the reason why, but I would think that on a matter like this, you would want to have, I don't know, maybe you know, national security director, mm -hmm. secretary, like, I don't know, somebody. But that was, that was essentially the message is how mm -hmm. dare you. Now, not only as a Democrat, but because like you're from the president's home state, how could you, how could you so publicly disagree with him on oh, something? That's right. You guys should have been Hawaiians. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the thing was Jocko is, is nowhere in that conversation was the substance of the issue raised. Like, hey, here's why we think your opposition is misplaced, or here's what you're not seeing, or here's yep. what, nothing, Yeah. nothing at all. You know, I, I wrote down while you were talking, what's the commander's intent? Like, mm -hmm. what are we trying to do here? Because if you can't tell me what it is, wh why we're gonna do what we're doing, then we need to talk about it more. Yeah. That, that, that's number one. And the, you know, as you just put it, the reason why, why are we doing something? Mm -hmm. Why are we doing it? And by the way, I tell people all the time, if you work for me and we're doing something that you don't know why we're doing it, you raise your hand and you say, hey, Jocko, why the hell are we doing this? And I say, well, here's why. And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I go, please explain that to me then. 
so that I can make a better decision. Because if if I can't get my team on board, then I must be I must not be seeing something. Or I'm not explaining my perspective well enough that they can go, oh yeah, got it, Jocko. Thank you. And we now understand that. Thank right. you. That's number one. Number two, so when you fire off this article, is that a good tactical move for you? In other words, you know, would it may it may it have been a better move to say, hey, listen, I need to talk to you know, you tell your friend, the, the the first lady's chief of staff, listen, I want some clarification. I, I don't want to get crazy here, but look, I just got back from Iraq a few years ago. It gets bad. It gets ugly. We got to make sure we know what we're doing. C- can can we have a further conversation? Because I, I, no one seems to be listening to me right now, and it's a problem. Mm-hmm. I chose to take that public course of action because I had just gone through days of internal discussions, Q&A, expressions of concern, um, and essentially expressed all of those same points of opposition internally to members of the administration and saw that nothing nothing was breaking through and that the answers that they were delivering were pretty canned Mm -hmm. and set and that there was not real there there was not really an interest of of a discussion or a response like of introspection saying hey maybe we're missing mm-hmm. something here and and or maybe we're not communicating clearly or, or you know there th- it was just like this is it this is what we're doing and the why like why what what are you trying to accomplish well we need to send a message okay send a message <laughs> and then what like you can like communications a two way street. <laughs> I can send you a message, but if if I want that message to be effective, like I need to anticipate how you might respond. And so there was I I chose the course of action that that I chose purely because I felt I had exhausted um, internal or maybe kind of back channel means of addressing those concerns. It seems like what did you also sort of had already done an assessment to think like these people don't listen. Yeah. This wasn't this wasn't just one day you decide, you know no. what, that's it, I'm going to fire off this article. No. It's a pre-existing condition mm-hmm. that is when people say, "Hey, I got an issue with this." We get told, "Shut up, get get on board with the program." That's what we're going to do. So you had already experienced that. Yeah, before. so I mean this this it, it in this specific situation, it was not so there were other Democrats who who shared these concerns and Republicans who shared these concerns um, and that were raising these questions within the hearings, both both public and and closed um, hearings. Uh, so it wasn't like, hey, we expect everybody to like. Th- there was not a pressure coming from the Democratic leadership in this example, saying, hey, we expect you to toe the line on this and just support this because it's President Obama. So this was not that kind of situation. There are other examples of that. Um, but yeah, it, it just, it, it was clear, it was clear that the message that was coming from the administration was, was really, um, it was kind of a one-way communication. And, and so I knew enough to know that when, when they're, they're kind of locked and loaded in, in their position, the only thing that may cause them to change or to budge is public pressure. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately what happened. It, it, the public pressure was bipartisan and, and, and reached such a volume that they never even brought 
the vote to Congress because they knew it would be an abject failure. Mm-hmm. And and the 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 military action never happened. And Obama got criticized for that because I don't know if you remember, but he this was like this the was red a red line, line yeah. right? Like okay, and he got vastly criticized by Republicans and I think some Democrats, like how how dare you not enforce your own red line? Um, and I still, you know, I think this was one of um, ultimately the final decision that he made. I it was the right decision because because of all the reasons that I felt it was the wrong decision to, to, to make in the first place, but also it forced him to take a diplomatic path to resolve the issue that he was trying to address. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, hey, like maybe that should have been your first first primary course of action. Yeah, don't paint yourself into a corner. Yeah, That's exactly. A, just like don't, don't put yourself in a situation in a combat scenario where you can't maneuver. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Don't don't put your you know don't don't put your back against a cliff where you can't go anywhere else. Yes. Don't 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 do that. It's not a good move. Yep. It's not a good tactical move. It's not a good strategic move. There, you know this this whole thing when I when I ask you these questions, one of the things that, well, you're gonna I know you, I know you just told me you were reading about face right now. Well, the crux of about spoiler alert mm-hmm. in about face, he ends up at the end of the Vietnam War. Well, it's not the end of the Vietnam War. It's the end of his Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. He goes and gets interviewed and says, "We're gonna lose if we don't change the way we're fighting." And of course, he gets drummed out of the army in a, a matter of months. You know, it's all bad. And the question that I always kind of consider is, well, if he would have kept his mouth shut, he would have had, you know, he would have had a brigade. He would have had a division. He would have had the influence of all many, many more soldiers and much more strategy and and could have perhaps steered the war in a better direction if he would have played the game more. Mm. Now, there's an emotional component to it, which is completely understandable, which is that Hackworth absolutely loved the army, mm-hmm. and he loved his soldiers, and he was seeing soldiers get killed and wounded every single day, and he got to a point where he, it was unacceptable to him. We had a similar thing you know, that you and I were talking about with General Mattis, mm-hmm. and at what point, you know, if General Mattis, who's so highly respected, and just smart and 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 resolute in his beliefs and and kind of unflappable. So it was really nice when he got appointed. I was so happy. I'm like, okay, we got some sanity going on here. We got somebody that's that's rational, right? Very rational guy. And it's at one point it's over. And then you wonder, okay, look, I know it sucked, and I know you didn't like it, but don't you have more influence when you're sitting in the seat? That's a, that's a, that's a an issue that people, leaders, have to deal with on all different levels. You know, I, I talk about it a lot in leadership strategy and tactics, not a lot, but I write a section about it. Yeah. You know, if you're my boss and you tell me, "Hey, Jocko, I want you to do this mission here," and I say, "Well, I don't think it's a good mission." And I think you know it's going to cause casualties, or I don't think it's got a good strategic objective. Or and you say, I, I Jocko, you do what I told you. And I say, but hey, you know, ma'am, it doesn't seem like a good plan to me. And you say, hey, Jocko, shut up and do it. Mm-hmm. Now I can either draw a line in the sand and say I'm not going to do it. And then what do you do? You fire me. You put Echo in charge, and Echo goes goes and does it because he's just a yes man. So now, but I've given up all my influence at that point, which is not good. There's a scene in Band of Brothers. Dick Winters, who gets ordered to do a reconnaissance. It's the end of the war. And he goes, I don't really think that's a good idea. The colonel says, shut up and do it. He goes, okay. He goes and does it. They get a guy killed. They come back the next night. 
the, the, the colonel says, I want you to do another recon tomorrow night. And Dick Winter says, I don't think that's a good idea. The war's almost over. We lost a guy yesterday. And he goes, shut up and do it. And he says, roger that, sir. And they go to a basement and they drink wine. Mm-hmm. What'd you see on the recon? We didn't see anything. Okay, good. You know, he, he went along with it, but he still had some control. And this is just a hard thing. And it's, it's interesting to hear your perspective of, you know, at some point you make a stand. Mm-hmm. And that's where you decided to make a stand. And obviously you lose some influence. After you did that, you lost some, you know, I don't know if how many invites you got to those dinners after you did that. It's probably not a high number. So you give up some influence, but at the same time, you're, you're, you're holding the line on what you believe in. Yeah. And at some point, you've got to do that. I mean, at some point you go, look, Tulsi, I don't care. You want me to do this mission? It's a bad idea. We shouldn't do it. And if you got to fire me, fire me. Yeah. And maybe that's me just trying to send you a message. And you, maybe you say, oh, geez, Jocko's really serious. I must really have a bad, I must really have a bad perspective of what I'm trying to get this guy to do because he's never said no to me. And now he's saying no to me. All right, Jocko, tell me your reasons again. And now we can have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Tough, tough. Those are tough things for leaders to do. Yeah. And then they're, if, if you, I would say this is especially true in politics, but I think it probably applicable across the board is if you know what you are trying to accomplish ultimately what's the greater goal and your goal is not about self-preservation if your goal is not selfishly motivated but instead um you know how how can i serve this this greater purpose that you're obviously there to do then um, you're able to more unemotionally and clearly assess, okay, here, I've got three different options here. Here's where this one leads, here's where that one leads, here's where that one leads, and assess, okay, you know, what, what really ultimately, what is gonna help me get, help, help get me closer to that thing that I'm trying to accomplish? And um, yeah, I've, I've, I've gone through many, many iterations of this as I've made different decisions that had very serious political consequences and that, um, especially the big ones were, were very often the unpopular decision that people were kind of scratch their head. Like what, what is wrong with her? Like she's, she's, she's going and doing things that nobody does. She's going and saying things that nobody will say. Is she crazy or just stupid or what? Um, but if you take a step back, you know, really, who am I accountable to and what is my purpose? If my purpose is to be a part of the, um, to seek the approval of, of the elite in Washington, then I would have made completely different decisions completely from the, from the get go. Uh, and I would have done very different things, but if, my accountability is to, and it is, and and has been to the people who elected me to serve. If my accountability is to our brothers and sisters in uniform, both those who continue to serve, those who have laid down the uniform, and those who have paid the ultimate price, then I'm making my decisions through a different lens and a different context than folks are used to Mm -hmm. in Washington. And it's not to say like, hey, I'm just going gangbusters and I'm going to go run through a freaking brick wall no matter what the consequence. And it, it, it is being clear-eyed about, okay, here, here, are the, here are the potential ramifications to this. 
And sometimes they are known and sometimes they are an unknown factor. But ultimately, these major decision points that I have come across um, do the right thing. Mm-hmm. If you don't, if you don't know, and you're not sure, and all of these are like ultimately, do the right thing, because it's the right thing. And even, even as you may get, you know, um, the, you know, the the political fire or the the negative consequences or, or these other things, like ultimately, whether it takes a little time or it takes a long time, doing the right thing is always the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm able to know that wherever my path goes, I've, I've done my best to make that best decision when faced with hard, right, easy, wrong. Mm-hmm. The, I used to tell my guys, if you're doing the right things for the right reasons, you, we will win in the end. Exactly. So if we're doing the right things for the right reasons, we'll win in the end. Now what's interesting about this is, you know, you, on certain occasions, to some extent, you didn't play the game, right? Mm-hmm. And as you just said, you know, you played the game sometimes and you did what you had to do and formed those relationships. And then sometimes you didn't play the game. And this is what's interesting and in that this is where the future is unknown. Where does that lead? If you were doing the right things for the right reasons, which you were, ultimately you'll win in the long run. Mm-hmm. We don't, I don't know what that looks like yet, right? I don't At some point, <laughs> I know it's, it's like a big gamble, right? Because we could paint an entire di- entirely different picture of Tulsi mm-hmm. that went to Washington, played the game, said the right things, voted the right votes, nodded the head, and you'd be in a different spot than you are right now. You'd be, you could potentially, I mean, from your trajectory, when you look at you in 2012, is that when you showed up 2012? 2012, yeah. When you showed up in 2012, your trajectory was steep. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you checked various boxes that mm-hmm. needed to be checked. And if you would have played the game that whole time, you could be in a position, you know, you could be president right now. You could be president right now, having conformed to what you were being told to do. Now, we don't know where this actually ends up, right? Yeah. Because it's it's 2020. We don't know where this ends up. Maybe people will be listening to this in 2039 or whatever, and they'll be going, <laughs> oh yeah, Jocko called it. <laughs> Jocko called it. You do the right things for the right reason, and then look at how it turned out. Uh-huh. That, that could potentially happen, but of course, you know, a, a bunch of other things could happen too. But it's, it's something that we have to struggle with as leaders. Doing, if, but if I still believe this, and I tell people this all the time, if you're doing the right things for the right reasons, you're going to win in the end. In the end, you are going to win. Yeah. It might take years. It might take, I guess it could take decades when you're talking about this, these types of decisions. But the other component of this is, which I think in my, just, just from sitting here looking at you as you're talking about this, you every day have to look yourself in the mirror. Yep. And at a certain point, you say, mm-hmm, I'm not going to do that. And again, look, there's a, I always tell people, play the long, t- play the long game, think strategic. I, I, I tell people, I would say when people ask me, oh, I got some situation at work and my boss is telling me to do this. I, all, all the time I'd give the, I give the advice, play the game. Oh, Tulsi wants me to do this paperwork and she's been yelling at me to do it. And it doesn't make any sense for me to do this paperwork. I tell, yeah, do the paperwork, play the game. Build a good relationship with Tulsi so you can actually talk to her in the future and explain why that paperwork doesn't make sense. Right. Play the game. Until you get to a point where you gotta look at yourself in the mirror and you can't. And then you're not doing the right thing. 
and you're not doing it for the right reasons and you got to make a different decision yeah yeah i i um that that's exactly right and in order to do that it's it's being able to have not lost your foundation and your groundedness so that you have the ability to be introspective and to know what actually matters versus the things that, that, that don't really matter, which help you determine, you know, which battles am I going to pick to fight? And also, um, what, what, what is winning? How do you define winning? Is it, is it a specific title? Or is it a specific position? Or um, when you say do the right things for the right reasons and at some point in time, sooner or later, you're gonna win. For me in my case, that, that's, that is 100% true. I think what um, may, may, maybe is not obvious to people is winning is not becoming president of the United States. Winning is not becoming a United States senator or a member of Congress or an ambassador or whatever. Pick mm-hmm. pick the job. Pick the crappy job. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have a different perspective than right. most people in Washington who live their lives from college mm-hmm. to try to strategically plan their lives to get these jobs. Yeah, except for the fact that, you know, winning you know, look, if you're the president, you have a massive, you have the most yep. amount of influence that you could possibly have. I, I used to tell that to these young SEAL officers. It's like, oh, you're going to kiss ass to get promoted. Well, if you kiss ass, quote, to get promoted, guess what? You can take better care of your troops, which is why you're here, mm-hmm. right? That's why we're here, to, to, to take care of our team, be able to accomplish the mission. So sometimes it's like, oh, those are, those are aligned. Winning, when I'm a platoon commander, instead of a, E5 in a platoon, I have more influence over that situation. So I can do a better job of the mission. I can do yes. a better job attacking the enemy and I can do a better job of taking care of the guys that work for me. That's all good. And you know what? I had to sit through some meetings and I had to nod my head and I had to support my whatever commanding officer or my master chief when they told me to do something that didn't make quite make sense, but I did it. Why? Not so I could get promoted. That's the big difference. Not yeah. so I could get promoted. And I never did it. It was, as you know, for me, it was such a, it made my career so much easier because I never was worried about getting promoted. Right. I never cared if I got promoted it, and it actually helped. It helped because I was doing the right things for the right reasons and my bosses would look at me and say like, yeah, this guy cares about the guys and he wants to get the mission done. Let's get him promoted. Yeah. I wasn't doing it to get promoted. It's just gonna happen if you're doing the right things for the right reasons. Exactly. So there's a weird dichotomy there. No, winning isn't necessarily getting promoted or becoming the president or whatever the case may be. But if you're looking to have the most amount of influence to take care of your people and your troops and your country and your nation, mm-hmm. that's a really good spot to be in. And that that the order of that, I think, is the most important thing because too often in politics, people get so attached to the position or the title and their, their entire identity is wrapped around that, whether they have it or it is their ambition to achieve that position or title, mm. that they forget that the real goal is being in a position of impact and influence where you can serve and make that positive impact. And that's where for me, even from when I ran for state house through the different political positions that I've had, like I had no issue and no qualms about walking away from what was beginning, what was the beginning of some would say would be an illustrious political career as as a 21-year-old elected to the state house. When it came for that decision point, are you going to stay or are you going to go? 
I went mm -hmm. because I wasn't losing anything. And like people, are, oh, you're gonna give up this political career, you've only just begun. I'm not giving up anything. I am only choosing at this point to serve in a different way. And I think that's where when you look at, when I've thought about, okay, well, you know, winning, winning is being in that position of impact and influence. And, and maybe at some point it does take that form of, you know, serving in elected office in a high position where I, I can execute on that. Or maybe it takes a different form or a different shape, you know, for the time being or for, for whatever it is, it's staying, it, the, the order of that, staying focused. Okay, th this is the goal and the position and the platform that I may have at a different point in time to accomplish that goal doesn't change the goal. Did you underestimate the power of the swamp? Maybe a little bit, but I think even, yeah, I, I would say, yeah. I mean, the, the, the power of the political infrastructure and the party system and how much money, uh, in, you know, there are limits. Like if I'm, I, well, not if, when I ran for president, ran for Congress, there are limits. Like if you wanted to make a political contribution to me, you know, the limit changes every election, but let's say it's $2,000. That's all you can give. There's no, there's no real limit to what you can give to either political party. So if you wanted to write a $2 million check, you could do that. No problem. And so if you look at the, the, the balance of power, that gives the political parties a heck of a lot of power to, to leverage um, over a so specific candidate or a specific incumbent and to use, as, use in the power plays that are used. So that, that was something that, that um, I came into and I think was, was unexpected. So just to clarify this, I can give $2,000 to Tulsi for Congress, right. but I can give $2 million to the Democratic National Or 200 million. Or whatever. Yep. And therefore, the party has that money. Yes. And now they can dole it out to the people that are playing board with the program, that are playing the game. Yep. And it's a little surprising to you. It was a little surprising yeah. that how much control they had. And and seeing it play out literally on the House floor when votes are votes are happening or what, what about to like? happen. It's like, hey, where is this member of Congress? I heard he or she is thinking of voting with Republicans. We need to find them and talk to them and uh, get them in line. And they say, and there are actual jobs. Like I don't. Have you seen House of Cards? The, no. the Netflix, yeah, you're, you're fine. Don't <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> but but it's featured in this show, House of Cards. The the, the um the main character. He kind of starts out. He's a member of Congress, and he is uh, the whip. And the, the position is literally called the whip. And um, that's their job is they whip votes. Mm. And so if somebody's, you know. So I go to you and I say, hey, Tulsi, I know you're kind of wavering on this vote, but it looks like you got a tough race coming up there in Hawaii. Could use some extra TV advertisement, don't yeah. you think? Yeah. It's like that, it's like for real, that's, yeah. that's how it is. Yeah. Kind of, or that's how it works. Um, not, is it, it not it takes quite different. that? Sometimes it can be very direct like that. 
I, I th- this is so this is something that that um, I have not personally directly been the target of because mm-hmm. they knew pa- pa- partially because I I got elected without any help from the Democratic Party locally or nationally. Um, there there was no fundraising help. There was no hey we're going to push you know it, it was a primary election and and generally they don't get involved in primary elections. It's not it's not a rule that's always followed, but in my case, it was. And because it's such a strong democratic state, generally they'll use their resources to help Democrats get elected or reelected in swing districts or mm-hmm. Republican districts if they're like, "Ah, Tulsi, you're good, like we don't got to worry about you." In my case, then that also means there's no leverage mm-hmm. from them. Uh, but I have I have friends who I've served with who are in those positions where you know a re-election in a congressional race like they've got to raise ten million twenty million bucks which is you know in my race I think I raised I raised about I don't know uh, a little over a million dollars um, so for them there is a lot of leverage and it's used it's certainly used uh, to to try to get you as a member of Congress to do what the what is best for the party rather than what you believe is the right thing to do based on your conscience and based on how you feel you can best serve yeah, your, your constituents. Mm-hmm. What's the percentage that they're able to wield that sledgehammer effectively? Like how much control? I mean, it's, it's, it's pervasive. And so that, that's one example is, hey, you've got, you're, you're always, you know, you've got a tough reelection or, or a tough race or a tough challenge or whatever. That's one approach. And the other approach is people who are interested in climbing the, the ladder. Mm. And so you will either have a cherry opportunity placed before you, or maybe you won't got it. have that opportunity presented or it'll be taken away. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, they'll look at, okay, what does this person want and what do they need? And how can we use that as a motivator to try to get them to do uh, what we want them to do? And so this is the imbalance that needs to be corrected in our political system, where this idea of, hey, anybody can go and run for Congress, and I know that my member of Congress is always going to go and act in my best interest as a voter, has unfortunately become so twisted into this thing that it is about one party versus the other party, and it's always about the next election and how they can battle and who is going to win, rather than how do we work together and actually solve problems and pass meaningful legislation? And I, you know, I, again, early on, you know, I, there were, there were some Republicans, um, Obamacare, right? Hugely divisive issue politically that's been weaponized by both sides, issue of healthcare. And there were some Republicans, we, we found like, hey, here's some easy fixes. This was, this was, uh, I was elected in 2012, Obamacare was passed in 2010. And so I, you know, there were some Democrats and Republicans. We started to say, "Hey, like, let's let's figure out what we can do together." Like, we're this is we're here in Congress. This is why we are here. And there were some easy, um, uh, kind of very simple common sense corrections that we could make uh, it, through legislation to this bill that that are no brainers. Like, not not controversial at all. Common sense, no brainers. Exactly. Okay, sounds good. Good setup. <laughs> I like it. And how that work out? It turns out that both party leadership um, indirectly expressed opposition to this idea and what we were talking about doing 
on the Democratic side because it would require that they would have to admit that the bill had some flaws that needed fixing. And on the Republican side, opposed to it because if you fix Obamacare, then what do you run against? What do you criticize the other side for if you actually fix it in a way that it it helps people? And if people start to like it, then you can't raise money off of it and you can't weaponize it for political purposes. And that's that that was 2013. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. here we are in 2021 and it has only progressively escalated and gotten far worse, far divisive to the point where as we sit here today, you have the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, referring to Republicans as, quote unquote, the enemy within. The enemy within. And the implications of that, like the actual legitimate implications of that were as, when you make that statement that you do not trust people from the opposing party broadly. She's not saying, hey, this one person I feel is a threat to our security and needs to be reported to law enforcement. That's a different story. If that, if that were the case, we have systems within our government to do that. If you think a member of Congress poses a security threat to their colleagues, report it to law enforcement. Do it. But to throw this out in a public setting, I think it was in a press conference, she said that, that, that they are the enemy within. Uh, and other Democrats saying, oh, I don't feel safe around my Republican colleagues. What you're saying is that if any member and any Democrat goes and tries to have a conversation with or reach out to or work with a Republican, they are working with the enemy. They are collaborating with the enemy. They are now traitors to who? I mean, to the country? To Democrats? Where does that then lead? And how is there any possibility of healing and unifying and reaching out to get past the inflammatory, divisive state that we're in? Okay. So we got that going for us. <laughs> it seems like uh, well, I, I didn't track every move that you made, but certainly one of the, uh, if not, at least from what I know, the biggest kind of move that you made that was outside the system is when you went against Hillary mm-hmm. in 2016 for for president. Mm-hmm. Is that is that was that the straw that broke the camel's back? It was a back? big one. <laughs> that was a big one. <laughs> um, yeah, and that was one of those. That was one of those big decision points that I had, um, where I couldn't, I couldn't map out what the actual consequences to that decision would be. So you knew. What I knew. I, I knew. No, I. I knew. I obviously knew it was. It was a serious decision that would have serious implications. But exactly what those implications would be, I. I didn't. I didn't know. Um, I had different political advisors and people who, you know, who knew Washington and who knew me, giving me very serious warning and just saying, "Look, Tulsi, this could be the end of the political road for you potentially." So just know that before mm-hmm. you make this decision. And 
And just, just to back up a little bit, why the, the backstory that led to my making that decision was I was still vice chair of the DNC at that point. And as an officer of the DNC, the rules say you have to be neutral in a primary election, that the DNC's role is to make sure that the primary election process is um, executed in a fair in a fair way so that voters have the opportunity to make their decision on who they would like to be the Democratic nominee to become the President of the United States. And so that was my, like, okay, I'm going to make sure that I fulfill that responsibility and make sure that our democratic process works in uh, in this primary. And I had, I had no plans to get involved in the race at all. And there were, you know, there were a number of, you know, this wasn't the reason why I ultimately made the decision, but there were a number of issues that started to um, present themselves in seeing that the chair of the DNC at that time was making unilateral decisions about how the primary process would work that made it very clear that it would not be fair mm-hmm. or neutral and that those the, the process decisions that were being made would favor Hillary Clinton over any other candidate. And I and other officers of the DNC um, expressed privately and then our, our concerns and opposition, A, to the fact that like, hey, I, like we're officers of the DNC, you're asking us to attach our names to a decision that you as the chair made, but we had absolutely no discussion or input to it whatsoever, and I'm not comfortable doing that. And then when seeing there was no, it was kind of like, okay, no, like, I don't care. I don't care. The decision's been made and and that's it. And then airing some of those concerns publicly for the purpose of trying to bring some accountability and and transparency to the process. And just two, just two, two examples. One was um, limiting the initial decision that, that the chairman made or the chairwoman made was there would only be six debates in the primary election. And to me, that was ridiculous. Like there had never been so few debates um, ever and why why that number of debates mattered was because of the second decision that was made, which was if any candidate participated in a non DNC sanctioned debate or forum, they would be banned from participating in any future DNC debate. So you'd be punished for actually seeking out opportunities to to talk to voters. Um, both of those decisions seemed pretty undemocratic to me. <laughs> While we're standing here saying, hey, we want we want high voter turnout. We want people to engage in the process. We want people to engage with the candidates. But we're only going to allow six debates. And if they do any debate or forum that's not one of our six, then they won't be able to come and play with us at all. Because Hillary had such good name recognition, every one of these debates would be an opportunity for someone else to get more name recognition Yeah, and challenge her track record. I mean, Mm -hmm. actually, God forbid, have a real dialogue and conversation and a a compare and contrast for voters on each of, you know, I mean, obviously Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton were kind of the two primary candidates, but there were a few others uh, who were still running at that time. Martin O'Malley was one. He was the governor of Maryland. And and, um, so so that that was kind of already happening. But ultimately, as, as this process um, started to to begin, I saw how li- even in these limited debate settings, how little attention was being focused by the Democratic Party as well as their their corporate media partners on foreign policy and on the the qualifications that voters may look for in a commander in chief 
and what that responsibility meant. Um, it was just not, it was, you know, they were talking about a bunch of other things. Most, most things that to me, like superficial political drama and theater, like not issues that, that really mattered a whole lot. When you look at the implications on people's everyday lives, but as a soldier, obviously for me, like this is the most, well, it's not just as a soldier, the most important responsibility that, that any president has is to serve as commander in chief. You know, our constitution very clear, like I can have all the economic positions I want and positions on education and positions on healthcare as president. I can't do anything of, of great impact Directly. without working with Congress. And that's, I mean, that, that's the, it's, it's the check and balance that our, our, our founders had in mind for us, which is a good thing. But there's only one commander in chief. And it ultimately drove me to resign as vice chair of the DNC and, and endorse Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton because I saw a huge um, gap and difference, contrast, between the two of them and in, in, in Hillary Clinton's uh, very interventionist kind of war hawk, warmonger track record, uh, both as Secretary of State and, and as a U.S. Senator, versus Bernie Sanders, who through his time in service had proven to have more of a non-interventionist leaning and be a little bit more critical and questioning of any rush to war. And I, you know, on a whole host of other issues, I, I didn't, uh, you know, Bernie and I agree or disagree on, on a number of other issues, but this was the singular issue that I made my decision on to, to resign as vice chair of the DNC and endorse Bernie Sanders so that I would have a platform to start to push, to be a voice to push this question and to challenge the media and to bring to voters, here's the differences between the two major candidates in this primary you get to decide uh, what kind of commander in chief uh, you want, and so um, that was, you know, I, I announced that decision on um, Sunday show. Meet the press uh, there in Washington. Went to the studio. Um, didn't tell them really what I was there to announce. It was, you know, I, I intentionally kept this to myself. Very, very close hold knowing how incestuous the relationships are between politicians and the media and attempts to try to um, undermine my ability to, to deliver my message for myself. Mm. And uh, so there are probably like two people in my life who knew what I was gonna do. Uh, went live television Sunday morning, shared my decision and why and then, uh, you know, my phone started ringing off the hook. <laughs> Literally, I'm in the car rolling away from oh the studio. <laughs> but, but the most stark response I got was, um, and they ranged from like, Tulsi, that was a brave uh, and righteous decision to nice like, you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's what it was. That was Sunday. And then I think it was either Monday or Tuesday. We had votes and went back into session in Congress and, and, um, both Democrats and Republican colleagues of mine were kind of coming up and patting me on the back and <laughs> saying that like, nice knowing you um, have a good afterlife. And uh, even even some Democrats who who had um, 
uh, like endorsed Obama over Hillary in 2008 early, like from the beginning and who shared like, hey, like I, I made that decision and I was on the Clinton shit list for years before I was able to dig myself out of it. And Tulsi, don't you know that she's gonna win and you're gonna be on the list and that there is a list and what that means in a practical way is you don't get your bill signed into law. You don't get funding for the things that you need or that your constituents need in your district and that your efforts, the reason why you are here and the efforts that you are, are putting forward will be, will be blocked. And so you're rendering yourself ineffective because she will be president. And um, that was that was the Washington response. Basically, you're politically dead. Mm-hmm. Um, you you knew that though, right? Yeah, to, I, to I, that I knew. I, I knew. I or was it worse I, I than was, like I, I chuckled as people told me this. I was there was nothing. There was nothing that I heard the morning after that did that surprised me. I knew that the did range. Did you kind of feel like a badass when you walked into Congress on Monday? <laughs> did you kind of? I don't. I, not, not badass. Or did you the feel like I an idiot? <laughs> no, neither. Neither. I. I was. I was. Um, I was amused at like the hushed air. <laughs> for real, right? Yeah, for real. For yeah. real. No joke. And like the sideways glances, like, is it okay to go and talk to her now or not? And like, I don't want to be, you know, like thought to be i don't know part of whatever she's doing like i don't know like there's all these different things and and how about the fact that now like whoever told you hey now all the things you're going to try to do are going to get squashed you're not going to be able to make any progress here that's a real thing and so again going back to this strategic decision making if you're trying to take care of your constituents and you make the worst enemy that you can have in dc that's not good. Well, what what I what ended up happening obviously is she did not win the election and some of those very same people who remain good friends of mine who were being honest with me then saying you're politically finished then came back to me later and said, "Well, turns out you saw something that nobody else saw at that time." So, you know, Kudos to you for standing up for your principles and what you believe in and listening to both your heart, but also recognizing where people in the country are rather than listening to the echo chamber within Washington. And yeah. It, so, so, it, so at that point you got a little clout back. Yeah. Yeah. But it's all it's all in the eye of the beholder, really. I mean, there there are there, there's unquestionable that a lot of the the challenges that I that I faced as I was running for president um, can be traced back to that original sin, <laughs> and just how how deep you know yeah is, there 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 were certainly ramifications, but also. Um, it was. I mean, I had the opportunity to to raise the issues that I ran for Congress to raise and to bring them to the forefront and to get conversations starting about you know the issues of war and peace and uh, and when do when is it right to send our troops into battle and and um, what questions should we be asking as leaders in this country 
before we make that decision and recognize like I'm not a pacifist, I'm not a peacenik. I I care and have dedicated my adult life to that that service to protecting our national security, the safety of the American people. I am just pushing to make sure that we have leaders in this country who recognize the seriousness of 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 life and death of war and peace and when war may be actually necessary and warranted and knowing that our troops have volunteered to go knowing that that may mean a sacrificing of their own lives and all of the sacrifices that our loved ones and families make and don't think twice about it. That's what we sign up for to serve our country. Um, But also knowing that sometimes the tougher decision to make is to not go to war. The harder decision may be recognizing that even as there may be a problem that, that we want to solve in the world, that sometimes it, it requires more strength and courage to recognize, A, it's a problem we can't solve. B, it, trying to do so would not serve our national security interests or the, or the interests of, of the American people and therefore recognizing that the right answer may be to to not do anything. So so really that's the other part of the strategic move is strategically it's going to make you harder and it's going to make your job harder in some respects after you execute this move mm-hmm. on on Hillary but at the same time it's going to bring these important issues to light so strategically it, there's a, an advantage and a disadvantage. Yes. And you weighed them out and said, "You know what?" If I don't bring these subjects to light, no one is going to do it. I could not, I could not, I was not okay with sitting on the sidelines and watch this. Every presidential election is important. There's not a single one. Every every election, like this is the most, most important election of our lifetimes. Every single one is important. And I could not live with myself if I had chosen to sit on the sidelines and let this whole thing play out without doing my very best to insert these most important questions and issues and contrasting of records into the dialogue and conversation so that voters would have the ability to make the best informed decision uh, possible. So then you decide you're gonna run. When when, yeah. when when is that? That's what. When do you figure that out? When do you figure out? When do you say to yourself, you know what? I need to run for president. The the event that triggered um, the event that ultimately led to my making that decision was the uh, happened in January of 2018. And it was, I'm sure you remember this echo, but it was um, when on a Saturday morning, we got a text alert sent out to every cell phone in the state, civil defense alarms sounding, saying, missile incoming to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. And the aftermath of that, where immediately we're thinking, like 
I've, I've been working the issue related to North Korea for a very long time for obvious reasons. North Korea is continuing to develop their nuclear capabilities. They're developing their intercontinental ballistic missile range capabilities, miniaturized nuclear warheads that that not only could reach Hawaii, but could reach a significant portion of the mainland at that time in 2018. Now they have continued to develop that and they can reach anywhere in the country. But this is the scenario that's playing out. Get this message. Like North Korea is, is sending uh, you know, a, a nuclear missile to us, which means we have 15 minutes uh, to live. I, I was in DC when this happened. Um, you know, all of my loved ones, my family, everyone uh, is is in Hawaii, and what happened there was absolutely terrifying. Where, um, you know, there there was a video that came out after. It was an iPhone video that that uh, this this father took as he lowered his little eight year old girl. I think she was about eight years old down a manhole telling her that this is the only place you'll be safe and uh, with the camera saying like, if, if I don't make it, you know, at least I want you to be okay. Um, there are countless, countless stories of people that I heard from after this event happened about, about what they went through in, you know, there, there was a guy who he had like, he had one of his kids that was in town, another kid that was on the west side of the island in, in, in Waianae, and he was somewhere in the middle and in that moment got that message trying to decide which, am I going to drive to town or drive to Waianae? Which of my kids am I going to try to get to to spend those last minutes of my life with? You know, mother's going in the bathtub, like seek shel- seek immediate shelter. Everyone's like, where do I go? friend of mine, he's got like a ton of kids. I don't know, six or seven kids. He just started driving to the mountains. Like, I just got to go find a cave somewhere. And, but, but there was no shelter. There's no shelter. And so you got this fancy alert system and like, okay, it's blasting out. Seek immediate shelter. There is, there is no shelter. Um, what, what ended up happening in those minutes that followed for me, as soon as I got that notification on my phone, uh, I'm in DC. I like, holy shit, what is happening? I need to figure out what's happening. And so I just started like going through, okay, I know that I can probably try to reach Indopaycom, like command cell. I don't have, they don't bring cell phones in the building, so that's a problem. I ended up, uh, the first person I called was our state adjutant general, um, who I knew if something was happening, he was gonna be at that civil defense command and he would obviously know. And so I called him and I said, what's going on? Uh, he, he's also my boss in, in the National Guard. <laughs> so, you know, du- dual hat, dual hatted there. But I called him and I said, what's going on? And very quickly he said, it's a false alarm. I said, I- I'm going to put this out publicly. Uh, you're telling me this is a false alarm. And he said, somebody pushed the wrong button. False alarm. I said, there's no missile coming in. No missile coming in. So I immediately hung up with him typed out a tweet in big block letters, this is a false alarm, I have confirmed with authorities, there is no missile incoming. And uh, that tweet was the first public notification that went out um, that let people know what was going on. But 
you know, I just started, I, I was on the phone constantly. I was calling news stations, radio stations, you know, uh, people were calling me and I just literally, I was just like false alarm, click, false alarm, click, just trying to get, let people know what was going on. And there's a whole other, you know, like incompetence thing. Like there was no official notification to the public coming from the state government until 38 minutes after that initial alert was sent out. And that was a, that was a whole other issue. But the thing that led me ultimately to make that decision, like to start thinking about, I need to run for president is because of what everyone went through and realizing that you can have this fancy alert system and I'm sure the governor and, and other people are, are all bunkered down somewhere safe, but there's no safety or shelter for anyone else. And ultimately the fact that people, the fact that this is a real threat that exists and there are others that um, politicians have created or escalated through political rhetoric of, of heightening tensions with nuclear armed countries, of, of spurring a nuclear arms race, uh, and knowing like, okay, you know, I'm sure there's probably some, some mechanism or system in place to protect them and their families, but what about everybody else? in the country, people who, um, I mean, look, I mean, nuclear war ends in utter complete destruction of, of the world ultimately. And having gone through what we went through, I wanted to be in a position to do two things. By running for president, I could raise this issue and bring it to the forefront because nobody was talking about it. Maybe there was a day of, of you know, CNN coverage or whatever on what happened in Hawaii, but then it was it was completely dropped and forgotten. There was no like, hold on a second. So wait, North Korea has these capabilities. They're continually increasing. This threat is real. There is no shelter. Like if we get attacked, then it's kind of it's game over. What what's being done about this by the leaders? And that none of that happened at all. Even in the aftermath of something that was, you know, terrifying and and in such a real way and so so to be able to address these issues um and and the existential threat that we face that comes from that um continued advancement towards the the brink of nuclear war that 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 we're on and if elected to be in a position as commander-in-chief to begin to walk us back away from that brink and to actually do something about it, to de-escalate these tensions, to actually work through the kinds of negotiations and treaties that previous presidents like you know, Reagan and JFK did when they recognized the seriousness of what happens when you, when you are in a Cold War and when you have nuclear-armed countries who either intentionally or accidentally can spark a nuclear war that would, would result in the end of of humanity on this planet. And uh, that was that was the driver for me to make that decision um, to run. And unfortunately, I very quickly found out that neither the media nor the politicians were interested in talking about it or anything that really mattered. That it was it was about who's saying bad things about who, uh, which candidate is, um, 
you know, who looks cool, who's likable, who's all of these superficial things. But whether it was on the debate stage when I raised these issues or in interviews with reporters one-on-one, or, I mean, I talked about, I talked, obviously talked about these issues every day, multiple times a day, town hall meetings that reporters covered or, or were present for at least with the intent to cover what happened. There was no interest in, in, in talking about uh, this specific issue about the existential threat of nuclear war and what, how we got here and where we need to go to prevent it. Uh, what to speak of 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 other issues, and and that was that was the most frustrating um, that was the most frustrating thing about about running for president was the realization that even as a candidate for president of the United States, um, the ability to bring such an issue as serious as this to the American people was so easily squashed by. Uh, the corporate entertainment media and um, the politicians who benefit from them. Corporate entertainment media. Yeah, that's a, that's a good name for the news. <laughs> it's it's more accurate than the news. <laughs> it certainly is. So you said you realized very quickly that that no one wanted to hear about this stuff. Yeah. Like when you say very quickly, how long did it take? Before you looked around and said, "Wait a second, because I remember hearing about you. I mean, maybe it was on Rogan. Um, I, I I forget, but I remember thinking, oh, you know, that's cool. I, I, and it seemed to me, wow, what a I said, wow, what a what a viable candidate. That's mm-hmm. interesting. And I remember seeing some polling, and you were at like two percent. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, that's kind of weird. That's not a very big number at all. I was kind of surprised. And then." Maybe that was early on, but at some point, I, you know, you were on Rogan again, or I saw you in a debate or something, and I and I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to check that out again. She got to be at thirty or forty percent now, because I, the people that I know are kind of talking about her, and I'd look and you'd be at two percent. Yeah. <laughs> and I was kind of, it was very strange to me that you couldn't get you you weren't getting any traction. Mm-hmm. Was that weird to you? Because, I mean, you did the whole Hawaii thing where you were at 2% and then you went to 20 and then yeah. you won by 22. And here you are at 2%. You're like, oh, no factor. I got this. <laughs> Been here, done that. Yeah. At um, what point did you say, oh, damn, this is a little harder than I thought it was going to be? And was that the same realization as, oh, the, the media doesn't, the media and the news and the entertainment networks don't care about this stuff the way I do? There, there were different signs of that. Um, the first of which started on the very day that I announced, officially announced my candidacy, as in build the event, go up on the stage, deliver the speech, announcing my candidacy and why. And I, I talked about the very thing that we talked about as as where, where the major did you do driver that event? in Hawaii? What was it? Uh, what where? Outside. Um, uh, yeah, it was it was outside at uh, in in Waikiki, and uh, you know there were local and national media cameras there to cover it, and uh, you know a bunch of supporters and and people came out while I was giving the speech. NBC News put out an article, uh, basically making the accusation that I am. 
I am somehow a favorite of the Russians or being helped by the Russians. Uh, they're talking, they're saying nice things. I, it, it, you know, it was, it, the, the article was so vague and baseless and lacking in any kind of evidence to back up the claim that they were making that it was just, it was just so out there. And, and I, I knew that they were doing an article because they had called and asked for a comment like a few days prior and had said, you know, without knowing the extent of like the, the, the completeness of the article, but they said, hey, you know, what, I, what do you think about this? And, um, and, and they had said, okay, yeah, we're going to publish the article probably sometime next week, maybe Wednesday or Thursday. And I think, I think that my announcement was on a Saturday. Whatever day it was, they changed their schedule uh, for when they were going to publish the article so that it came out on the day that they knew I'd be announcing my candidacy. And and their thing is like the Russians like Tulsi. That's the, that's the general. And, you know, like Russian bots or like, you know, Russian state-sponsored media. Or, the thing was is, you know, I think they, they um, said, oh, you know, there are a lot of uh, articles that are proving that the Russians like her, something like that. But when you actually go and, and look at look at the articles they're citing, it's it's not accurate, first of all. And second of all, it lacks the context of like, hey, um, they're actually just reporting that she's announced that she's running for president or uh, lacks the context of, well, when Hillary and Obama ran against each other in 2008, the Russian media reported much more favorably for Obama than Hillary. And so they, they chose a narrative and chose to launch it on day one of my candidacy that Tulsi would be the, the, the Russian asset or the favorite of the Russians and planted that seed on day one. Um, you know, cited, oh, you know, she's gotten donations from for her campaign from people who favor Russia and you know one happened to be like a Ivy League professor and specializes in foreign policy and has talked about nuclear war for decades and you know one was a woman who was trying to promote you know diplomacy and actually building relationships between um, like at a grassroots level between American educators and Russian educators or business owners or whatever I mean the 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 it was just a it was preposterous and very transparent, a transparent signal and move on day one. So that, if you ask when did it start, that's when it started. And then of course it, it, it continued to progress and escalate. And I started to see both on the debate stage as the debate started to begin, as well as, um, you know, uh, you know, you and I talked earlier when, you know, you know when you're going in to do an interview, mm-hmm. like a media hit, it's probably gonna be four to five minutes long and, you know, you go in there knowing what you want to talk about, regardless of the question that they ask you, because, you know, you, you got like, you know, two, two sentences. sentences. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so this this was why I was running for president. And so I took every opportunity to raise it on every platform possible. And there were no follow ups. There was there was no like, oh, hey, like, let, let's dig deeper into this issue, which is clearly very serious. No, none of that. It was like, well, you know, what do you think about this candidate? What do you think about Trump? Or what do you think about this? Like superficial drama um, and, a, and a conscious choice uh, away from actually talking about uh, what mattered most. And, and it, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton 
uh, weighed in on the thing when when she said that um, uh, I forget the exact words, but basically the Russians have chosen their candidate, and uh, without saying my name, said it was me, and that was then covered by the media incessantly, which um, is like crazy. It right? is. It is. And it was a signal in and of itself. Like, why would, why would the former Secretary of State, former presidential candidate, former U.S. Senator, former First Lady, go out of her way to place the target on me? And why can't the Russian bots do better than 2% traction <laughs> in the polls? I mean, if the Russian bots are so freaking powerful, why True. can't they run up your numbers a little bit for? Yeah. Yeah, not, not so much. <laughs> But it, it eventually got to the point where um, not like the, the coverage that I got ended up largely being negative attempts to smear my candidacy or question my patriotism and my loyalties. So out of the gate, I mean, is this is this a grand conspiracy where they're like, oh, yeah, Tulsi, she went against Hillary in 2016. Get ready. We're putting her down. And it certainly I, appeared that way. And on top of that, hey, Tulsi, she's, we can't control her. This isn't going to work. We don't want someone that we can't control. Put her down. It certainly appeared that way because um, that was, if you look at the outcome, uh, it was the outcome that, that I think they were looking for. And again, it started from the beginning. It ended up with a total total media blackout by the end of it. Um, polling standards changed to make it so that uh, you know it's like okay, here the de- they say, hey, you got to poll at a certain level in order to qualify for the debate, and then qualify for the next debate. And you know, the polling standards often shifted based on uh, where you were. Right. <laughs> like, like that's that's a little convenient to, to change it right when I start inching up in the polls a little bit more. But it also just points to like the, the catch 22 that exists where in America, we'd like to believe that anybody can run for president. Anybody can run for office and that it's up to the candidate to go and make your case to voters and voters actually get to decide. Well, in these presidential races, so early on, you can have very well-known candidates that everybody in the country's heard of, and you can have lesser-known candidates that most people have n- like no knowledge of whatsoever. Well, they start running these polls so early on that uh, show a lesser-known candidate like myself at 1% or 2%, whereas the better-known candidates are polling much higher, and then make the determination, well, Tulsi Gabbard's not a viable candidate because she's only polling at 2%, and so we're not going to really cover her very much because we don't deem her as a viable candidate. And by we, I mean the media and and the political party. Uh, And so as a lesser known candidate, then you're not covered as much as the better known candidate. So you don't have the opportunity to get better known. And and so it's this, you know. uh, Self-fulfilling prophecy of we know who this person is, so we're gonna keep covering that person. And it allows them to, um, it allows them to decide who who they want voters to be exposed to and uh, who they don't believe deserves that kind of opportunity to be in front of voters. And so it's kind of a pre-selection, a pre-primary selection. Before, before any vote is cast, you have these very powerful people within the party and within the media who 
who make those decisions about who gets to be heard and, and uh, who doesn't. And that, that was what we experienced. And, and it, was, it was such an incredible, this was the thing I underestimated the most, that I thought, hey, I can run for president and I can bring these ideas forward. And yeah, I'm at a disadvantage because I'm not as well known as some of these other guys, but as long as I have the platform to be able to reach people, all I gotta do is like I all I gotta do is do my best and trust that voters will make will make the decision. I underestimated how uh, very quickly and in a sustained way the media the decisions were made to to not even allow that platform to exist, which left me in a pretty like pretty helpless place. You know, I was yeah I can live stream my town hall on social media and I did. I can reach it maybe a few more thousand people in addition to the thousand who were sitting in the room. But when you look at the numbers uh, in the country, it you know when when they choose to not cover you and not allow you that platform, uh, then you know it's it's you're, not only not only was I not able to to raise the issues and address the issues that that are not just important to me but important to our country, um, but also the the smear attempts and the negative coverage left me in a, a very helpless and, and vulnerable position where I couldn't fight back. I did not have, you know, did not have the means, e- even if I were a billionaire, which I'm not, and I, I had a very, very, very skinny budget. <laughs> our, our campaign was pretty much fueled by volunteers, and I love them so much, people who really believed and, and set aside school or jobs or life and went and worked their hearts out to help me get my message out. Um, but even if I were a well-funded candidate or a self-funded candidate, a billionaire, that I could go out and purchase ads and I could go out and cre- buy my own platform, essentially, if the media makes a decision to either not cover you or or to smear you and undermine, therefore undermine whatever it is you're saying and doing, it's... it's um, it's difficult, if not impossible, to beat. And, and I think this is so important to talk about because it is a charade of the democracy that we maybe believe exists in this country. And it's certainly a charade of the democracy that our founders set out for us in this uh, incredible imbalance of power and influence that's in the hands of a very few um, who don't have the best interests of the country at heart. <clears throat> so we also got that going for us. Yeah. And, and just to illustrate that, I mean, the, this guy who was the CEO of CBS, this is, I think, probably the most stark and direct example. Uh, Les Moonves is his name. And he, this was, this was, um, yeah, I mean this this was in 20 this was in 2016 that he said uh, something along the lines of Trump may be bad for the country but he's good for business. The money is rolling in. Keep it up, Donald Trump. Keep it up. And his very direct statement illustrates everything that's wrong because it shows that this corporate entertainment media it's about the money, it's about the profits, it's about the rating, with no regard whatsoever for 
what the consequence is for the country and for voters and for our future. And that is something very serious that we as people in this country need to understand and be aware of so that we can start to bring about kind of the cultural and societal shifts that will ultimately result in um, in change and in, in making it so that you know the, these few powerful people don't get to usurp our democracy and our voices being the voices that matter most in determining who we want to serve as leaders in our country. So with that, you see Donald Trump getting the, you know, getting the nod from the Republicans, which many, many, many Republicans did not want him to be the candidate at all. Uh, Never Trumpers. And, and so that was a real thing. They, there was a lot of people that a lot of Republicans that did not want. And the he Republican was, Party was not into him uh, for much of the primary. Uh, exactly, like he <laughs> was totally. Um, and actually, somebody when, when we were on uh, Rogan's together, and I said something like, "Wow, you got really hammered more than I've seen anyone." And someone in the YouTube comments said, "Hey, idiot, what about Donald Trump?" And I was like, "That's a good point. They ha- they hated him apparently as much as they hated you in the Democratic Party." How is it that he was able to pull it off? Does it does the is the Republican Party less controlling than the Democratic Party? I don't know the answer to that specific question, but how is he able to pull it off? He was very famous, mm. and he had influence. They couldn't black him out. They couldn't ignore him, and they were making a shit ton of money off of him because with Donald Trump brought eyeballs to their screens, whether it was uh, Fox News who was initially, I think, maybe cynical or even critical of him and then shifted to like full bore pro-Trump, or if it was CNN and MSNBC who were, I think, initially kind of like, how is this even happening to full bore anti-Trump? Um, Regardless, in in all of these scenarios, and from the Democratic Party's perspective and the Republican Party's perspective, with Trump came money. Democrats get to be the anti-Trump party and motivate a lot of people to give money to beat Trump or people who supported Trump and members of Congress or whatever. And Republicans got to raise a lot of money off of, hey, look, they're trying to attack us and they're trying to undermine what going on and we need your money and we need your help to be able to you know defend the party and defend the work or whatever it is so um that how i think that that's what ultimately ended up i mean gave trump a lot of exposure and yeah some some of it or maybe a lot of it was 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 uh was negative but um you look at how much the public hates politicians and how much they distrust and hate the media. <laughs> you know, you, you can kind of see how generally people who are frustrated and dissatisfied with the powerful elite, whether they be in politics or the media, would look at a guy, and I have friends like this, like they didn't really agree with anything that Trump was saying. They're like, finally, somebody is giving the middle finger to the media and telling him to, to you know, 
shut up or whatever it was. Um, Trump had influence and uh, he was very well known and could not be ignored. So at some point, does somebody come in, does somebody come from the outside that's not as brash and not as offensive as Trump? And would that not be a pretty, would that not be easier? Or was it because he's so brash uh, and because he's so freaking quotable, right? Good or bad, you know, he's just gonna run, they're gonna put, they're gonna put his quotes up all day long. If somebody comes along that's from the outside, but that is actually less brash and more calm and more rational, do they say, okay, it seems like that would be the the perfect candidate right now, someone from the outside that can actually roll in and say, look, this system is totally screwed up. We're gonna, like the the idea of draining the swamp Mm -hmm. was a great quote that got so many legs Mm -hmm. or so much legs and it, you know, of course, it didn't really happen when you look at his administration. It was like, oh, yeah, more people from the swamp, more, more love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but when when someone does this in a more from a better from a better um, like from a better position, mm-hmm. it seems like it's well, this is what I'm getting at. Because I was going to ask you, well, at some point, does it reach a tipping point? It seems like the tipping point's there. It just someone needs to step in and say, okay we are gonna actually drain out this swamp. We're gonna actually get rid of this. These lobbyists are gonna get, you know, controls put on them. We're gonna, we're gonna do things that's gonna move this in the right direction. It seems like, as you said, Americans, a lot of Americans are looking at the political system going, you gotta be kidding me. And look, you telling me stories earlier today before we hit record, it's, kind of, it's sickening. It is sickening. It's sickening. And so as that word gets out, it seems like America's ready to go, you know what, we're done with this shit over here. Mm-hmm. And, and Trump was like the first guy that said, hey, I'll, I'll help you out. And so everyone went, cool, sounds good. You go, raise hell, basically. Yeah. If someone that says, yep, we're gonna fix it, we're gonna change it, I'm for change, I'm gonna make things, it seems like we are ripe for that. I was gonna, that's what I'm saying. I was going to ask you, will we reach a tipping point? It seems like we're already there, Trump was, the guy that got elected based on saying, hey, we're gonna drain the swamp. Mm-hmm. People voted for him to go and do that. Like you said, people that you that you knew that didn't agree with any of his politics, but he was changed, he was different, he was gonna throw it in the face of the system. That's what we were ready for. And it just so happens that the guy that threw it in the face of the system also threw it in the face of everybody that was around him. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like a, a, a grenade going off. It's just that people are getting hit and there's no direction to it. So it seems like we're actually ready for that. What's it going to take to actually get someone there that's going to run, that's going to that that's that that the truth will come out doing the right things for the right reasons is going to win in the end. Someone who has the resources and ammunition capable of going to battle with the existing political infrastructure and the corporate entertainment media. Hmm. that that's that's the matchup because i agree you know there are there are more people who identify as independents in the country today than there are who people who identify as either democrats or republicans really yes factually factually echo charles are we good to use that word yes sir (laughs) thanks that's factually true we can we can look up i mean I've, i've seen uh, a vari- and this has been trending in this direction for quite mm-hmm. some time. This is not a new phenomena. 
but the numbers are consistently trending towards and and maybe some some of it's generational that that you know the millennial generation did not come up identifying like my daddy was a democrat my granddaddy was a democrat i got to be a democrat i think there's there's less far less of that in mm-hmm. in the millennial in post millennial generation uh, so i think that's part of it people are looking more at issues than party i think part of it is is people recognizing and being disillusioned with with both political parties as not looking out for their best interest, that it's more about the party than the people. So I, I think there's a number of, of reasons for this, but it is a fact that it's over 40% of the country identify themselves as independent and therefore lesser numbers who identify as, as one party or another. So are the people ready for uh, a strong leader who will come in and speak to what's in the best interest of the country rather than what's in the best interest of one party or another? I, I would say yes, without a doubt. So then the next question is how, what is necessary to execute on that? What is necessary is, is first of all, recognizing, you know, where's the opposition coming from? The opposition will come from the people who are benefiting off the status quo. And that is the existing two-party system. And the, the, um, the, the, the entertainment media that, that is in, bed with them and it's not impossible it's not insurmountable but it's a pretty serious obstacle and you got to be ready to go to battle with some of the most powerful people and uh so it would take a lot it would take a lot and the third party thing is what do you think is that is that dead on arrival not dead on arrival not impossible, very difficult, because I think it was it was back, and I forget, I think it was the first time that Ross Perot ran mm-hmm. for president, uh, was also when Bill Clinton was running for president, and I think George H.W., mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think you're right. At, at a certain point, well, early on, though, early on, at a certain point, Ross Perot was polling higher than Bill Clinton, and I, I believe George Bush as well. And that, like, they're like, what is going, like, how is this possible? And had he continued his campaign, at a certain point, Ross Perot dropped out of the race and then jumped back in a little bit mm-hmm. later, and he took a big hit for that. I don't know, people probably, like, want, like, do you not know what you want? Or, like, mm-hmm. what, what are you doing, buddy? Um, but there are political pundits who say that if he had continued on, um, he you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. He, he may have become president or he may have posed a more serious threat in the end than he did. Ultimately, his numbers took a dive after uh, he re-entered the race and he ended up kind of just being the perennial third party guy who stole votes, right? Mm-hmm. But it was after that election year that the rules started to change in making it uh, with, with with agreement from both the Democrat and Republican Party that made it much more difficult for a third party candidate to get ballot access just to get their names on the ballot um, to be included in debates Um, just the basic infrastructure of a candidacy um, changed to the point where and it still it still exists today that the the bar is much higher for a third party candidate to to be heard and to be on the ballot 
than it is for uh, candidates who run under one party or, or another. So that, that, that just, again, not impossible, but from a practical perspective, as well as from a, an exposure perspective, uh, it's a much, much, much heavier lift that, again, requires a certain strategy and a hell of a lot of resources to be able to accomplish that. So how long, how long were you in the race for total? Um, I think I announced in February of 2019 and I withdrew from the race, I think in March, February or March of, I think it was March of, uh, 2020. It was, it was after COVID had kind of already started. I was back in Hawaii. COVID had started to take a pretty firm Mm -hmm. hold. Maybe it was even later than that. Uh, and it just, it got to the point where like we're on lockdown at home mm-hmm. in Hawaii, Congress had shut down and, uh, I knew that the most effective use of my time at like the, the outcome of the primary seemed somewhat inevitable at that mm-hmm. point, And the most effective use of my time would be to focus on how I could best help with, with the response on of COVID in Hawaii. And, you know, I was calling, trying to get like and 95 masks and just trying to help help with that right. local response in, in Hawaii So you so you what is that called dropping out of the race? Is that what it's called? Is there some official word for yeah, it? Yeah, no withdrew my candidacy withdrew I your candidacy. So you withdrew Suspending that's the word they use suspending your candidacy and did you feel like What the hell just happened did you feel like wasted time did you feel like man because I, again, I remember looking at you in the polls, and you know, you might have gotten to three percent or four percent. I could, I, I was really surprised. I was really surprised, you know, that you just didn't get the kind of traction again. As as Joe said, you're like such a kind of ideal candidate from like a box checking. Mm-hmm. You're a veteran. You're a woman. You've been. You've got experience. You got combat deployments. You, you're uh, whatever. Not a white person. Mm-hmm. You got these things that people are looking for. Hoppa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're Hoppa, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you got those things, and it just seemed like, oh, okay. It'll be interesting to watch this. She's going to climb right up this thing, and and you never really made that progress. Mm-hmm. Does that surprise you? I mean, in hindsight, no. Because you, because you see, you <laughs> were, that, you, you mess with moment, the machine at that moment. Like going through it, um, it surprised me that I didn't even have the opportunity to earn it, mm-hmm. to earn the support, to get that exposure. I remember you telling me at some point you were like the number one most Googled name after the yeah. first debate, after the second debate. Mm-hmm. What you you didn't make the third debate for whatever reason? Yeah, I, I don't remember which. You know, I, I think there was there was. Uh, yeah, there was a gap at some point where I didn't make one, but then I made the the next. I, I don't remember exactly what, but in those first in those first debates, um, I was the most searched candidate of the night uh, <laughs> after each of those debates, which was the whole point. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, I can go on this stage, a national stage. In the first debate, I think had over twenty million viewers, and this is the opportunity to introduce myself to the American people. Uh, 
in the hopes that they might say, hmm, she looks interesting. I want to know more. I want to learn more. And that being starting to kind of crack open the door to be able to make an impact there. I think one of the other, in addition to all the things that we talked about, about how that opportunity really ultimately did not exist. And, and it started with that first debate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in advance, we had set up our, our uh, Google ads account so that when people went on Google and said, hey, who is Tulsi Gabbard? Then, you know, our links would pop up and they would then go to my website and they could look at, you know, click issue X, Y, or Z. What do you care about? Bio, background, et cetera. Um, that was the hope that that would be, I would be the most Googled candidate and that we therefore were ready for it. Um, Google shut down our Google Ads account with no reason whatsoever at all, given. During the first debate. It was not actually during the debate. It was afterward. Mm-hmm. But oh, it was during that spike. it was during that window of time that was the golden opportunity to capture, and it was a limited window. And um, they they just like your your account is suspended, no explanation, no here's what you got to do to fix it or get it, you know, r- whatever released. And uh, and to this day, we've never gotten you know it was suspended for a certain period of time, and then it was reinstated. And it was not for lack of us trying to reach anybody who would answer us and tell us why and what we could do to fix it immediately. So, you know, I mean, there's, I filed a lawsuit against Google for that um, because of, because of the, the impact obviously that it had on me, but also, but really the bigger issue that I, I wanted to raise by filing this lawsuit was you've got this massive big tech company who has the power to um, interfere in the public square of our democracy. And, you know, who knows still to this day, like, was it some guy sitting at a computer who was like, man, fuck Tulsi Gabbard, I'm going to punch this button and show her what's up. Or like, who knows? I don't know what happened, but it happened. And if it can happen to a sitting member of Congress who's running for the highest office in the land, it could happen to anybody running for office, anybody who's speaking out, anybody being critical of, whether it's big tech or, or government policy, like whatever the motive, um, this is the power that they have in their hands that's incredibly dangerous in undermining the the, the kind of core pillars of, of our democracy, of, of having a marketplace of free ideas and voters who can, you know, um, get the information they need and ultimately make the decision that they want to make. Are they allowed to, are they allowed to mess with like Google AdWords from a political perspective? So in other words, if I was running against you and I bought the AdWord Tulsi Gabbard Mm -hmm. and brought it to a freaking Russian, uh, newspaper article about how they're your favorite. So when I Google Tulsi Gabbard, I click on the first article that comes up. It shows me that you're a Russian, plant Mm -hmm. can i do that in the political realm because look they do it with uh, like i you know i i have a bunch of companies and sell Mm -hmm. a bunch of stuff and you type in jocko you know the other companies pay for that word Mm -hmm. for jocko protein and it brings to their site right so if i was a billionaire 
and you were running against me, I could be like, oh, cool. I'll just buy Tulsi Gabbard. Who is Tulsi Gabbard? What is Tulsi Gabbard? Where does Tulsi Gabbard come from? And I'll just buy all those things and send them all to uh, Tulsi Gabbard's from Russia, <laughs> whatever else I'm going to do. Is that legal in the polit- I know it's legal in the, in the free market because they do it all the time. Is it legal in the political side as too? As far as I know. I, I am not, I have not come across any kind of. Like legislation against ad words in Google. It, there, there are there are no laws or rules in place from a government perspective that that limit what these big tech monopolies can do with their algorithms, and that's part of the whole issue here when we talk about big tech, the monopolies, the power that they have to either promote or push forward certain voices or people or ideas and silence others. Um, And they can do so while being completely legally immune from any kind of accountability through our legal system. Because they're private companies. Well, because, yep, because they're private companies, but this section 230 provision that exists within the law that was was put in place to encourage innovation on the internet uh, early, you know, decades ago. Um, when they passed that law, it that gave them this legal immunity. It said that they can um, they can remove content that they deem to be objectionable mm-hmm. without any definition of what that is. First of all, whatever they want it to be, whatever they want it to be. And then it says whether or not it is protected by the Constitution. Dang. How? <laughs> I don't know who wrote that part of it. Probably the to, same to bastard <laughs> that clicked delete on <laughs> your freaking account for six hours. <laughs> but to have something in there that says you, internet, you know, service provider company, you can decide what speech you deem or content uh, objectionable or not, whether or not it is protected by our constitution. This is the problem that needs to be fixed within our laws today as it relates to big tech. And it's a relatively, there's a lot of, I've and I've looked at this a lot while I was in Congress and then after for obvious reasons. And you know, there's a lot of different proposals and different ways to kind of bite this apple, but the most simple and direct way would be to take out that objectionable content, just take those words out, and instead, um, you know, uh, you can say unless it is, unless it, you know, you, you, you can remove content unless it is protected under the First Amendment. Mm. And there's legal precedents in place through various Supreme Court rulings that provide very clear kind of guardrails towards what kind of speech is protected versus what is not. And that way, if if we make this legislative change, it would alleviate the kind of pressure that these big tech companies are under right now, coming from the left and the right, because then they can just say, look, these are the guardrails. This is speech that's protected and it's gonna remain on the internet and speech that's not protected, then it's up to us to make that decision to to uh, to remove it that that's that's the that that's the best answer that I have come across on how to um, address this 
rather than allowing this, you know, I mean, now we have like, okay, well, we're going to cancel anything that's disinformation. We're going to cancel anything that's misinformation. We're going to, you know, cancel anything that um, we don't like, or, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it's getting worse and worse. And unfortunately, the direction that I'm seeing from Democrats in Congress is not towards, hey, how do we protect free speech? But instead, it's, um, we need big tech to do more to shut people up who are saying things that uh, we deem to be misinformation or disinformation, or that could mislead people into believing a certain thing or seeing a certain view. And it's, it's, it is, you know, the, the fact that this is happening and people don't see the danger of, okay, you're in power today. You got Kevin McCarthy, who's the head of the Republicans in the House, saying, I bet my house on the fact that Republicans will regain the majority in 2022. What are you going to do when the tables turn? And then you've got the other guys in power saying, yeah, you know what? We don't want Democrats to be misleading people on Mm. the internet. So we're going to tweak the language a little bit and make sure that big tech silences those voices and pushes. Like it's, it's so simple and clear how dangerous of a position that we are in and that when you when you threaten the first amendment like freedom of speech a free press like freedom of religion um once you undermine that what do we have in america we don't we don't have we don't have the country we don't have our country yeah we did the we did a podcast and we recorded it before christmas but we did it on the book 1984. I listened to that. <laughs> yeah, and it was really weird because we just, you know, it was just something that I was like, oh, the same things that are going on. And I, and I, you know, read that book many, many years ago. And I remembered this one part of it was about the language mm-hmm. and the importance of language and the, the, therefore the importance of free speech. And, and we recorded it. And then, like, it was Christmas time and that, that podcast came out. January 6th (laughs) and it was kind of crazy that it came out on that day it just we had recorded it a month prior and you had scheduled it for that day. it was just that's when it's coming out so it came out January 6th and 1984 was trending and then the the tag the hashtag 1984 some some hashtag 1984 actually got shut down on Twitter it was it was all it wasn't it wasn't because of that podcast but it was just very coincidental that all that was happening at the same time. But the point of doing that podcast, and this is exactly aligned with what you're saying, you have to allow people to communicate with each other. Yeah. And, you know, saying, if you if if you say something to me that's misleading, I can't just, sh- it's what I started off with. I just don't say, shut up, you're not allowed to talk. I say, okay, well, actually, Tulsi, let me show you some other information that might change your mind a little bit. Because by the way, when I just tell you to shut up, I don't move your opinion at all. Mm-mm. In fact, there's a really good chance that I'm just going to make you Double even stronger down. on that Heck opinion. Yeah. And that's what's happening in the country right now, which is freaking nasty. And and and, and actually that again, interestingly, as all this was happening, we we had had I talked to Echo and I was like, "Listen, man, I don't know what's going to happen mm-hmm. in the world. And I don't know what's going to happen. Look, we don't we're not on here making any uh, inflammatory statements. We're usually talking about history. I said, and that's cool. We'll we're, that's what we're going to do. But at some point, people are starting to change history. And I said, I don't know what's going to even happen with the platforms that we're on. Yeah. 
Like these platforms could change the way they do business. And we started our own platform just to make sure that we have someplace to, someplace to go in the event that things take a turn for the worse. And there's a bunch of other things that could happen. I mean, you could have some of these free platforms say, all right, we're going to start charging money mm-hmm. and start inserting ads into the middle of, you know, here's Jocko talking about a, a battle in World War II and it's heavy and crazy and emotional. Someone's going to insert an ad in there. Yeah. Like, I don't want that. I yeah. don't want people to have to put up with that. So I don't know. Or do we just get someone to say, look, hey, Jocko, you talked about this part of history, which, you know, we don't really like. We think it's misinformation and pull it down. That, that's, that's, that's a reality. That could happen. Yeah. So we have to be, that's why we made, we made the, the, the Jocko Underground just because of that. Ah, so that's the platform that you guys created. It's the platform, yeah, jockounderground.com, and it's just a backup. And and look, some people are like, oh, you want money? I was like, no, we don't want your money. Yeah. That's not what it's about. But to not have a contingency plan Mm -hmm. is ignorant. (laughs) And so... And again, all that, ha- what's funny about all this is I had talked to Echo about it. And he was kind of, I said, hey, can you build something, figure this out? And he's, you know, working and figuring it out. And eventually he goes, yeah, you know, I got it. And we, this was before the end of 2020? This is before the end of 2020. It was a, let's have a contingency plan in case something happened. Right. And then I said, you know what? This is getting squirrely. Mm-hmm. It's getting squirrely. Let's launch the contingency plan, you know, next month. Just to have, just to get it out there so people know what it is in case something happens. And sure enough, January 6th, it was like, boom, we had, it was so coincidental, but it was very, it was like, and I remember texting echo like, well, I guess this is why we had a contingency plan. And thank God it launched today because who knows where it's going to be in six months. I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. I remember, um, listening to that. So I I don't, I have not listened. Like I have friends of mine who have listened to your podcast from number one. And then, uh, those people are my friends too. Yeah. (laughs) But, but like in, in sequence, like chronologically and like, um, a a buddy of mine got to the, the, I think it was episode 99 is Musashi. 100. 100. Well, he didn't get past 99 because he didn't finish reading the book. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, Jocko just did this new show on. And I can't do it because I can't listen to 100 until I read the book. So Check. Yeah. Spoiled. <laughs> I, so I'm not one of those people. I'll, I'll missed, jump wait, around. You've missed episodes. <laughs> Echo is disappointed. <laughs> I'll jump around like, okay, what am I in the mood like? What am I in the mood for? Wait, am I in the mood for dark, depressing war? <laughs> am I in the mood for human atrocity? Where am I at? <laughs> and I'll tell you a funny story about that in a second. But um, I went straight for that 1984, and I don't remember what actual day it was. It was not January 6th, mm-hmm. but it was in, in the days after. And I, I wondered then it, when you had recorded that because it was literally addressing everything that we were seeing play out right right before us as far as the warning signs and the dangers of this is where, this is where you end up uh, once you allow for this kind of control and once we as people accept it yes um but little sidetrack funny story uh, and i'll show you the video after um because it'll it'll take me a minute to dig it up but it won't surprise you to know that on the presidential campaign trail sleep was hard to come by for me and for two reasons one was just a factor of time 
in the day, but also it was tough for me to um, tough for me to turn turn everything off and actually just get like I'm not even talking about hours. I'm just talking about just some a good a slice of good quality rest and sleep. Um, we were in New Hampshire in the middle of winter and there was a rare opportunity where I got to take a nap and uh, we'd like rented a like an Airbnb or something like that and um, so I took a nap and my husband took a video of me taking a nap because he walked in the room and I'm, I'm lying there and I'm asleep and I'm all bundled up under the covers and I got my phone sitting on my um, on the top of the covers and I was listening to Jocko podcast <laughs> with a guy from the French Foreign Legion. <laughs> and um, I'll show you the video because I am dead asleep. And uh, my husband came in and he has the camera going, picks up my phone, looks at. And, and the reason I, I remember this is because this was on February 11th, February 11th, 2020. And it just so happened that it popped up on my phone on February 11th of this year <laughs> as like the memory yeah. thing or whatever. Yeah. And I was debating sending it to you. And I, was, I told my husband, I was like, oh, he doesn't get the wrong idea and think I'm like bored to death of this yeah. podcast. And he's like, no, what it showed was like I was able to completely tune out the noise of of what was going on in my mind of the day to day and and be able to kind of be transported to a different conversation and topic and and all this other stuff but it, it was a great podcast that I did end up finishing <laughs> <laughs> but you gave me the gift of some really good sleep as yeah. well <laughs> the soothing the soothing voice of Jocko talking there about war <laughs> can send anyone to sleep I don't know what that says about me <laughs> and what twisted. makes me relax <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> I remember when uh, when you dropped out of the race and you you um, endorsed Biden. Yeah, and I remember thinking because again, I, I didn't know a lot of these things that you're telling me right now. Mm -hmm. I knew them kind of, but I still I, I still had a some sort of naive sense in my heart that it can't be that bad. And I, I, I texted you and I said like, hey, are you gonna get the VP nod? Is this, cause I was, I was kind of surprised you endorsed Biden. I was like, well, you know what? Oh, I said, oh, I know what's happening. She's playing the game. She's gonna endorse Biden. Biden's gonna get her as the VP. It's on. And you were like, you like, you like, however you laugh and text, you were like, hey, hey, bro, you're a little bit, uh, you're a little bit lost there. I, I ain't getting nothing from these people. And I was like, ooh, okay, that's how, huh? Pretty much, pretty much. Uh, and then, so, so then you wrapped up your, your career. Well, you wrapped up this portion of your career as a politician. In, in, that was it. Went out to D.C. for the last congressional session. Yeah. Packed up your locker. January 2nd was my last official day. We had to pack up the office before Thanksgiving. So uh, no kidding. You know, we were, there were obviously votes going into December. There was, uh, you know, uh, government's going to shut down if we don't pass a new appropriations bill and kind of the unfortunate usual thing that happens at the end of every year. Um, but yeah, I was working out of my car, like parked in front of the Capitol. I had my computer and it's COVID. So, you know, votes consist of, um, seven different groups of members of Congress. I was group two. It's by alphabetical order where you're only allowed to have a certain number of people on the floor at any given time. 
they decontaminate the whole floor between every vote. And so when your group is called, you go in, cast your vote, and then you leave. And so that was like a park, like votes are called. Sometimes they last for, you know, an hour or two hours or whatever. And if you've got four votes in a series, then you're doing this running in and out, you know, four times in that series. And so, yeah, I was, you know, office, office shut down before Thanksgiving, had to turn in everything so that they could um, transition and start to bring in other members of conference. And I should mention now that, that, um, I made the decision not to run for re-election to my house seat in October of 2019 uh, when it, it, it got to the point where I had to make a decision where I, I would either continue my candidacy or I would suspend my presidential campaign and focus on running for re-election in Hawaii. And I couldn't do both. Um, le- legally, I could have, but just the constraints of, of time and the tyranny of distance, it mm-hmm. was not, I, I was, I would end up doing a crappy job at both. So that was the decision I made. I, I you know, let folks in, and I, I wanted people in Hawaii to know that, um, you know, they were not some kind of fallback plan for mm-hmm. me if this national thing didn't work out and that they would have the opportunity and the time to decide who they would want you know, to, to work for them and other candidates who, who, um, who were going to run. So, uh, and that was a decision I never looked back on, um, or regretted in any way, but as a result of that, yeah. So things, things started quickly in, in having to shut down in DC. Um, but January 2nd was, was the actual final day. Were you, um, <clears throat> heading home kind of stoked that it was over <laughs> or were you heading home kind of bummed out? that it was over mixed feelings really mixed feelings um i again i made that decision without regret and so it wasn't any surprise that this was going to happen at this point in time but i mean i remember um landing at dulles airport and on that last trip and as i was driving into dc like i'm not going to make this drive again as a member of congress at least and uh even as screwed up as things are and as frustrating as things are and have progressively gotten, it never takes away the awesomeness of that privilege of being able to serve uh, in that in that way. And you know, there there are grooves. Have you have you been inside the state cap or the the, the capital before the U.S. Capitol? No. When you go inside, there are you know. Uh, marble steps that take you up to the 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 actual entrance to the house floors on the second floor and then the visitors galleries on the third floor when you walk those steps there are there are deeply worn grooves where countless other leaders from our nation's history have walked those very steps and the the um it's an amazing thing to to never forget those who have come before us, those who will come after, and how special of a privilege it is that the people of Hawaii allowed me that privilege to to do my best to serve them for the eight years uh, that I was there. And that was that was, you know, yeah, I there's so much of the political drama and and just the theatrics and the 
all, all of the stuff that you just kind of got to endure in order to try to do the work that you're trying to do. And, and, and I, I've always hated all that stuff and had no, no problem at all leaving that, uh, that behind. But I think the, the, the mixed feelings and emotions part just came from, um, just that, that reflecting on the time that I've had there. And, and honestly wishing that there, there are a lot of areas and things that I wish I could have done more on that I could have, you know, um, legislation that I wished had been able to advance farther or just just different things, you know, assessing kind of what I was able to do, what I wished I was able to do. And, um, but, but leaving with the sense of, of peace, uh, in my heart, in, in knowing that, you know, I, I did my best and excited about how I can find, uh, how I will find a way to continue to serve. So you get back home to Hawaii, and I know, I know when I came back from my last deployment to Iraq, I had um, I was home for, I was home for like a month, and one day I just like woke up on a Saturday and I kind of felt like this weird weight. I, I felt good, right? I felt mm-hmm. good, and I felt like the weight was gone, and I was kind of thinking about what, 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 why do I feel so good right now? And I realized, oh, it's because I'm not worried about one of my guys getting wounded or mm-hmm. killed right now because we're home from deployment. And it took me about a month for that to go away because it's just your instinct. Every time, every time you wake up, you, you're thinking about what's happening. Is, is everyone okay? You're thinking about that all the time. And I never noticed it when I was on deployment because that's just how it was. It was just, you know, you just wake up and that's what you're thinking and it's real. Well, after a month of waking up and, oh, no, it's not, you don't have to worry about that. Oh, oh, no, you don't have to worry about that. And eventually one day I woke up and said, why do I feel so, oh, it's because I'm not worried about that thing I've been worried about for so long. When you got home, I mean, the how long did it take for that to wear off the pressure, the the constantly thinking about all this crap that's going on and what you need to do and where you need to move and what's the next maneuver and who's mad at you and who's happy with you and all this other crap. How long did it take you for, for you like, oh, I hope I have, oh wait, do I have wax for my surfboard right now? <laughs> How long did that take? Not very long. <laughs> you were able to get over it quick. I was ready, man. <laughs> it, but it also, you know, I mean, just this whole COVID situation also, um, you know, I, I had been home a lot more than I normally mm-hmm. would have been and working from home and having virtual committee hearings and, and a lot of other stuff that was just, it was a strange lead up to where the contrast wasn't so different. Got it. Um, but it was it was odd for me. Like it started, August is when our primary elections are in Hawaii. And I remember waking up on primary election day, which is Saturday in Hawaii. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have to go sign waving <laughs> at six o'clock in the morning. Um, I, can, I can go surfing. Like this is a weird feeling because I had held elected office for the previous 10 years. I'd been on a ballot every single election for the previous 10 years. And so that was, that was strange. That was a really weird thing that was felt unnatural, uh, to me. And then, and then, you know, similarly, um, with, with the general election, but yeah, I was, um, I I had no issue (laughs) with that transition and, and, yeah, went on to to uh, take full advantage of of being home and um, knowing that 
Well, really, a, a lot of it was being able to regain control over how I spent my time and uh, have to, to, to no longer have those very immediate political factors playing into decisions that I'm making and um, just to just to be <laughs> for the first time in a long time not have not being constantly jet lagged that was something I, I didn't realize took such Horrible. a toll for eight years I'm going back and forth two or three times a month between Hawaii and DC five or six hours difference every time plane rides are long but that was not yes, whatever I can it's a plane ride um, but you know like like I can actually get a schedule happening mm -hmm. and stick with it and not be up at two o'clock in the morning cause it's eight in DC and then, you know, go to sleep at six cause it's midnight. Like it's just, you know, it was just, just basic like simple life things. Mm -hmm. Like I, I like to cook. Like I could act like, Hey, like I'm like, I can go grocery shopping and cooking and not have to worry. Like, is the food going to rot by the time I have to leave and then come back? It's just like simple little things. Um, it was, it's, it's nice. So let's get into what you're settling into now. The dust is settled, and you're able to buy groceries, cook them before they rot. You're able to surf, yeah. train, get on a schedule, but obviously that's not what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Yeah. What else is going on? What else you got going on in the world? So I am. Uh, so I'm still serving in the Army Reserves. I have. Boom. I moved from the National Guard to the Reserves and uh, transitioned my branch to civil affairs. Awesome. Which um, is often called kind of the, the warrior diplomat service. And um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I, I, it's, it's been a great move and one that's focused on building relationships. And uh, it's kind of kind of right up my alley. Something I've been interested in for a really long time that that I never pursued because it doesn't exist within the National Guard for obvious reasons. It's the National Guard focuses domestic mission first, um, but civil affairs is ninety eight percent of civil affairs forces in the United States Army live within the Army Reserves. There's the remaining whatever two percent is um, basically lives on. On Fort Bragg as part of the the unconventional um, special forces community, and so uh, yeah, I, I'm appreciating the training, the experience, and also some of the missions that that I've already been able to serve on there. Um, I as as kind of a direct result of everything that we talked about with my experience with the the mainstream media and. Um, being filtered into, you know, uh, or limited to sound bites, um, their unwillingness to go in depth or even really cover any real issues, serious issues, and just the caricatures that they, they create. Um, I am launching my own show where I will have the opportunity to um, really speak uh, directly to people in an unfiltered way and an unlimited way. Um, both, both about a lot of you know, some of these issues that we've talked about and, and have conversations with people who can shed light and bring their expertise or experience on them, um, but also just be able to have a platform where I can take some of those experiences that I've had, and I'm sure you've had the same because I, I've seen it in the military, I've seen it in politics, where 
whether it's traveling to different parts of the country or traveling to different parts of the world, there's there's so much more that we have in common as people than um, is often focused on or, or, or that we even we may may realize. And so I look forward to being able to to have that platform. My show is called This Is Tulsi Gabbard, just because it is just me. <laughs> Um, and, and use that as, as a, a, an opportunity to be able to fill that gap or, or, or to provide what, uh, the mainstream media and the corporate media is not offering, uh, to, to people. And, and that I found there's, there is, there's a lot of hunger for that, for real conversation, whether it's with people you agree with or, or to have a dialogue. You know, I, I want to be able to have people on my show who represent different views on an issue and who are interested in having a respectful conversation about it and why you hold one view, why do you hold the other view? Where is their common ground? Where is their irretractable differences? Where where do you draw the line? And, and I think being able to um, provide this platform, I hope, will result in more people thinking like, hey, Maybe I can start talking to my neighbor who voted for the other guy or the other party and we haven't really talked for like a year because of it, but maybe we should just like start the conversation and, and see where it goes and that it's okay and that we in America should be encouraging civil discourse and dialogue and um, encouraging when we talk about, well, we have to protect freedom of speech. What does that mean? Well, we'll you know, and, and how do you do it? Like, let's start with um, speaking, <laughs> sharing our ideas and not as, as you started this whole, our conversation today, not in a way that says, I'm right, you're wrong, I have to be heard, you don't get to be heard, but in a way that, that, um, that we don't see now where if, if you believe in something, you hold a view that you feel is important and strong and, and communicate that, also recognize that not everyone may share that view for whatever reason. Maybe they have a different background, a different experience, and one that you may not have. And that the more we can encourage this kind of exchange, the stronger we are as a society. That we don't lose by having uh, great platforms for people to share them. I think that that's the biggest difference between what we are seeing today versus what I believe our founders envisioned for us, where somehow we've come to a place where the powerful people in this country think that it's, it's really a sign of insecurity, where if those who hold different views are allowed to air them, then somehow you'll lose, <clears throat> which means maybe you're not confident that that, that what you're offering is going to quote unquote win or convince people that it is a superior idea. Yep. And it's so it it plays out leadership strategy and tactics. I talk talk about this, you know, if you, if I'm in charge and Tulsi, you say, Hey, Hey, Jonko, I don't think we should do it like that. Mm -hmm. And my response is shut up and do what I told you to do. I don't look strong. No, I look weak. Yeah. I look weak. If I say, well, Tulsi, how do you think we should do it? And I listened to your idea and I incorporate some of your idea into the overall plan because you were able to convince me because you had a different perspective than I did. You'll see, you'll look at me and think, oh, I really like working with, working for Jocko. Mm -hmm. I really like working with Jocko. 
because he's listening to what I'm saying. And all of a sudden we're coming up with actual better solutions, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's, oh, well, I'm doing this to appease to appease Tulsi right now so she'll you know work harder for me. No, she's actually got a pr- presentation to me that actually makes more sense. So we're going to use it. Yeah. So we're trying to get somewhere. So this is a podcast, your new your new show. Yeah, it'll be uh, you know available on all the podcast platforms. Also When's doing it coming video. out? <laughs> We're also doing video. <laughs> it, so I I, I um so I, I talked to you some time ago yeah. and, and asked some questions about how you launch a podcast and such. And um, one of the things you told me about was consistency is key. Both of you. That's that's you Echo Charles. Echo. That's Echo Charles' oh, advice. I just, echo? I just echoed Echo Charles' okay. advice on that one. Well, the message was received, and so what I'm doing is so so soon within within the next few weeks, but I'm recording a number of shows to have in the bank awesome. to make sure that you know, hey, I got to go away to training for a couple of weeks that we're not gonna we're not gonna um, skip a beat. So. How long is the show? Have you recorded some already? I have, yeah. Uh, you know, I, there no no real time limit, but right now they're about I don't know, like hour and a half ish. Mm. You're not going Jocko Psycho four hours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not opposed to it, but no 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 rules no yeah. rules, and I, I think that's that's the and cool so, thing about it. So is that the main focus of your efforts right now? Right now it is, yeah. You're going to yeah. launch this show, I, and um, I, I think probably by the by the end of this month is what I'm aiming for. Awesome. So where can people find you? Uh, people can find uh, me at Tulsi Gabbard on all the social media platforms um, and also on my website, uh, TulsiGabbard.com. Um, there's there's a few different things that, that I'm looking to do there, updates and, and information, and I've, I've moved it away from what it was traditionally, which is a political campaign mm-hmm. website and, and really focusing more on how we can... Um, Build communities and conversation uh, in our in our society. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, Independent. I don't care if you voted for Trump or voted for Hillary or whatever. None none of that should matter as we come together to to um, rebuild bridges focused on how we collectively as Americans can work together for the future of our country. Legit. Echo Charles. Yes, sir. Um, that seems like a good place to wrap this this session. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe this a good place to wrap up this session. Sure. Tulsi's obviously been charging hard for, well, since you were 16 years old as a water woman, <laughs> which again, we will, be, oh, yeah. we will be scouring the internet for that. She's been on the path, yes, Echo sir. Charles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking we should be on the path too. Yeah. What 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 suggestions do you have? Do I have? Hey, when you go to the grocery store, do people mm-hmm. like stop you a lot still? In Hawaii, yeah. definitely. Hell yeah, they do. At Foodland, or which is interesting because <laughs> and like, they say, "I know you, you're Water Woman." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where those kids are yeah, now. Like, hey, do you remember how I was growing up? Hey, Billy, how Dang. you doing? Third grade. I remember you. Where's your cape? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's still there. It's the same damn cape. <laughs> yeah, on on Kauai, like when you'd see the mayor, yeah. like at, at wherever you know, Star Market for sure. Um, yeah, you'd always stop and be like, hey, you know. So I would imagine if someone had like some thing, you yeah. know, some thing they want to address, they they wouldn't hesitate to stop you because you're right there. In the it store. happened most recently. Um, I was out surfing the reef near the Mokulua Islands and the east side of Oahu. 
and the, the surf there only goes off like it's only really good when there's no wind and there's swell obviously and it's it's a long it's it's like three quarters of a mile paddle from shore out there uh, but it happened most recently there like usually it's like someone will paddle up be like where do I know you from? <laughs> and then, and then, like one, was, and then advantage, like, oh yeah, hi, I'm Tulsa. Oh my god, that's what I thought. And then, <laughs> word in the lineup travels pretty quickly. And the, the last time I was, it was a couple of weeks ago, the waves were really they stayed out for four hours, and mm, um, people just like, hey. Tulsi, <laughs> guys on stand-up boards looking down at me on my surfboard and talking stories like, oh, what this? And whatever. It's so, it's it's cool. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, I would imagine. So, do you go to Sandy Beach? Um, I have been. I, I generally stay away. For, I, I don't want to threaten, like, my life by body surfing <laughs> at Sandy's so shore break. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Do you? Uh, yeah. Mm. That, was our, that was our spot. Yeah. Sandy Beach, yeah, for sure. But, you know, back in the day. Back in the day. <laughs> 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 all right. How are we staying on the path? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. We working out. We surfing. Yeah. Snowboarding. Some, mm. of, some oh. of us. Some of us. Are you a snowboarder? Some of us. I ski surfing. snowboard, but Echo Charles has recently become highly engaged in snowboard shredding. Ooh, <laughs> I like it. It's true. It's true. But we are working out mm. and training mm -hmm. for various things. So. I was pretty stoked when you were running and you put like um uh, whatever videos of you doing squats. Yeah. And I'm like, come on. <laughs> throw a girl. Can we get a couple percentage points of increase on just doing burpees? I was giving credit. I was like, oh, yeah. hey, I kind of you know, I'm leaning in your direction just seeing you do burpees. Oh, it's yeah. all good. In the polls. Yeah, yeah in that's the polls. what you're saying. Okay. In the uh, polls, yeah. people weren't yeah. watching that saying, Oh, there's Tulsi doing burpees. Hey. Let's yeah, at let's, least throw yeah. a dog a bone, yeah, right? right. <laughs> Come on. Let me earn it with some burpees. <laughs> yeah, <freaking laughs> ridiculous. Exactly right. Yeah, I, I didn't really see much uh, burpees by Joe Biden or any of these I didn't people. See, yeah, I didn't mm -hmm. see Joe Biden doing any burpees. No, yeah. Nobody else Nobody really else kind of got on the, the fitness kick. Yeah, well, crazy. All good. Nonetheless, we're going to stay on the path <sighs> over here. So through yes. the path, we may need supplementation. I would suggest supplementation. Don't worry, Jocko. I believe in that. It's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. True story. 100%. There you go. So here you go. You got joints that need attention sometimes, especially when we get older. Mm-hmm. We're not we? getting younger. Is this the collective we? <laughs> as far as, as, far okay. as yeah, goes, getting older because I know I'm not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you I stay, vote against it. Staying the same age. I get it. But for those of us who are, you know, we want to get something that helps in the routine. Supplementation for joints, mm -hmm. protein, brain, body, all this stuff. So what do we got? Joint warfare, joints, krill oil, joints, discipline and discipline go. Brain mm -hmm. and body. How's that discipline go going? This on this there? is good. I, I this is the first time I'm trying the the discipline go Jocko Palmer drink. Very good. Tasty. Very good. No sugar in that. It, yeah, it's that's, sweet that's with the monk fruit. Ah, see, I use monk fruit yes. like in my protein shakes and see, stuff like that. You know what's up? Yeah, man. To sweeten it. To sweeten it. Yeah. Because yeah. you you get you get you get the good natural like healthy sweetener yeah. without like. The carbs of like maple syrup, for example. Guess who just made the the clip of the week? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's my girl Tulsi. Which, which maple well, syrup is my my go? Like I oh, I would only eat pancakes to have maple syrup, really. Oh, but that's your jam, you man. know, I can't. Did you get any maple syrup from Pete up in 
up in Maine. No, oh, Pete, come man. on, man. <laughs> yeah, he's out there, and he used to do it himself, mm. but now you know it's just like friends, and and it's real maple syrup. You can go up there oh, and get man. the tree there's, when there's the trees are running. There. That was, and sorry, Echo, I'm, I'm messing with your jam here, man, but it's one, your of the jam cool, <laughs> one of the coolest experiences, well, there were many, but one of the coolest was when I stopped in Freedom, New Hampshire, and went to a sugar shack, mm-hmm. met with the three generations of family who have passed down from, you know, father to child, uh, and got to see the whole thing. We went up to the trees, saw the taps, came down, saw the whole process, and then of course, like sampled the goods. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm like maple, I'm maple syrup. Is it ever since I've been a kid? Like those little maple leaf candies oh, and you're just nuts. done, finished. Yay. I was up okay. in Maine talking to Pete, and he's like a sugar addict. He, he obviously <laughs> yeah. can't eat it. That's why. Yeah. But he he was saying he would take little um. A pencil box, you know the pencil box you had when you were a little kid? He would fill that with sugar cubes and hide it underneath his bed. And at night when he'd go to bed, he'd put like a little crack at it. (laughs) That's that's next level, man. I laughed so hard. I'm like, bro, what is wrong with you? And then he started like going into a different realm mentally. And he goes, he goes, bro, have you ever tried? Have you ever eaten a sugar cube? He's talking to me about, yeah, like crazy. You were, when were you, you were talking about that, right? On like, um. Thing. Yeah, one of the origin videos came yeah, out yeah, yeah, showed yeah, me yeah, talking okay. about that. Yes. Yeah. So it did sound crazy the way you were talking about, but then I remember like we didn't just buy sugar cubes, but every once in a while, like you'd get the little pack, right, with mm-hmm. all the sugar cubes and it and I'd eat those too. <laughs> They're like little candies. <laughs> yeah. But it's like pure, it's like mainlining the sugar. It's right. kind of good. I I didn't hide them under my bed. I was gonna say now like imagine st- stealing okay. those things okay. from your own family. Yeah. <laughs> And putting it into you, it's like a little that's cycle, different. right? That's different. Yeah. Well, yeah. monk fruit, yeah. no sugar. Yeah. Exactly. It's not sugar. Monk fruit is good stuff. It's natural. And by the way, we went the distance and I held out long. The other thing that's cool about this drink is, which was really hard to do, is the way that you make it stay good on the shelf is it has to, you have to preserve it somehow. Mm-hmm. And what no companies normally do is they just add chemicals to it. Right. And they're called preservatives. We've all heard of that, right? Yes. Well, instead of using preservatives, which I didn't want to do, it's it's pasteurized, hmm. so it's like cooked. So there's no, but there's no chemicals in it. But it cost us a ton of money to get it going, and it took us an extra almost took us over six months to get this all set up. But then we did it, and now you can drink this, and your kids can drink it. That's my huge. own kids can drink my drink. It's yep. it's something that my my mom always encouraged us, and it's like a habit I got into from a young age. She's like. Just read the ingredients mm-hmm. before you buy it. And if you don't understand half of the things that are on the ingredients, then, you know, yeah, yeah. think twice about, you know, putting it in your body. Let me ask you if you understand these ingredients. Filtered carbonated water, natural flavor, citric acid, monk fruit. That's Done. the ingredient list. Done. What? And it has the vitamin B6 and B12. Like it's got the other positive things, but right. the actual, the the food ingredients, that's it. That's incredible. <sighs> and more good. people are becoming conscious of this these days oh, for though, sure. really. I mean, more people are becoming aware and whether it's because of health, like diabetes and or whatever else, but I think there's just an increased level of awareness of like, hey, and, and even more so with COVID, like I, I really should be healthy. I should strengthen my immune system and I yeah. should know what I'm <sighs> consuming. I felt so bad. The last time you visited, so 
uh, whatever, three months ago, something yeah. like that. You came by. We didn't have time to record. Yeah. I didn't have time to record or whatever. But you just came by to hang out a yeah. little bit. And whatever. Two days later, I called you up and said, hey, how you, or I sent you a text, hey, how you doing? You're like, fine. I'm like, got something to tell you. And you're like, what? I'm like, I got COVID. And so does Echo Charles. Oh, yeah, I felt man. so bad. I had to make, luckily, I only saw like 10 people yeah. in that time period of whatever that week was where I knew I had, uh, well, I had been uh Tested positive for COVID. Texted Echo. He's like, "Yeah, I can't smell anything." I was yeah. like, this is a bummer, dude. <laughs> it's uh, the first I, I felt bad about that, yeah, but no, um, it happens, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> you catch you. I'm just gonna knock on wood right now. That uh, yeah, but um, yeah. So there you go. Yeah, you talk about the immunity thing. Yeah. So. Come to find out, Jocko has that covered as well. As far mm. as supplementation goes, vitamin D3 yeah. helps with immunity and a special supplement called Cold War. Mm. It was again. This was crazy, right? Like, so I, before COVID, I traveled all the time yeah. on planes, on you know, all the time, and you know the nightmare of that, and you're breathing in everyone's stuff. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to make you know a good immunity booster with a bunch of vitamin C and just things that. And so I made it and cool, and we and it was selling good and whatever. But then COVID hit, yeah. and, and the tooth, and I also made vitamin D. Already made it. This isn't like oh, oh it's wow. it's COVID. It right. was already in the system. It was yeah. already it was already live because I always I take vitamin D, and boom, as soon as COVID hit, it was like pff, we could, we had to just we we sold ramp out up. almost immediately, exactly. and then we just had to ramp it up. But luckily, we had already had the formulas built, so that stuff is awesome. Cold War and 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 the vitamin D three. True. Yeah. All good for you. Yep. I, I mean, I, I'm a I'm a supplement taker just in, in general, but I was not taking vitamin D mm-hmm. prior to COVID, nor was I really aware of how important uh, it was until I started to learn and, and read more and see, especially related to COVID, how most Americans are deficient. Yeah. <laughs> like vast majority of Americans are deficient in vitamin D and especially people who have any kind of you know, colored tone to their skin, even more so, um, are found to be deficient in vitamin D. So, uh, I am now a daily consumer. Well, vitamin D. Yeah. Yeah. I learned that when we had our daughter where everything, you know, you read for best development, all this stuff, vitamin D was always popping up with everything. Oh yeah. Vitamin vitamin D. It's true. But yeah. So yeah, got some Get some vitamin D. Also, don't forget about milk. This is extra protein mm-hmm. in the form of a dessert. Yeah. By the way, I'm sometimes a, it's I'm just dessert that has protein. Straight in up. It. Straight yeah. up. Yeah. Especially if you get your little formula down. Like some people, they just go milk, 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 mm. almond milk, whatever. Cool. Good. But some mm. of us, we we have our perfectly tuned formula. Yeah. Half a spoon of peanut butter. Mm-hmm. One scoop mint chocolate. One scoop peanut butter chocolate. One banana. Damn. Wow. Skim milk or 2% milk. <laughs> Boom. That's the formula in my household. I randomly tried almond milk with peanut butter milk. Mm-hmm. Bro. Yeah. Legitimate. What is up? That's a freaking milkshake. <laughs> yeah. That's a milkshake. So the, I added a banana like reluctantly. Like I was like, okay, banana. Because sometimes banana can jam up your whole flavor profile. Let, let me ask you this. 
Are they frozen or fresh? Both. Whatever. Because, okay. and Because the result is a little bit different. It's possi- I'm not that advanced to tell the difference. And here, here's why I know about the frozen <laughs> banana. When a banana is starting to get uh, uh, right in a yeah. little bit, past ripe, the kind of brown is taking over. You can <laughs> peel it and freeze it. That's what I do. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. Sarah told me that. So yeah. I was like, cool. Sure enough, she has two of them frozen inside because they needed a banana. So I put the frozen one in. I was like, man, this works perfect. Yeah. It's they good. get creamier when they're frozen. Interesting. Check All this right. out. Right. That, that's my jam. Mine is similar okay. to you. We had to, we had to wait f- over four hours for you to finally drop this knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> the secrets. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a bit coming. of a foodie. You're just warmed <laughs> up. Okay, good. Uh, we we grew up, crazy. my mom used to make ice cream at home from frozen bananas and just oh, like okay. literally put them through the champion juicer, freeze them, put them through the champion juicer, maybe add a little bit of like whatever, something to kind of like put it up to the next level. But like you have like homemade soft serve immediately. No so hmm. the frozen bananas I vouch for, I, I'm waiting for the plant-based milk yeah, to come out. I don't know if I talked to you or Pete about that, but you may have talked to both of us or one of us. But that's, that's what I do is for, for, um, after my workouts every day, my first meal, that's my first meal as a shake. I'd kind of fast until after that. Yeah. But I, I do the, the protein powder, the almond milk, the peanut butter, just a healthy, healthy, oh, solid like, dollop of peanut sounds butter. Sounds like someone's going strong <laughs> on the peanut Got butter. the frozen banana, and then I throw in I throw in some chia seeds, some pumpkin seeds, and flax seeds. Bro, you guys make Damn. me feel like amateurs over oh, here. I don't know. You guys no, make me feel like amateurs. Yeah, I, I, go, I go milk, milk, <laughs> done, mix yeah. it. Yeah, that's <laughs> That seems it's true. It's a hearty shake, but then I'm like I'm good. Like I'm good until like you know I have like an early dinner. That's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of the good thing. You can use it for yeah. many different reasons. You know, you can do like a meal replacement mm-hmm. or just a supplementation for the protein or just dessert. Or dessert. said protein. I'm gonna put that in slow motion no, no, somewhere. No, no, no. If I had the technical capabilities, I would put that in slow motion. You said. You said protein and flexed, double flexed your biceps. Hey, it happened and automatically. Tulsi witnessed it. I witnessed it. It's a, it's it's serious, bro. Ingrained. Anyway, so we can get so. these things at many places. If you're gonna be on the lookout for any of these places, you can get all this stuff at first Wawa, mm-hmm. East Coast. Wawa's only on the East Coast, though, right? Yes. Okay, Wawa um, at OriginMain.com, JockoFuel.com, JockoFuel.com. Kind of the same, what do you call it, trajectory, mm. yeah. goal. Vitamin shop. We're talking about. And the vitamin shop. Yes, sir. By the way, this is important, actually. Because shipping is a problem, right? Financially. It can cost a lot of money to ship something. Yeah. Here's the deal. If you subscribe to any of these items, shipping's free. Wow. So we're trying to, look, There's we're talking about tech companies. Mm-hmm. There's obviously some big tech companies out there that are hard to compete with. In fact, we you can't beat them, join them. We join them, it's fine. Mm-hmm. You can get the stuff there because it's free shipping. You know, it's like, a, it's like sort of a, that's a primary reason why people might order from this particular <laughs> place, which is cool. Sure, we're down and we appreciate it mm-hmm. 100%. It's fine. But if you wanted to just go straight to the source, but you didn't want to spend money on shipping, we got you covered. And right. it took us a while to figure out how we could balance it. If you subscribe, shipping's free on whatever you order. So that's kind of huge when you're talking about. It's very drinks huge. and it's yeah. very protein huge. and supplements and, and yeah. yeah, true. And Echo, 
no offense to Echo. Sometimes he's not quite the pinnacle of organization when it comes to, when, 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 I'm doing the best I This is so diplomatic. Stuff. I love it. Look, again, look, I, I prefaced it by saying no offense. No so offense. therefore you can't be offended. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm doing the best I can over here. I'm out of mope, by the way. There you go. Why aren't right. you subscribed? Uh, well, you Got know, issues. Yeah, got issues. Nonetheless. Over there flexing your biceps with no mope. <laughs> nonetheless, hey, look, this is where, how and where we can get all these things. Also, way to stay on the path, do jujitsu mm. or martial arts. Martial arts is good for you. It's good for your mind, body. I'm glad you're being diplomatic now. Well, he's being diplomatic and in, like including well, being all inclusive yes, of all martial arts. I appreciate he's never that said gesture. anything like that before <laughs> ever. We talk about doing martial arts. We're yeah. talking about jujitsu mm-hmm. over here on yeah. our side. Yeah. I That's what it. we're talking you're about. Right. You are correct. But go ahead. Okay. Continue, <laughs> Mr. Diplomatic. Thank he's, you. You've improved <laughs> his diplomacy already today, just hanging out with you. He's got aloha. That's true. Normally, yes. he, this guy has no aloha for oh, other martial arts. Wow. <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> you're here. Okay. All Everything's right. cool. Well, either way, whatever martial arts we're doing, mm-hmm. say do that stuff. In the event of you doing jujitsu. You're going to need a gi and or a rash guard. Get those as well from Origin. How Maine. much did you do have you trained? A little bit. Just not a, a lot. I, I mean, I, the most, the most, if you could, I guess within the family would be Army Combatives. Oh, okay. It's legit. Yeah. The Army Combatives is, is a great program yeah. developed by jujitsu guys. Exactly. Um, I, I early on. I guess the, 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 the martial art that I trained the most in was, was Brazilian capoeira. So, oh, um, that's right. I it was makes me laugh every time I hear you pronouncing English words with a Brazilian Portuguese accent. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know what because that's about. <laughs> although I talk, I said earlier, starting off this program, that I'm very, look, I just say what I say. Yeah. When it comes to you know Brazilian Portuguese oh, yeah. words, like if you're going to talk to me about, oh, you train capoeira, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm coming at you. <laughs> <laughs> like a pro. <laughs> That's what we do over on that one. Well, <laughs> and because of that, I took summer classes in Brazilian Portuguese in Hawaii, like uh, oh. like trying to learn the language. I was I was getting fully immersed in the culture and and started to do a lot of a lot of the, my friends who did capoeira also did mm-hmm. jujitsu and met a lot. There's a huge Brazilian community in Hawaii because of surfing, and obviously oh, yeah. most of them do either capoeira and jujitsu as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I just I was kind of. Um, Consumed. I, I was training like six hours a day in Capoeira, and that was that was I was starting damn. to teach, and I was oh, doing a bunch of stuff there. Um, but yeah, so so the most time I spent doing any kind of grappling was was army combatives, which was fun. Well, it's cool because now you're going to be on the journey of jujitsu. We're going to get you a gi. Yeah, I want. I really. I I, I want to learn, and and I'm a big mixed martial arts fan. I, I have been for a long time, and yeah, you went up and trained with Duke Rufus, right? Yeah, that was an incredible surprise that I was not expecting, but uh, he was there to train um, Zheng Wiley, mm-hmm. and she was passing through doing a publicity thing, so I got to meet her and spar. With, and I use that <laughs> word very generously. <laughs> She's like, come at me, like kick me, punch, like do something. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> but it was like, du- like get, getting to hit some pads with Duke was freaking incredible. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was awesome. I've cornered a bunch of fighters at UFC and and whenever Duke Rufus was there mm-hmm. he's just like such an awesome he guy is. super cool super nice yeah super I mean obviously he's a great trainer and everything but I just remember thinking this guy's just freaking rad yeah just totally cool. totally and he makes you know like he made us feel 
just great. And, and um, But what I was going to say is the thing that I've always appreciated most, most about mixed martial arts is, you know, yeah, there are guys who are stronger in boxing or striking or whatever, but this the strategery that goes into p- fighters who have a very strong ground game, when you really watch it, is I've just incredible. And that that's what I've, I've loved most about uh, the sport is the strategic thinking that goes mm-hmm. into like, all right, I'm going to do mm-hmm. this and set you up for where I'm going to put you in, you know, six moves later or oh, yeah. whatever. So yeah, I'm now, now that I'm a little bit more free, um, I, I really do. I've, I've been telling my husband this. I want to, I want to learn. We have connections yes, sir. in cool. the Hawaiian islands. Uh, speaking of geese, jujitsu geese, and jeans and boots. You went to the factory in Maine, I right? I did. How so stoked I visited were you on the that? Origin factory in Maine, and to say I was stoked is an understatement. And we made a little social media video, video about it, and and you know, got some footage of Pete showing us around and talking about what they do. Um, brought the local media with us, and the local media did a story on on uh, on Origin. But my husband will tell you in the car ride leaving, I was so freaking stoked. It was it was. <laughs> completely unexpected because I've, I've had the privilege of going and visiting a number of, you know, local businesses and shops. But the thing that really like struck home for me, like in a, in a visceral way was yeah, awesome products, but the spirit, uh, the spirit of origin came through loud and clear, not just because Pete's good at talking about it, but because of what I experienced in the people who work there and um, the sense of pride and the sense of of ownership of the thing that says right there, we get to do this and, and how deeply you all have built the foundation of this American business in the fabric of America. And that, like, I was like, I left there and I'm like, I told Pete, I was like, um, like, where do I sign up? Like, how do I, <laughs> how do I join this? Because this is freaking amazing. And I talked about it and, and just shared, that, that's why I wanted to share um, that video and just the experience of being able to go and visit. And it was not on the way, like, Farmington, Maine is on the way to nowhere <laughs> else I was going. <laughs> and it was literally like I'd, I called an audible on my team and I'm like, yeah, we're in Maine and I'm going to take a two hour like detour to go and visit because the story of uh, that, that you guys are sharing of Origin Maine is the story that needs to inspire America, especially now in what what we can do what we can do here at home and that, yes, this is about supporting a local business, it's about supporting America and American jobs, but it goes so much deeper than that, that yeah, of course there are challenges and there as adversity and you know foreign trade and like all of these other things, but just like, um, you know, Pete talks about how he started, right? And in his freaking backyard and <laughs> built a factory because there wasn't one. Where there's a will, there's a way. And when you're rooted in this um, foundation of not just, hey, how can we make a bunch of money? But how do how do you use business as a means to serve and have a positive impact in your community, in the lives of the people who work there, in the customers who know like, hey, I'm not just buying a product that's cool. I'm supporting a mission that's much 
greater than any one of us as individuals and will have a much longer lasting impact. Yeah, if you were to take what you just said, if you were to, if you and I were to look at each other and say, "Hey, let's make a business and let's make, you know, let's make clothes, let's make apparel, let's make shoes and let's make money." The last thing we would do to make money is try and build a factory in America. Correct. And source everything from Which America. Which is sad. With, but it, true. it is absolutely sad. And there's company upon company upon company that their primary goal is to make money. That's their primary goal. It's not to make a quality product. It's not to be innovative with their products. It's not to rebuild their community. It's not to put money back into the community. It's not to not to bring manufacturing back to America. That's that's not even on their radar. Mm-hmm. Those are our primary goals. Now, in order to do that, we do we have to make money? Of yes, course. absolutely. And we will. But that's not why we're doing it. If we just wanted to make money, we wouldn't be there would be no factory. It'd be it'd be a sweatshop yeah. overseas. That's what it would be. We're not going to do that. We're never going to do that. And you'd be no different than most of the others. They're, they're, you know, and and it would it you wouldn't be you. Origin wouldn't be origin then. Ab- absolutely. And to be quite frank with you, money could not drive me or inspire me mm-hmm. or motivate me one one hundredth the amount that it does to know that there's people in that town yes. that are working, that are have a career now. You know, we're taking millennials and teaching them a, a, a skill that was oh, was so close to being lost. You saw them. I did. Millennials, Incredible. that their skills that were, I mean, our, our, our guy Lenny just died. But he, before he died, he was able to pass on his knowledge that can be passed on, could saved. It's there. Yeah. We're, we're there. And it's, you know, I was, so, I was so stoked. You know, you and I were texting mm-hmm. back and forth. And I think I was trying to get you a pair of boots. I was like, hey, we'll get you some and boots. You did. And yeah, we had you somebody did. deliver you boots. But yep. for you to go up there, it was, I was so stoked that you could go up there and you could see it. And, and you know, it's, it's very cool too. Like, I'll hear Joe Rogan talking about origin. Mm-hmm. And even though he's not been there, like he knows, he it's, it. it's very cool. And it, it, when, I saw, when I heard him talking about origin, and he was just talking about it with some, someone else that was, was on his show, when I heard him talking about it so passionately, I realized this is, people get it. Yeah. You don't just, have, you, look, it's awesome when you go there, and obviously when you go there, it's visceral mm-hmm. when you go there. But even if you don't go there, you know. You know that some, that pair of jeans that you're wearing those are those are American made. The hands that harvested the cotton, processed it, every step. That's the amazing thing is and I you know some of my some of my friends in the military, especially when they got their stimulus checks, they're like, I'm gonna make a choice with this money and I'm gonna go shopping at Origin <laughs> because cool stuff, but I'm supporting America with these dollars. And that that's the difference and that's the impact and and i i i loved sharing the story of my experience there to help inspire others who may aspire to do something similar but feel like the obstacles are too great but but and whether it's business or whatever i mean the, the point is the, the motivation and the spirit of getting back to not planning this, but getting back to our origins of who we are as a country of entrepreneurs and innovators and people who are bringing different ideas to 
to um, and the pride, the pride uh, that goes that goes along with that. Origin USA, yeah. OriginUSA.com. If you want to get any stuff from there, it's made by Americans for Americans. It's true. Also, let me point your attention to JockoStore.com. This is where you can represent <laughs> there you while go. you're on the path. There you go. So, yeah, we have some stuff. Some of the stuff that we have is from Origin. We got rash guards on there. Um, also, we have hoodies and shirts and, you know, discipline equals freedom, this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm saying if you're Jocko represent- seems to get uncomfortable when you start talking about him. <laughs> is it that obvious? It is that obvious. There's a visible weird. shift here <laughs> yeah. in energy. <laughs> What's funny is it's kind of like a complimentary relationship because like my comfort increases when his discomfort <laughs> increases. You see what I'm saying? So it's like, cool. That's why you can kind of sense mm-hmm. some pride when I talk about the store. Gotcha. Jocko store, by the way. Anyway. Yes, this link was free. Shirts, hoodies, rash guards, uh, some hats on there, some new stuff on there, new design coming out soon. Oh, really? I'll let you know. These are all things that happen. Decentralized command. Yep. Hey. Like, I'm not over there pointing the finger and making things happen. That's Echo Charles in his own little world. Well, it's our, it's our world. So. <laughs> uh, we have a subscription situation as well. If you want like a new type of design, kind of. Um, is that where the is that where the Run DMC T-shirt just came from? Yes, that's legit. <laughs> I, that's good. I, yeah, so do you approve these before they're done? Or sometimes, this is, okay. sometimes there is a level of decentralized command, but I also some people in the organization <laughs> will say occasionally need to get put in check. <laughs> <laughs> so there is sometimes, but occasionally things slip by. Like he just made a, a run DMT run DMC T-shirt, mm-hmm. but it says discipline, but it it's D uh, what is it DSC PLN? Yeah, gotcha. But it looks like the old school run DMC yeah. T-shirt. So it's yeah. freaking legit. That's it, cool. I thought so too. Yeah. There's also ones like the element, you know, the periodic table. Yeah, the element. Yeah. So it's element D, and it has all the the atomic weight mm-hmm. point three. 434 nice layers anyway these are kind of offshoot designs but they're cool relevant and there's layers oh here's the thing that's jacked up what? now i just realized if you wanted that run dmc discipline shirt you can only get it if uh, you subscribe if you're yeah. a subscriber to the shirt locker the shirt locker Ooh. the shirt locker of echo charles <laughs> <laughs> it's true yeah once they're gone they're gone that's so, a man, so limited, it is, it, limited. That's kind of a bummer. Uh, yeah. And by the way, it seems like one person at this table does not have a subscription to this. <laughs> What's funny is I for real have a subscription. No, to I it. for real don't. Oh, you which don't. Which is jacked Dang, up. Brutal. Brutal. I thought you were calling me out by not calling me <laughs> no, out. That's what I thought too. <laughs> no, but <laughs> okay, there's two people that don't have a subscription apparently. Dang, that makes two of us, I guess, or <sighs> one of us, whichever. Either way. <laughs> Maybe I have some extra. I'll, I'll hook you guys up. Oh, that. man, that that'd cool? be great. Is that cool? Yeah, that, that'd be very nice. Right. If you could hook me up with my own stuff. Thank you. Uh, speaking of subscriptions, subscribe to this podcast. Uh, wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Also, we have Jocko Unraveling, which we're about to record somewhere this week. Awesome. Grounded podcast, Warrior Kid podcast. And by the way, you also have another podcast to subscribe to, which is called This is Tulsi Gabbard. This is Tulsi Gabbard. It's actually up already, yep. so uh, I posted a trailer. You can you go listen and, to and subscribe and follow now so that you can know when we drop the first episode and follow on once. You can also join us at the Underground, yep. jockounderground.com, which I already mentioned, so I'm not going to go into a big um, 
explanation, but got to have a contingency plan. Don't want to be, don't want to be feeling the chains of control from anyone, not sponsors, not tech companies, no one. We're, so, so we got to go underground. Yep. JockoUnderground.com if you want to help us out there. It costs $8.18 a month, which is got layers to it. Yes, sir. We'll talk about that offline. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and look, we're not, if you can't afford that for whatever reason, you're running into some tough times right now, there's COVID, whatever, and you can't afford it, order or, or email assistance at JockoUnderground.com and we can get that taken care of. We have a YouTube channel, which has a lot of videos on it. The good ones, I'm the assistant director on. The rest of them, it's Echo Solo. <laughs> you have a YouTube channel too, Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah, Tulsi Gabbard. You post. We post all kinds of stuff. We'll be posting. We'll be posting the um, uh, the podcast on there oh, as sweet. well. But also just you know different things that are happening. I, I often record short videos, kind of weighing in on maybe issues of the day or news or different things that are coming forward. And more often than not, bring a different perspective than one you're getting uh, in the news. So um, yeah, I, I post those uh, across uh, YouTube and across social media at Tulsi Gabbard. Psychological warfare is an album. You, did you know that I was an artist, Tulsi? Did not. I'm an recording artist, artist. A recording artist. Oh, okay. So if you want to get my album, mm. and it's the artist is Jocko. Okay. And the the album is called Psychological Warfare, and there's a bunch of tracks on there that you can listen to whenever you need them. So is the wake up track one of them? The wake, the up, wake track up track is track. Right. See? very familiar. Oh, she's, a she's a fan. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Apparently, so is the sleep track that puts you to sleep while listening. To my you should add one. You good. should add one on there. Yeah. <laughs> Just me talking about murder. <laughs> sleep, sweet dreams. Uh, Flipside Canvas, FlipsideCanvas.com. Dakota Meyer, my brother. He makes all kinds of cool stuff. It, again, American-made stuff that that is the highest quality, puts all kinds of stuff that you can hang on your wall to remind you of the path. Got a bunch of books. Uh, I got a book called Final Spin, which is a novel, not out yet. Comes out in September. I've been tracking that. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I just got the final, or I just did the final edits. It's, it's freaking I was, my daughter, my oldest daughter read it. I was like, hey, can you review this? And so she read it. And you know, your kids are always like going to be harsh critics or whatever. And my, I said, oh, you know, she got done reading it. So, oh, you know, how was it? How did you like it? And so she starts going, you know, I like this and I like that. And then she, she got to a point and she started to, cause it's, it's an emotional mm. situation. She started to cry. Oh my God. This is not while she, this was. After a day after, after she read it, she started crying and, wow. and she was like, and, and then I was kind of like, oh, I go, I guess that's a good touch. And she was like, it's just that, that part. So, and I was like, okay, <laughs> so it's very yeah, interesting. So not that it's just, it's just not a sob story, but it's a, you would want to write a book that moves people. He, well, I mean, sure. yeah, I guess, I guess if it's not going to have any impact, or if it's going to have an impact, that's a good exactly. thing to make people think. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, it's definitely even as I read it, and I've read it now a hundred times because mm-hmm. I have to edit it. You know, there's some parts where I'm reading it, and it's definitely 
it's it's heavy. It's yeah. heavy, and it's got some really funny parts too. A lot of the dialogue is really funny because I, you know, it's reflective of kind of the dialogue that I have with people, even though it's not about me. Or is it? I'm yeah. not sure. <laughs> I guess Open it might to kind interpretation. Of. Yeah, it's sort of an alternative. Anyways, the book is called Final Spin, and you can pre-order it right now if you want to get a first a dish. Yes. If you want to get a first a dish, order it now. And look, th- this is going to be kind of a big deal to get the first a dish of the first novel. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Oh, so Am is, I overhyping is, that? Is is the second Under-hyping. in the works? This this book will have no follow on. Okay. Um, for various reasons, mm-hmm. it primarily it concludes. It does conclude. It is called Final Spin. It is not <laughs> like front first spin. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is called Final Spin. But also, I it's it is it is complete. Sure. In my mind, it's complete, and so I don't want to carry the story on. But you have more novels in you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I got 14 novels that I thought of during the last half an hour. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It's um, unfortunate for me. It's always just w- people say, oh, I don't know what to write about. I'm like, God, I wish I had that problem. <laughs> so that's that. Final spin. Pre-order it. Leadership strategy and tactics field manual. The code, the evaluation, the protocol. Discipline equals freedom field manual. Way the warrior kid four. Field manual, that's out. Way the Warrior Kid, one, two, and three. Mikey and the Dragons. I was listening to, I was listening to Jordan Peterson okay. yesterday, and and he was just going off about the dragons, which is sure. a the lot dragon. of what he does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly enough, I was like, hmm, sounds like this book called Mikey and the Dragons. So check that one out, About Face by David Hackworth. There's a forward by me and Tulsi, you've... I just got it in the mail a couple of days before I left Hawaii and I have read your forward. Okay. And I'm just starting... What's the impression starting of the forward? the book. Um, how incredibly impactful this book and this man has been on your life as a person. But the thing that really... Um, like spoke to me was how this was kind of a um, your go-to reference to help guide you through difficult leadership choices, decisions, challenges that you face in some of the most difficult environments, i.e. being in, at war, and, um, and that you've never met the man. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, that came through very clear, kind of your gratitude to him um, in, having this this book that provided you with that place where you could find the answers that you couldn't find anywhere else or help you see things in a different way that you wouldn't have seen otherwise through his experiences and how he handled things or his perspective and then the 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 maybe the most important thing was that all of that came from the foremost concern being care for your guys his soldiers mm-hmm. your seals soldiers who you were people who um you were responsible for and uh i I thought that was a really cool thing for me to come at i've I've only heard you talk about it but to come at this book and i'm really looking forward to to read continuing to read it but to see that bridge in time and that that 
and conflicts and wars between a, a, a guy who served in, in Vietnam and was a leader of soldiers in Vietnam to you and the experience that you had as a leader serving in Iraq uh, and how there was such um, powerful connection between two different leaders in two different wars in different places in different times. That That's not something I've really heard of before. Mm. It's weird because I... Uh, as I read that book, have you ever seen the movie? The th- I think it's called the Thirteenth Warrior. Have you ever heard of this movie? Tom Cruise. No. <clears throat> so, anyways, it's based on it's based on a book by Michael Crichton, and I can't remember the name of the book that it's based upon. But it's about this Arabic um, person who gets somehow mixed up in with the Vikings, hmm. and there's a great scene. And the, the Arabic guy is played by some famous actor. God, I can't think of it. Sure. Echo Charles. Sure. I really famous wish you could actor. go. <laughs> <laughs> but they show they, they they do this scene where he's learning to speak Norwegian or whatever, old Norse, whatever language mm-hmm. they're speaking. And the way that they cut it up, they're speaking Norwegian and then every once in a while an English word pops in. Mm. Which would have been an Arabic movie or Arabic word, but it's a it's a it's an English speaking movie. So every once in a while, an, uh, an English word will pop in. So it's mother, mother, tree. And so, and he starts picking up, and it's probably a two minute scene where by the end, all the words are in English. Okay. The reason I'm telling you this is because as, as you were talking about the book about face, I feel like each time I read it, like a little, because it's not a book about leadership, and you know, you mentioned leadership. It's not a book about leadership. It's a, it's a book about a guy's life. Right. But it's like as each time I read it, a little leadership thing would come through, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and eventually the whole thing. I realized this whole thing is just about leadership, and it's about how to take care of your troops and do yeah. the mission. And it's, it's. I just had that thought as you were as you were describing the correlations between what he lived through and what I lived through, which by the way, just for the record, not even close. And sure. he was in he was in Korea and Vietnam. He's the he had three distinguished service crosses, nine silver I mean, just totally different. But good book to yeah. check out. The the closest thing that I can relate to in my time in the military is you mentioned Band of Brothers earlier and I was a brand new Maybe I was an E3 or an E4 by that point, but I picked up the book, uh, Band of Brothers, before ever watching the the miniseries. I don't even know if it was made at that time yet, but uh, I was brand new in the National Guard. I started reading the book just as we were about to go and do an annual training at Fort Indiantown Gap in Pennsylvania. And I'm reading the book. I like can't put it down. We go there. We're there for 10 days or two weeks or whatever it was on the plane going back to Hawaii, and I finish the book. And at the end of the book, it says, Dick Winters currently resides in Fort Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania, where he lives with his wife. And I'm just like, why didn't I finish this two days earlier? I would have definitely gone and knocked on this man. And he was still alive at the time. Um, That was, but, but I've, you know, gone on and watched, I mean, I've watched this year. I don't even know how many times I've watched it um, in OCS we had to write essays on different episodes from a leadership perspective, leadership lessons, good Perfect. and bad, and really analyzed um, each episode of that. And and so that, that's one, 
I mean, that's, that's the only kind of closest thing I can relate to. We're going back and looking at him and his leadership. And I always forget the guy's name, but the guy who's Ross in Friends. Sorbel. Thank you. Yep. Um, his his uh, flawed leadership, I would say, mm-hmm. and the lessons learned from that. And, and as a specialist then and then a brand new lieutenant, I, I, I've, I have often gone back to those leadership lessons, including the ones of, um, you know, some of the... Uh, Oh gosh, I'm forgetting the name now. Some of the enlisted characters, mm. yep. and uh, one that was played by Donnie Wahlberg, um, one of the main E sixes, yep. yep. and uh, and that was I, I had a chance to meet Donnie Wahlberg at a veterans event, and like I don't I don't really care about celebrities in general, but I saw he was there. I'm <laughs> like, I need to go speak to this person about Band of Brothers, and uh, it was it was really cool. And he's a huge, huge, huge supporter of veterans. I was on um, a show called The Billions. You were, <laughs> yeah. And the the one of the main characters in Billions, a guy named Axelrod. Uh, yeah. Is uh, he also played Dick Winters? He is forever Dick Winters in my mind. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. Like he was in <laughs> Homeland too. Like yeah, yeah. whatever. You're Dick Winters. <laughs> but we, you know, he, he we were sitting around and talking, and and he said something along the lines of like, "Oh, you know, I was in something called Band of Brothers." I'm like, "Yeah, I kind of know that. <laughs> I'm I'm well aware of that." Yeah. And so we talked a bunch about it. It was it was interesting because in those I'd never done any like Hollywood. Things before Echo sure. Charles likes to throw Sag, that at me. Sag member. Yeah, yeah. he likes to throw that at me. <laughs> well, when you do it, you film the same thing ten times, if not more. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's a scene where we're waking a guy up in bed, and there's me and Axe and Wags. Have you watched Billions before? I've only seen one or two. Okay. I didn't really it's a freaking it. fantastic show. Okay. So me, Axe, and Wags, three characters. And so we're waking a guy up. And the first time we film it is like they're filming all three of us. And we deliver the lines. Mm-hmm. And then you stop. And then they reset up all the cameras. And then they do it again, but they're just filming me. Mm-hmm. And then they reset up the cameras. And they do it again. They're just filming Wags. And then they refilm it again. They, they're just filming Axe. And, they, and then they refilm it again. They're just filming the girl in bed. Then they refilm it again. And then they do it from behind us. And they do it. So it ends up, you end up doing this thing 10 times, 15 times, 20 times. And by the way, if someone messes up, doing it again. So I was talking to him. And I said, how in God's name did you film like a battle scene? Yeah. How the hell did you do that? And he, he said, it's totally different because there's basically guys running around with cameras and they do it one freaking time and they just have to get it right. Mm. And they're running through it because explosions are going off and like yeah. a building is going to get destroyed mm-hmm. and it's only going to get one take. Yeah. So that was pretty interesting. No pressure, right? As yeah. an actor, yeah. not only because of that, just the, the logistics of it, but like the history and what you're doing and who you're (laughs) representing like my gosh I can't I can't imagine he um so if someone messes up Mm -hmm. the director comes and like talks to him right (laughs) (laughs) reprimand like I'm serious so if if someone maybe he doesn't mess up but maybe he's not putting the right Right, stank on it, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like you're Technical too much, you're yes, too sir. little. Yes, you know, you're you're being too emotional. And so it happened. I didn't really, I didn't know any of this. Were you playing 
a military person I played, yourself? I, or? I, I, I had a real stretch of a role. <laughs> <laughs> I played me. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, so I played me and I was whatever, trying to, I was trying to help a guy win a, a smoker's fight, a boxing okay. match, and we're training him. Um, but if you mess up, the, or you don't put enough, or you put a little too much, or whatever, the, the director, actually the first the assistant director is gonna come and give you a little nudge in the right direction. Hey, it was a little, you know, don't be so loud. Uh, you know, you're too emotional, this isn't supposed to be funny, or whatever, something like mm-hmm. that. And so this actually happened to me. I don't know if I'm not supposed to talk about stuff like this, maybe it's off limits. But <laughs> It's it, done, it's fine. <laughs> it happened to one of the other actors. We were doing, it's just me and one other actor in a scene, and we do it, and I'm just doing what I do. So honestly, it's pretty, if I have to get talked to, it's a problem, because I'm just being <laughs> myself, right? So I'm doing what I'm doing, and the the assistant director comes down first and is like, hey, you know what, you might wanna back that down a little bit. Not talking to me, but talking to the other guy. And and he's like, well, are we gonna do it again? He's like, yeah, we're gonna do it again, which is kind of a big deal, like, it's not it's not a small thing, right? Mm-hmm. We're actually, because I remember saying, wait, are we gonna have to shoot this again? He goes, yeah, we're gonna shoot it again. So it's kind of, ooh. So, I realized that this was kind of a thing. If mm-hmm. you and then if you continue to mess up, then it's not just the assistant director; it's the director is going to come <laughs> down and try and give you, you know, whatever. What do yeah. they give you? What do, they give you the motivation, motivation. and the, this What's is the proper. Mo- and so I'm watching this, going, dude, I don't want none of this. <laughs> and so I remember once I'm. Uh, uh, so now it's me, Axe, and Wags, and they're the main guys. And these guys, and I didn't know anything about anything, right? But this is a very popular show, yeah. and it's an incredibly well-written show. The the, the writers, I, I know the writers now, and they're just so good. And you understand. You, so anyways, they're, they, we do a take, right? Hollywood. We do a take. <laughs> take yeah. And like, you can hear, you can hear like radios. Like you can hear something. And you, so now all you realize someone messed up, right? And then they come walking up, and uh, and he comes walking up. You can he's behind us. The director and he pulls one of the other guys aside. You know, blah 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 blah. And I was like, and I said to Axe, I was like, bro, I thought he was coming for me. <laughs> and he goes, we all think that. I was like, oh, <laughs> you're not crazy. alone. Yeah. Even the pros don't like uh, <laughs> get the talking to. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. Um, other books, Extreme Ownership, first book I wrote, mm-hmm. wrote about leadership, and then The Dichotomy of Leadership. Echelon Front, Leadership Consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com if you want us to come to your company and help. We got EF Online. It's an online leadership training platform to get your whole organization aligned, not just aligned towards a common goal, but more important, aligned in how they are going to lead. Go to efonline.com for that. We got the muster, 2021, a bunch of different dates. We're gonna be coming around the country. Check extremeownership.com if you wanna come to one of those. They've all sold out every time we've done one. These are gonna sell out too, so check it early. We've got EF Battlefield, which is, we've done one so far, we're doing another one. We go out and we walk the grounds of the battlefield at Gettysburg. Oh. Yeah. And you, you we sit there, we talk through the decisions that were made. We talk about General Lee and Longstreet and AP Hill and and Stewart and Meade and Hancock and Reynolds and 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 Joshua Chamberlain from Maine. We we talk through their personalities, decisions that got made, egos that got involved, hesitation, 
being overly aggressive, not being aggressive enough. We talk through all so many lessons to learn, and this is a little tiny group of people. There's 35 people that we bring to this event. It's all day long. Um, me, the rest of the echelon, or of quite a few of the echelon front instructors walk in the battlefield. We do dinner. We're going to do a Q&A. It's, we will answer whatever questions you have, and we will all learn about these lessons. So if you want to go to that, go to, go to echelonfront.com slash events to check that out. Did you take a note there on I, something? I did. Um, highly, highly recommend. I've had the opportunity to do that a, a, a few times, one of which while I was um, – well, we went we went to the battlefield of Chickamauga uh, when I was in OCS, mm-hmm. and we did that as a class. So good, incredible, bringing history to life and making it relevant, especially uh, from a leadership perspective that applies whether you're in the military or not. But something I found out pretty cool in the last year or so, I was asked to be on this show uh, on PBS called Finding Your Roots. And it's a show that features different people. Um, in, in my episode, they also had Paul Ryan and Marco Rubio, but, you know, like Oprah. They've had different people on. And, and they dig into your genealogy and find stories about your roots, where you come from, who you come from. And I found out that um, one of my ancestors on my mother's side of the family was 39, 40 years old, when he volunteered to serve in the Union uh, Army, and that he it was the, and they had the documentation there of one of those battlefields where he fought that I had been to previously and visited and walked through, Dang. and it was the most like. It was the most incredible thing on on many levels to see like this guy gave up his life to go and and fight for what he believed in and that I had generations later not only physically walked through that battlefield where he was but also chose a similar path um, with my life and so um, it was just it was it was and I've gone back to Gettysburg a few times since and Every single time I go, um, it's an incredibly powerful experience. Incredibly powerful. And to go to the place where, of course, Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address. Yeah. Yeah. It's when, when we, because we basically, we spend the two days walking and then we, we, when we wrap it up and you kind of, now you clearly know and you've seen the low ground, the high ground, mm-hmm. the trees, the buildings, and you're walking where thousands of men were killed. Yeah. It, it, it's, just, it's just unbelievable. It's an unbelievable event. It's an unbelievable place, and it's an incredible way to learn and solidify those. So that's EF, echelonfront.com slash events if you want to go. Um, it's in April, so... And if you want to help service members active and retired, their families, Gold Star families, then check out Mark Lee's mom. She's got a, a, a charity organization, Mama Lee. If you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. And if you want more of my imposing interrogations or you want more of Echo's quiet questions, 
<laughs> and pop culture commentary. And pop culture commentary. I just, so whenever I'm giving Echo a hard time, if it's a pretty good one, then, he, then he'll say to me like, you're, you're real happy with yourself, aren't you? You're really enjoying yourself, aren't you? You really enjoyed yourself, aren't you? You, you think you're good, don't you? Mm-hmm. And I, that's how I know I'm kind of getting there. And as I got, as when we got here today, as I got out of the car, I was I was responding to Twitter or Instagram, and I had just made a comment. And I got out of the car. I said, "Hey, you know how sometimes you say that to me?" Because someone had said the the last woman that was on Holly McKay. Someone had said, "Oh, did she? Does she stay for the support section? Meaning, what we've dragged you into for the past freaking hour, just about?" <laughs> and I said, uh, "No." She was able to withstand, you know, ISIS interrogations, <laughs> but she couldn't hang with Echo Charles and the support. So there you go. Yeah, he's very, very happy with that one. Yeah. I can sense the, the pride in the tone of the, the comment. There you go. I'm admittedly so. Yeah. Guilty. Yeah. Uh, if you want more of us, you can't, you, then, then you can find us on the interweb. And, and that's including Tulsi's way. Tulsi as well, at Tulsi Gabbard. Echo is at Echo Charles. And I am at Jonko Willink. Echo Charles, you got anything else? Are you running for president again ever or even possibly? <clears throat> do you think? I don't know. I'm not thinking about it at all. If you but did, would you ask about aliens? Remember how? who Someone asked about aliens, right? I think so. I think it was like Clinton or something. Um, it's not on the top of my list. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> there you go. Did I say something about Echo's questions earlier? <laughs> he, sa- he saved the best for last. What's funny, is, point. what's funny is when I first met you or whatever, I was like, hmm, I don't think I ever met anyone that ran for president before. Mm-hmm. So then you know how you kind of think, like, what would I ask? Mm-hmm. And then for some reason, this I is it. Was, this, yeah, is, this, this is the moment. Yeah, though. all the rest of the stuff is like, mm, okay, whatever. But you know. oh man. Gotcha. I have nothing else, but thank you. Awesome. <laughs> Tulsi, thank any, you. Clo- any closing thoughts? I, um, it's great to be here, and we've covered a lot, and there's a lot more to come. Yeah, awesome. Well, um, obviously, thanks for coming on. I know we tried to make this happen for a little bit, and glad you could kind of finally get on here, and, and thanks for your service in thank the you. United States government, of course, but... Also, obviously, thanks for your service as a soldier, as a leader. Thanks for putting your life on hold and your life at risk to defend the freedoms and the way of life that we hold sacred. And the same goes to the rest of the military personnel out there around the world on those forgotten barricades on the front lines of freedom. Thank you for defending us. And to our police and law enforcement and firefighters and paramedics and EMTs and dispatchers and correctional officers and border patrol and secret service and all the first responders, thank you for defending us as well here at home. And to everyone else out there, well, for one thing, ask yourself, Is today the day? Is today the day? And live your life thinking that today could be the day. And that means remember some of that aloha spirit that Tulsi talks about. Treat people 
with aloha treat them with respect and compassion and try and help out other people and you do that you do all those things by first putting your own ego in check listen more than you talk praise more than you punish stand up for what you believe in while respecting other people's beliefs too and remember always remember that we are stronger together and until next time this is Tulsi and Echo and Jocko out